the Ursa's claws. Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Age Darkest Podcast. As usual, don't forget to like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud. If you're looking for a shirt, you can check us out on Big Cartel. And don't uh, hesitate to send us an email at ageofdarknesspodcast at gmail.com. All right, in this 133rd episode, Darren, what do you got for us in the strategy? Uh, we're back to a Legion review, aren't we? Um, so it's actually going to be the last one we're going to do for a while. We're going to take a bit of a break, but we'll come back to that later. We're going to focus on the Death Guard, which are a, a quite interesting legion. They've always been a very heavy infantry-based legion. And with the changes to version 2, infantry is the king of the battlefield. So it's going to be interesting to see here and what the Death Guard are like. We've got special guests on for that. David is joining us. David recently joined us for uh, part 3 of Wolfsbane. And we persuaded him to come back to talk about his legion. So that's the strategy for this episode. Excellent. After that in Tales of Heresy, we will be starting a new series on the book Titan Death. After reading that, it's, I think uh, we, we want to play some Titanicus. But anyways. Yeah, it's it's really tricky to need to play Titanicus, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. All right. But before we go into the strategy, and we have a few special guests on the show today to uh, talk a little bit more about Adepticon. Because as we know, Adepticon is coming up very quickly. And I'm sure uh, everybody out there uh, that will be attending uh, is, is starting to is starting to have that familiar wave of panic realizing that you did not do all the stuff that you were supposed to do. So it's going to be a busy uh, couple weeks of hobby for most of us. But to create some hype for the event, we will be joined we are joined by uh Zach Paget and Jason Tick who are uh organizing uh some of the more uh, some of the really impressive events uh the slew of events that are at Adepticon this year. Maybe we can start with uh with Zach. Zach, you've been doing this for for many many a year now. It's been a few. Been a few. Okay, so what <laughs> events uh, what events are you doing this year? Um this year I'm doing the Horse Heresy Attrition event, uh, Tag Teams, which is the the doubles uh, event. And then I'm capping it off with uh, Grudge Match, which is kind of a very loose end of the end of the weekend uh, kind of event where it's not going to matter so much uh, like what your loyalty is. It's all those people that have been ducking you for playing games for years, years, JP. Uh, you I don't know what you're talking about. Actually, get a game in. Uh, yeah, sure thing, bud. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, is there the grudge match on the Sunday the, this year? My understanding is we were getting kicked we're out of the any, room. We're not. We're not doing any Sunday. So okay, okay. Uh, full disclosure: I'm I'm the lead uh, organizer for the Horse Heresy events at Adepticon. Um, so a lot of the the overall like pacing or or placing of what what event goes on what day that kind of part of what i do and there are no there you are correct there are no events going on on sunday uh we're at the end of the day after the last event uh, on saturday which runs right around six o'clock or yes right around six o'clock um we're shutting down two-thirds of the nirvana room uh that are actually going to be set up for uh the judging or the award ceremonies for both golden demon and um atomic mass games uh the worthy uh painting competitions we'll still have a third of it which we can have open for open gaming and everything else but uh after that last game on saturday we have to give over two of the two-thirds of the room to get ready for them the next day 
the next morning. That was that was the agreement uh, with getting the Nirvana room back. Okay. Um, and for those that have never been, this might be their first year, or uh, they might just be uh, watching us from afar. Maybe explain the the difference why why I think all of us are kind of excited to get the room back. Well, the Nirvana room is is it is our own ballroom. Um, it's up off the main floor. It's its own thing, really. Um, and in many ways, it's the actual location of the Nirvana room is kind of set away from everybody, even though it's still in the main part of the, the convention center. Um, as soon as you come up those stairs, it is the lone room up there. There's nothing else to uh, to the end of it except for like that that little uh, hallway there. But um, but now the now as of last year, that space just outside the room that's where Golden Demon is. So on the one hand, we don't we don't get as much traffic as we would should we have been back down in uh, the main hallways where like uh, standard 40k was last year, where uh, Legion and Mar- Marvel Crisis Protocol and all those things were. But now we are going to be right off of where all the Golden Demon painting is doing. So we're going to get, I suspect we're going to get a lot of of uh, foot traffic. So. Make sure all your stuff is well painted because you're gonna you're gonna get looked at. Yeah, well, if your stuff isn't uh, well painted, you're gonna get looked at by the heresy community. So, I'm just joking. We're not arrogant. And um, <laughs> we'll side eye you. A lot okay, of side so, eye. Oh, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so for those uh, attending the attrition event, what can what can they expect? What's, what's that that event looking like? Um, that event is well, it's gonna have a lot of people. <laughs> so there's 48 people as of right now. Oh, wow. Uh, space for 56 but um so there's a few places there um it starts off at uh, i believe it's 2500 points uh for the first for the first round and then steadily decreases down to uh 1500 points for for round three so the idea of the narr- the internal narrative of that game is your forces are just taking hits the entire time and they have no way of, of actually uh, uh, re, uh, rearming or uh, uh, reconstituting itself. Actually, that's a nice mechanic. Also, it's, speed it's, up the later games when you start getting tired. It, that's, yeah, we got, last year we got a lot of praise for that thing because it was it was the first event for us for the weekend and a lot of people liked that kind of like, everything got simpler and easier as they, as they went on, mm. so... Yeah, they really liked it. So I thought that, you know what, that was a, it was a big hit. We're going to bring it back. Excellent. I think that's a really great mechanic. Uh, any uh, special uh, rules are, that they're using or is it just like, bare, uh, uh, is it out, out the book? It's it, everything's straight out the book. So the way that I envisioned uh, Horus Heresy Depticon is you're going to have an event that'll pretty much cater to, and cater to anyone. Um you're going to have like the the Phyrix campaign, which is very crunchy, lots of scenarios, lots of different things going on, a lot of moving parts. Um, you're going to have Alex's Fate of Beta Garmin, which is is more of a historical thing, and you're going to have a lot of asymmetrical style tables. You know, you'll have you know singles, doubles, whatever he wants to do over there. Um, but we get a lot of a shocking number of first-time gamers uh, at Adepticon. So, like even last year, I think fully half of our our event goers were for Horse Heresy were first time. So even even in the the last days of uh, first edition, 
you know, we were still getting, we still had a lot of first time uh, attendees for Adepticon Horus Heresy. And I expect, judging from the number of people that have messaged me, we have, we're going to have quite a few of them again this year. Um, so we'll, what I like to do for my events is still give them like interesting uh, game types, but still try to keep it as simple as possible. So if we're just keeping it kind of as much by the book as possible, um, that'll, that'll help them go through. And then as they get more familiar, uh, like next year, if they want to reattend, then they can, they can choose to pick up one of the, the deeper games. So, because we also have a lot of people that actually say that coming to Adepticon is the only gaming weekend that they have because of their schedule. So hitting them with a whole bunch of extra things doesn't help them. And they kind of prefer keeping it simple for themselves. That makes sense. All right. So yeah. we got to, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to yeah. say that because obviously with the other guys we've spoken to about organizing events, they kind of put a limitation on things like special characters. It's, it's a first come first serve. You sign up for your set of special character or with night households, there's limitations on those. Are you saying for your event that, that any anyone can have any special character at any point? So things like night mm, households are allowed at any point? Yeah, actually for for my events, for attrition, uh, tag teams, and well, actually just um, attrition and tag teams, the only, uh, the only restriction really is no special characters. That's the only thing I put in. So I wanted... I just wanted to keep it uh, simple. Wouldn't have to have to sort through any of that extra stuff. Wouldn't have multiple characters, uh, multiple special characters, primarchs and stuff uh, on the table at one time or anything like that. Just it's the it's the old school approach, isn't it? No special characters. That's keep it. it simple. That's it. <laughs> keep it simple. I appreciate that. <laughs> Being a long of a two veteran gamer, I appreciate that sometimes no special characters in there. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my thought. Because you're also with the other the other narratives, they they're gonna have that that thing. They're gonna have the the signups and everything else. I just figured I'll keep this end. And it's the same thing I done I done last year and uh the previous year is just no special characters, keep it, keep it simple with uh basic stuff plus it can also you know it gives people the chance to actually make their custom praetors which and give their own story to the characters that they have excellent so we talked about um you know some of us uh, don't get to play very often um often uh, the the most games i get in all year are, are are at these events and and so there's a lot of people that don't always get to, to play and and that's one of the, the really uh, fun things about uh, these particular weekends is that that's what you're there to do Amongst other things, obviously. Right. Um, but the other thing a lot of people don't get to do, even those that play frequently, is bring out their titans and their super heavies, and and especially now that there's there's more restrictions uh, than there was before. And I think that's where the big ass game comes in. Jason, how you doing, sir? Well, yeah, I'm pretty good, my man. My, pretty good. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. All right. So, can you explain the big ass game? I I feel I think it's in the name. Yeah, pretty much. I mean. So this goes back quite a quite a few years. Uh, the the big games they were just called like the Heresy Apocalypse events, stuff like that. Um, I think we dabbled with the name Big Game before and stuff like that. And then this year we were just like, all right, we're just going to call it the Bag Big Ass Game. Uh, I've played in pretty much every one of them since the beginning uh, when the Grang Legion uh, used to run it and uh, Nate used to run that. Uh, and uh, it, it was always like my favorite event, like even even though I do play some other games besides Heresy uh, when I'm there, uh, dabble with like Infinity and a couple other odds and ends. That was always the event that was like 
you know, the eye catching one. So, um, it, it, you know, and I, myself, I have a couple of Titans and whatnot. So I was able to play a lot of like the bigger stuff like that. So they were always fun too, to me, because while I used to be a more competitive gamer way back in the day, as I've gotten older kids, you know, work, all that stuff, I just can't keep up with that anymore. And I love the idea of this big game that just kind of, you bring out everything and it's kind of GM too, you know, cause Nate used to have like things happen like you'd have volcanic explosions and all kinds of like crazy shit like that happen. So I always loved that because it always kind of like made people, you know, you were disarmed if you were, if you were there and you were kind of like a hardcore player. Right. And I don't, I think those people either, either kind of switched how they played or, or just didn't continue coming to the big game because when you like, you know, use everything to blow off somebody's Titan and then Nate's like, all right, everybody who had their Titan blown off last turn, bring them back to the table. Right. You know, uh, you're like, okay, well that kind of sucks. Right. You know? So, uh, it, it kind of gives that idea of like, we're here just to see awesome explosions and stuff. And that was always what, like, we never had awards for like uh best gamer or anything like that. Like one year I won best loyalist and it was only be, it wasn't because i did anything like spectacular in the game it was just that i had extra templates for everybody extra dice so anybody who needed anything on our side of the table pretty much they could come to me and i had the stuff for them like I, I, pretty much uh whatever they needed so uh there was nothing like you know best general or anything like that it's like most like another word i got was the most uh asinine happenings or whatever there was like some technical latin <laughs> name for it but it, it was like my my knight charged uh, Korax, and Korax had one wound left, and I had like, oh uh, man, a bunch of D hits on him or something like. I can't remember exactly what, but I hit him like multiple times, and I rolled all ones on like the, the damage. So it was just like, all right, you know. That, and then he turned around and blasted the knight and killed it. And then the next turn, you know, so shit like that is what you get awards for in this. It's not it's nothing competitive whatsoever. So. Uh, after, uh, unfortunately Nate passed away, uh, during the pandemic and, um, originally Chris Purdy was going to, uh, kind of take over cause he thought I wanted to continue playing it. Uh, but, um, I told him, you know, I'd help him out or whatever. And then he wasn't able to attend. So they kind of handed it to me and then they just had me kind of keep taking over since then. So it's, uh, you know, like, like the name says, it's just, you're, you you bring as much stuff as you can. There's no, uh, force organization chart. I've had a couple people reach out to me for that. It's, you know, you, you try to bring chunks of thousand points so you, we can kind of like keep things a little even like, um, you know, uh, we keep the players even, uh, but like if, if the loyalists have, you know, 50,000 points and the traders have, 40,000 points, we can stage it a little bit and I can kind of know how many points you have. So I can say, Hey, uh, loyalists, you're going to need, you know, about 10,000 points of your stuff's got to come in, you know, on turn three or whatever. Right. So we can kind of, uh, keep things fair and, and ha have people having a good time. So, uh, this year, um, we, in the past, we, it's getting kind of like loosey goosey where you just kind of set up and start blowing up stuff. And there's very little to do with like objectives and things like that. Um, I've run a bunch of apocalypse stuff here in uh, Milwaukee for some of our locals and some of the Illinois guys come up and I've kind of like gauged like a GM approach to it now. So we have more of like, um, objectives that you're trying to get, but they're not objectives. Like you would usually think with like line troops and stuff like that, where you have to hold a certain thing, score certain points. It's more like, um, this year we're going to have like a big airfield kind of thing. Uh, but instead of like, um, it's like an, an armory basically. And there's going to be a bunch of tanks on that board and stuff. And they're they're Instead of being like tanks engaged, they're objectives. 
And you can kind of, cause the, the theme of the game, sorry, I kind of got ahead of myself. The theme of the game is that the loyalists are striking the traders on their march to Terra. So they're kind of like ambushing a trader uh, armory uh, and trying to, trying to do as much damage or take as much shit out as possible to kind of help the uh, defenders at Terra. So um, we, we've kind of got like an area for Titans. We've got an area that's going to be like kind of a city sort of thing where, where like the main like bases. And then we have like the, like the armory area, which is going to be instead of like your usual four by six, it's going to be the long way, two tables together with the armory kind of in the middle. And it's a race to get to those tanks. And then if you get to those tanks, you can actually take them over and use them in the game. As long as you have an infantry that kind of touches them. And then you also get objective points for that. Yeah, so it's going to be kind of kind of more engaging with with that sort of thing where you're aggressively trying to take over points and stuff of that nature. So uh, you partially answered uh, the question. Uh, the next question I was going to ask is: uh, so it's not just titans; it's not just super heavies. You can bring anything. No, no. In fact, there's so certain boards you can only score points with certain items. So it's going to be like there's going to definitely be a titan field where you know it's going to be more about the, the the kills that go off. Like your objective points will be more uh, titanic units being destroyed and things of that nature. And then there's going to be an area that's like I said, where you're going to try to be using fast items to get to the to the tanks and and uh score the points off that then the then the more base area where it's going to be a city area that's going to be more based on like uh like line infantry and stuff like that trying to score points in that area so that way we have a little bit for everybody so if you are a person who's like man i'm here for the infantry you're you're going to be just as important as if you're a person who's like i'm bringing my three warhounds or my you know (laughs) warlord titan or in in fact we're probably going to have something that's even bigger than a warlord titan i had somebody reach out to me and uh, ask if they could play it. And I said, of course. So, <laughs> Oh, I think we can guess what that might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be quite awesome. So, Oh, that sounds great. I really like this. I was just going to say, I really like the sound of that because it means those of you who've got infantry-heavy lists, and let's face it, 2.0 is very much infantry-heavy, doesn't it? We all seem to be going. You can still go on to a game like this, even if you're not bringing the big super heavies and Lords of War. So I, I like the fact you are catering for that style of player as well, particularly as we've got such a large uptake in heresy in the last 12 months and we've yeah. got a lot of newer players coming in with just more infantry heavy with spartans yeah absolutely yeah exa- exactly that and i and i mean that's that's always kind of the point important part to me is like i want you to be able to play what you like to play in this game because it's a gm game we can kind of help out with that too because it's like you don't want to be on a board where like you point out you're a person who brought like you know bought two of the age of darkness thing and you just have like you know three or four thousand points but it's almost all infantry and spartans and then you go on a table with a warlord you know it's not going to be a great day for you so you're going to be instead probably be on one of the other tables if you have fast you know stuff like rhinos and things like that you're going to be in the middle or if you are just more kind of foot slogging like a death guard style list you're going to be on the furthest table uh you know for that but it's going to be you're still kind of like important because there's gonna, i don't want to give away too much of the game because there's like a fog of war that we go to in this that kind of like i i've got it obviously planned out but like you know i don't want you to know exactly what you're doing until you get to that table that day so did you have to make any adjustments to how super heavies work for it uh, to function with the new edition yeah, absolutely. So right off the bat, we just said, okay, we're not doing reactions at all. And the reason we're not doing reactions is because there was a, a little bit of a discussion of like, are we going to do one reaction per person or one? Re- is it really fair to only have one reaction per side? But if we have one reaction per person, that's going to 
ridiculously slow down the game. And the, and the biggest obstacle to having this game kind of flow well is the time for it. Right. So because the turn turn, uh, the, the thing like Nate kind of always stressed back in the day was everything was like on a 30 minute timer. So once 30 minutes was up, it didn't matter where you were at. If you were in the middle of an armor save or whatever, it, it ended that, that action or whatnot, you know, you didn't, you, you, you lost whatever. So it, it kept things moving. And while you might be salty for like a second that you lost in action, it's really not that big of a deal in the sea of like 50,000 on 50,000 points. Right. So we, we kind of, like, I kind of like struggled with it a little bit of like, how exactly would I be able to like manage these reactions? Cause it's like, okay, now everyone, all the loyalists go, the loyalists move and you've got eight people that are within, you know, the reaction range of this, uh, this guy and another two over here with this guy. And then one over, it, it just be, would become a nightmare to kind of like manage all that. So we said, all right, we're just going to not use reactions at all. I did kind of post that in the Adepticon group too. So everybody knew that they're not going to have reactions. So you don't bring an army or something like that based on, okay, I got this powerful reaction and I have a warlord that adds this other reaction. So I'm going to be able to do all this kind of stuff. Um, we just, you know, there's, there's no point in, in trying to micromanage all that stuff. So we just got rid of that completely. Um, other than that, like I said, there wasn't too much that I had to change other than that. It, it just, um, you know, being able to use different, um, ways to score objectives, obviously, because a lot of people, if you've never played a big game before, you might think to yourself, okay, the only way I can score objectives is line. So I'm going to need to bring like X number of tactical troops, even though I'm bringing all this other big stuff, but you don't have to do that. If you want to play on one of the tables that doesn't need line troops to score points on, and you can be just as effective with just bringing Sakarin for instance, you know, on the middle table, they'll be just as important as line troops are on the furthest table. Excellent. I like that, uh, those adjustments. And I, I think you were right to uh, remove reactions. I, it, it, it would probably get unmanageable pretty quickly. We have like 26 people signed up. So 13 players on a side going Ooh. like, do you have 13 reactions or do you just do one? You know, like, how do you, how do you do that exactly? So I said, fuck it. Let's not do any of it. Yeah. How long is the game? Okay, so this year we're actually we changed it. It used to be a, a real later in the evening game where we didn't get started until like nine o'clock or so, and uh, we would often go to like one a.m., which was pretty cool because like we were the like the latest guys in there, so everybody kind of came to the tables. This time we're starting a little bit earlier, but it's still going to be the one of the later games. We're we'll start gathering at five o'clock. I think uh, we even have it scheduled at five o'clock. But there's no like upper limit to the time period, so we'll probably get started and rolling at around like six o'clock or so because it's going to take a little bit of time to get everybody kind of registered, set up, and all that. And it's not like your usual game, right? Like because in a usual game you've got three thousand points. It's really nice. You have like an army display or something like that. You bring it over, and boom, you're ready to rock. It's a lot different when like last year i had a guy show up he had i think two warlords a reaver you know like all the all these big models a lot of times when you're care when you're traveling with that stuff it takes build time to put those guys back together because not a lot of people travel with their titans fully assembled most a lot of us magnetize it so we got to put the bodies together put the arms together all that stuff and kind of get it set up for deployment um, so we'll probably get started around like six or so. Then the, the plan is like always, we'll have 30 minute turns and we'll go probably about four rounds. Uh, if something's needed, we go a little bit later than that. It's not a big deal, but you're looking at probably about four hours of game. So we'd probably be done around like 10 o'clock, but you know, things kind of run over a little bit. So I'm planning on like 10, 30, 11 o'clock as the upper end. Oh, excellent. Um, can I just, 
can I just ask Jason? Because one of the things about big apocalypse games is there's always that thing of the first turn alpha strike, isn't it? The, the, the side that goes first yep. wipes out a large portion of the other side. How do you manage that in a, a big event like Adepticon? Yeah, so that's pretty much totally on the GM. The you kind of have to do that with the GM side of things. Um, you you kind of have to go. Okay, we have like limited visibility. We have like you know uh, lower B- BS things like that. We've done that in the past. Where like your first round of sh- you know attacked. All right, negative one to hit or something of that nature. Otherwise, like I said before, um, importantly, an alpha strike is a lot less important when units get recycled, right? So like if you blow off uh, someone's five of their knights, like they brought 10 knights and in the first turn, you blew off five of them. That's kind of going to be a big deal if you're playing, you know, uh, 3000 points or whatever. And, and you're actually like kind of trying to manage that when you're playing in the big game and you can go, okay, on the following turn, there's a chance a bunch of your knights are going to come back. And there's, there's kind of like, um, in the past, it was a little bit more random. Now I give players a little bit more control over it so that each side has the, uh, um, a leader, the uh, war master and, uh, the defender of the emperor are like the two people who kind of manage 13 people, right? Cause it's, it's, it's kind of hard for have 13 people kind of all doing their own thing. If we put one person kind of in charge, not, not telling people what to do, but kind of managing the overall team, they'll have like the ability to use certain um, actions to bring certain things back into play. So that like, if a, if a warlord gets blown off the table, they might have a strat, uh, 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 you know, a stratagem that they can use that will bring that warlord back onto the table again. And so that way, like you, like you point out an alpha strike doesn't completely ruin someone's day or go, man, now I don't even want to play the game anymore because my most important model is dead. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. So that, that makes perfect sense what you said there. Fantastic. Thanks. Of course. So as uh, event organizers, will you have will you both have a chance to, to play some games or is it just event organizing? You're playing Zach and via in the Grudge Match, aren't you? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. It's it's subtle. It's oh, are you? Yeah. Is, is it okay? It's about time. I am um, I am I am challenging you. Thing... I, I, we we have we have much you heard it here first. we have much to begrudge. Yes. I don't think that's the um, right use of the that. Only word. Thing... I was going to say, the only thing that I'm actually uh, set to play in is uh, Alex's Fate of Beta Garmin. That's the only thing I have time for. <laughs> so it, it, it's like, uh, I, I don't mind so much that I don't get to play uh, Heresy there. Cause I, uh, uh, I get, I'm really lucky where I get to play Heresy almost every week, if not every other week at home. So I get a lot of games in. So actually I'm playing, um, besides running, running the big game, I'm going to be playing some MCP, some Marvel Crisis Protocol, uh, Bushido and uh, some Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, excellent! Yeah, yeah. So it, it's I I really like the you know running the games. That's that's almost like you know playing a day anyways. Because you, you you got a lot kind of engaged in that anyway. So and I get to kind of GM things. So you know I get to I get to have my a little bit of fun in in that way. Excellent. And now um, all the events are sold out, right? I think we've got spots for like maybe six people in the big game, and that's you know we'll see as we get closer. Big game's like six or seven people. There's, I think, nearly everything has even a space for like one person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's, yeah, most everything is is pretty filled. So yeah, and even even that stuff like that, Zach. I know it's like because of the wait list thing. Because when you go mm-hmm. on, if you go to Adepticon, you can sign, and the events are sold out. You can sign up for a wait list. And what happens is as people like, let's say someone's just like, I can't get to Adepticon or whatever, they end up canceling. Well, if your name comes up, you have five days to respond to that wait list. 
and pick your slot right there. So there might actually be no slots available for some of these things because it's just waiting for people to decide uh, on their wait list. Cause some of these things have like five, six play- player wait lists. And so each person gets like five days after, after their number comes up to be uh, you know, to decide if they want to do that event or a different event. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's a slower process, but it's, it's, you know, they're trying to be as fair as possible with anybody that, uh, that gets in. So. And it's also worth uh, reminding everyone uh, for those that don't attend uh, Adepticon regularly, perhaps it's their first time, or perhaps they haven't even decided they're going to go yet. Time is short, but you can still always get into the actual event, uh, to the actual, um, to the actual convention. Um, the, the, the events uh, uh, tend to go, but uh, go quickly, but uh, you can always uh, uh, jump on. Um, you can always get a badge. So for anybody that's uh, that's that, that that might not be a veteran of Adepticon, you know, um, if there's an event that that you want to attend and that you see it's sold out, it's still worth checking in on at the event because there's always someone that's uh, that's hungover or someone that couldn't make it or someone that's stuck in traffic, and there's there's always a ch- there's always a good chance that you can actually uh, um, uh, participate in the events even if they are technically sold out. Yeah, this is. This is the first year me and uh, like Zach and I are are going to be like running things post pandemic and it's like at its full strength again. But I know like the Grang Legion back in the day, I think I think they were pretty clear like they had never turned away a person that showed up because they always had slots that just didn't get filled. And so they've they've been able to uh, accommodate every single person that's ever come up and wanted to play that day. Yeah, definitely. And the same thing is going to still going to happen here. I'm sure that we'll have some people that don't show up or double book themselves or mm. wake up and they're like, you know what? I'm, I'm too tired. I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> and we'll, we'll make arrangements. That's the entire point of our, yeah. our, our task. Yeah. Tired and not, not hungover. Not no, hungover not at all. At all. That's <laughs> no. <laughs> we all know the hungover people sleep under the tables. That is true. <laughs> they're always, they're always ready to, st- to start up again the next day. <laughs> Just yeah. got to dust them off. <laughs> That's it. Awesome. Uh, speaks for voice of experience. <laughs> uh, Jason, Zach, I'm 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 grateful uh, for for you guys coming on, and 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 I'm I, I'm hyped. The whole goal was to hype up these events, and I'm hyped as hell. And we'll be right back for the strategy. And welcome back to the Strategium. And we have a returning guest. So in our last episode, we had David on to in our conversation about Wolfsbane, showing his idea about the Space Wolves' massive failure of the Drisolian system. And we enjoyed his company so much, we've asked him to come back, but not for Tales of Heresy. This time, David is talking about his Legion of Choice, would you say, David? Yes. Yes, so we are talking about the 14th, the Death Guard. I'm really interested in this one. Um, I'm really intrigued because Death Guard are traditionally quite close allies to the Sons of Horus. So, um, but they're very, very different. So... David, do you want to start taking us through it? And welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me again. It's great to be here. Um, so I love the Death Guard, and um, I think out of all the legions, they're the ones who benefited the most from the changes from 1.0 to 2.0, that whether by design or just really good luck, their rules now really emphasize and promote uh, building lists with them that really capture the feel of the Death Guard. So to start with, the Death Guard are remorseless. That is, is their Legionas Astartes, Legionas Astartes special rule. Um, previously, it made them immune to fear, and they would auto-pass pinning checks. But 
as previously covered many times, a lot of that has been removed from the core system to make leadership more important to degrees of success. And the new remorseless is in front much more powerful. Basically, anything that's not cavalry or artillery does not count as moving for firing heavy weapons or for firing any weapons. And they can ignore any movement modifiers or penalties imposed by terrain or other restrictions. So they no longer auto pass pinning, but if they are pinned, they can still move. Um, vehicles, if they get the crew um, stunned result, can still move. Um, pretty much so long as it doesn't, a unit doesn't use what's called an alternative form of movement. So the example given is activating a jump pack or disembarking from a transport or deep striking, they benefit from this rule. Um, this makes oh. their, yeah, this, this gives them a big edge right up front in terms of heavy weapon usage in infantry and the speed at which they can maneuver their tanks. This is where we get that big change that we're seeing a rule that promotes taking a lot of heavy weapon troops taking uh, troops and having them on the board and not packed into transports so that, for example, your Legion tactical squads will always benefit from Fury of the Legion. Um, so yes. having, having them on the board to constantly pump out bolter fire rather than zipping them around in transports is a big thing. Does that mean you also negate the um, heavy penalty as well? Correct. Correct. So your so your Cataphracti are faster than standard if they run that or, isn't it's not yeah so that's an excellent question and rules as written the answer is yes yeah. um actually it's no i'm sorry that's that's incorrect because this rule okay. goes away when when they run okay so it sorry. doesn't cover for things like cause that's an additional movement type isn't it yes so, yes but yeah i can but it certainly makes a it's a maneuverable army in some ways because it means your heavy weapon squads, your heavy support squads, are always on the move. In, in, indeed, and even your even, um, for example, breacher squads. If for some reason you've gone um, grav guns, which are heavy, you can still move and fire them. Um, heavy uh, support squads, obviously, but also the um, normal support squads. If you decide to take um, Volkite calibers, though personally, I don't know why you would when you can take culverins instead. Um, all of that benefits from this. And you picked the right word there, maneuver. Death Guard are not the fastest army out there, but they're one of the most maneuverable armies out there. And this is why I like to think of them as kind of, um, they're they've got a very low skill floor because you can see from this rule, okay, I take heavy weapons. I put a lot of troops on the board with a lot of firepower. And that's a good way to get into the game and get into Death Guard. Um, but they also have a very high skill ceiling because the game lives and dies in the movement phase and in the maneuvering of, of your resources around the board itself. So the more often you can move in the way you want to move without having to draw any penalty is a great advantage. Yeah. I, it reminds me very much of what the Death Guard were like in Second Edition, forty k, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. where they're moving all the time. It's a steady movement; it's always steady. It's not exactly mind-blisteringly fast, but they will get there. 
Yes, and that's that's exactly what it is. And more of their rules later on will emphasize that idea that the Death Guard deploy and they just pick a rate of movement and they don't stop until you are ground beneath their ceramite boots. That's ex- it, it, it's exactly the way that they used to be described, where uh, especially in um, the old uh, three third edition uh, codex, where. Mortarian's his basic doctrine is the importance of bolter and blade, and 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 just uh, what was so terrifying with the Death Guard is I remember they, 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 that they, they they don't have a, a rallying cry or anything like that. They're quiet. They just move. They keep moving. They never stop, and they just hose you down with bolter fire. That's perfect. Yes, and this is also what that's part of why I said I think this is one of the best examples of the rules supporting the lore and 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 how the Legion should feel on the field of battle. But there's also the side of it that affects vehicles. Vehicles can always go all out and just still fire normally. And what I love about that is in the lore, the Death Guard have the highest percentage of veteran tank crews because pretty much all of them are Terran veterans. And almost all of their Terran veterans came from Albia, which was the same source as the as the Terrans for the Iron Hands. And they originally shared a lot of their fast-moving tank doctrine. Hey, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's it's one of those interesting little things where they they make some mention of it in the um, Forge World books that the Albion people were like the intake for the death for well the Dusk Raiders and the at the time unnamed Tenth Legion, um, and brought a lot of their um, strategic doctrine with them because they had so impressed the Emperor. So I like mm. I like how they've that by having this rule also apply to tanks, you end up with this this thing that kind of also makes sense. And from a lore perspective, Death Guard, if you are playing tanks, awesome. But most Death Guard players don't come to Death Guard to play tanks. They come for the infantry. So True, it's kind it of balanced give, out. I was going to say, it does give you that option though, doesn't it? So yes. I know it's naturally leaning towards infantry. I think that's why I've always seen Death Guard players lean towards it but now it gives you that additional option if you want to go down a different path especially with all the new plastic vehicles exactly yeah like i also i also uh, i also love that uh, the uh, the legion that's most described as uh, uh, being deathly pale uh comes from the british isles <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's a nice touch i'm sure there's an inside joke somewhere in there well, so this is actually very interesting because out of all uh, out of all the legions, the Death Guard, Barbarous specifically, I haven't really been able to find as much of a kind of real world equivalent because with a lot of legions, you can kind of be like, oh, okay, they're based off of pick a culture from history. Um, the, the Barbarous, not so much, but I, I did some some research and um, a number of the Terran. Uh, Death Guard members from the original Dusk Raiders, their names are vaguely or or seem to be influenced by uh, Bosk, uh, Bosk culture. Really? So, yeah, yeah. It, which was that was my response. I was like, well, this is unexpected. Um, but I guess you know, with with the way the world changes, you know, thirty thousand years into the future, and after a few dozen, you know, nuclear apocalypse apocalypses, uh, <laughs> you know. I guess the the British Isles are now pretty much the British Plains that eventually converge onto the Iberian Plains. That's intriguing. <laughs> That's nice. 
No, it is. It's it's a nice little touch, though. I yeah. do like that. I, I do think that. As an aside, there's um. Um, I, 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 there, there's some horrible 19th century uh, uh, race science that was trying to justify why the Irish were inferior, even though they're northern. And uh, they came up with this idea called um, uh, I, uh, Ibero-Irish. The idea was the Irish are inferior because the the in, quote unquote intermixed with um, survivors of the Spanish uh, the Spanish Armada, right? Well, this I is a, this, this, this is actually true that a lot of survivors of the Spanish Armada was the, the the Armada was destroyed off the coast of Ireland, and a lot of them wind up in Ireland and, and continue to live there. Um, and the idea is that that point that, that quote unquote degraded uh, the Irish blood and, 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 and then that, that justified um, uh, Irish inferiority. It's just weird stuff in the 19th century. That's really yeah. weird because some of the Irish foundation myths suggest about colonization from the, from the Iberian peninsula. Really? Yeah. That's intriguing. Yeah. So that's re- anyway. We're getting way off. Track. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. It just reminded me of this ridiculous 19th century race science, quote yeah. unquote, science. That because uh, I, I, I knew some folks when I was younger from Ireland, and they used to say that that was the whole like myth of like the Black Irish of like if someone had black hair and um like browner, darker eyes, it was signs that like that was what what that was the reason why. I really, really find it intriguing, like where they sort of place these uh, these legions, because when they were originally developed in 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 the late '80s, I mean, clearly they they hadn't thought that far ahead. No, not so I, I, I'm 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 always intrigued. Anything that comes from uh, from old Earth and 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 sort of the development of that storyline, even though it's still so patchy and purposefully patchy, because you're not because they don't know either in universe they don't know mm-hmm. um, like a lot of the details of the Age of Strife. So that's really really interesting. Yep. And and as far as names are concerned, I never got the Basque uh, reference. I I just figured they Again, put it, uh, they they put O R at the end of every name and lots yeah. of G's. And that was because that's the thing is that when you look at when you look at the barbarous names, it's really just like someone was like, we just want we just want names that sound like you have to like gargle phlegm, yeah. which you know fitting. But then when you have like Nathaniel Garrow and um, some of the other Terran veterans, and that's kind that's those are the names that I had to look into. Those end up being like like they like Garrow is Basque, whereas the others are just sound similar. Yeah, that's really so. interesting. I uh, um, Death Guard is one of my is probably my first love as far as Chaos uh, Legions are concerned. And I had a uh, a Plague Marine army uh, for Second Edition, um, or no, it would have been Third Edition. Um, and uh, uh, the, the 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 main character was Belphegor, which I thought it's it's, it's an old demon. It was also a really mm-hmm. good uh, uh, black death metal band that I really liked in the nineties. Um, so I named it Belf- uh, named Belphegor, and I thought that was a perfect Death Guard name, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, but then, Bel- then the- but there is an actual character in the Siege of Rack series. There's a Be- this character called Belphegor, but he's a Dark Angel. That is not a Dark Angel name. Come on. Well, I, I could, I could, I could go on a very intense <laughs> rant about the treatment of the Dark Angels since like 2003. Um. And and some of the naming conventions that kind of push certain uh, this, narratives. I was going to say this does sound like a future segment, doesn't it? Yeah, naming I mean, conven- I, I, I would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think we need to save this because I think some yeah, of the, the naming has come out. I mean, especially in some more recent 40k law books where they're putting uh, tables of names into codexes and so on. Yeah. 
yeah that, that's really interesting but i think we'll save that for another segment should we get back to the dev guy yeah yes okay well, i apologize for derailing so, the strategy I'm not, what I do. not a problem um so that's their that's the big change to their legion rule leadership is a thing again but instead they gain this massive benefit in terms of pretty much being always able to move at a steady pace fire all their weapons maximize their guns some of the other stuff from their old Legion rules will show up again in slightly different forms. For example, in their Legion advanced reaction, Mortarion's warlord trait, some of the rights of war. Um, so speaking of advanced reactions, they have remorseless advance. So they are remorseless. They have remorseless advance. Someone gets a cookie for that naming. Um, so this advanced reaction may be made once per battle. Pretty standard. It is a shooting phase reaction. And it is when an enemy unit declares a shooting attack targeting a friendly unit under the reactive player's control, blah, blah, blah. One of the weird things is they've FAQ'd when the return fire reaction occurs. Um, this has not been FAQ'd with it. So it's not- the same. It's similar with the Death Leader's reaction from Sons of Horus. That's still not being officially FAQ'd. We're, we're, we play it the same as return fire just mm-hmm. to keep that consistency going in. But like you say, it's a return. It, it's a shooting phase reaction, which once again, isn't specified when. Yeah. Um, and this one in particular benefits from, from being able to declare it, not when the shooting attack is declared, but after the saving throws have been made, because half of the rule is the unit gets feel no pain four plus, which is really nice. Um, this is the only place in the overall generic Death Guard rule set where the idea that the Death Guard are tougher comes into play. Um, otherwise, they're pretty much average Marines within the 30k rule set. Um, so the unit gets feel no pain against the shooting attack. They automatically pass any morale check or pinning tests that they have to make because of the shooting attack. And then once it's been entirely resolved, they can make a move in any direction up to seven inches and obeying all the normal rules for making a move. So it's got a threefold effect. You get feel no pain for plus, you ignore morale or pinning tests um, as a result of the shooting attack, and you get to make a move. It's a lot in one advanced reaction, but it's yeah. re- and it's really good. That, I was going to say, that's considerably better than Death Dealers. Um, yeah. But it's, it's an interesting one. It links back to that maneuver element again. That mm-hmm. we mentioned with the uh, with your legion of stasis rules, doesn't it? Yes. And it can be in any direction. Correct. And so that's you could part use of it. it to, you could use it to close down the distance. You could use it to open up distance before you potentially get charged. Mm-hmm. You could use it to shield yourself behind another unit. And that Ooh. goes back to the idea that Death Guard have that low skill floor, but that high skill ceiling. That players who can maximize the benefits of remorseless advance are going to really see that payoff. Does the feel no pain stack if you've got another one, or is it just a base feel no pain for? It is just a base feel no pain for. Um, Because as far as I can tell, I've not been able to find anywhere in the rules where feel no pain, you can get it to lower than a four plus. No, no, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. So I, I think that's probably a purposeful decision because I think it would be oppressive. Ooh. Yes, you could. I'm listening. So if you if you could potentially use that reaction on a tactical squad, which is within six inches of an objective, 
mm-hmm. heart of the legion gives you plus one to feel no pains I, it does but i think there might be a caveat on that one moment because i want to i you're you're right it's the only one it, I can, it's the only one i can think of because that's how you normally yeah. get your, your apothecaries to drop down to four plus one objective unless it's to a maximum of four plus does it unless it specifies that in the rules no it is it is very specific yeah yeah and i was just saying that i think that that the one place where this rule would be oppressive is a 20-man tactical blob on an objective yeah so yeah you could get it you would end up with if any model has a variant of the feel no pain special rule increase the value in brackets by one of those rules by plus one while the unit has at least half its models within six inches of an objective so yeah you could that would become a feel no pain three plus for tactical squads on an objective that is so good yeah I, and that's um, very death guard as well isn't it yes yeah. oh yeah yeah if they take an objective it's going to take everything uh to, uh to root them off or to, to, yes. to get them off yes um in, in dig that, them out is what i was trying to go for in that case i feel like that is a worthwhile trade-off because you're not really going to be benefiting from the movement aspect of the advanced reaction because you're not going to want to move off the objective so i feel like that's actually a pretty good trade-off yes mm. so nice i, I like yeah. it it's a very it's a, like you say it's obviously useful but there's a lot more tactically you could do with that with a bit of careful consideration and experience of using that reaction mm-hmm. all right so warlord traits so i'm gonna i'm not i'm not gonna go in order here i'm i'm, I'm going to uh do the the two that are not rant inducing and then i'm gonna do the last one with a little, <laughs> little rant so the first one uh the reaper's visage traitor only um it's fear without being fear an enemy unit with at least one model within 12 inches of the warlord must reduce the leadership of all models in that unit by minus two whenever making a leadership test, a morale check, or attempting to regroup, unless the unit also includes at least one model with the independent character special rule or the Primarch unit type. And it gives you a, uh, an additional reaction in the assault phase. I really like this because it's not fear, so it affects most units, even if they're fearless or stubborn or what have you. But you can negate it with the presence of an independent character or your Primarch. Um, this is the first rule that we have, which starts to show one of the other aspects of playing Death Guard, which is they are very much a rock, paper, scissors army. That you're going to have units which will do very well when they're attacking and dealing with their complementary unit. And in this case, we're seeing, okay, you're going to take your warlord and you want them wherever the other enemy warlord isn't. That the Death Guard do not fight fair, they do not fight honorably, no challenges, none of this picking out the other um, Praetor and fighting him hand-to-hand. It is push something else in his direction, take your warlord, send it after their infantry blobs yeah i like that i like that one i like the fact it bypasses so many of those rules that negate things like fear and, and bits like that as well and if you are feeling particularly saucy about wanting to play in the realm of the morale um fun fact about the death guard their only sworn brother allies are the night lords so an allied detachment with some terror squads and some of their tokens of judgment, 
you know, give them give them some um, give them some uh, rotor cannons. You can have a lot of fun uh, giving people, you know, minus minus three, minus four to their leadership, and uh, just running around with that. Yeah, that's evil, that's... and I love it. Yeah. Um, everyone makes jokes about like the um, eschaton imperative and the dark angels being like you know legion war crime. No, no, this is you, if you want the war crime brothers, you go death guard with an allied <laughs> contingent of night lords because then not only are you salting the earth, but you are also flaying the population. Yeah, yeah, I like that. All right. Um, next up, blood of barbarous. Um, any hits with rending. Murderous strike, poisoned, or fleshbane allocated to a warlord with this trait, or any model uh, with the Legion as Astartes Death Guard special rule in a unit he joins, only gain the benefit of those special rules on a d6 roll of a 6. And it gives you an additional reaction in the shooting phase. So this one is good. I think I think Reaper's Visage is a lot better, but this one doesn't have the traitor-only tag. Um... With the amount, this is what you would give your warlord if you were planning on pushing him in the direction of the enemy's elites, because that's where you tend to find things like rending and murderous strike. Poison yeah. fleshbane not going to come up as much, honestly. No, and I think, well, I think the other not issue, but I think the other challenge I have with that warlord trait you just mentioned is most rending and murder strike is on a six anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, there's not much rending five or rending four out there, is there? So exactly. If it and this is the this is kind of one of those things where I, I don't know if they were writing this at a time where they quite hadn't fully internalized the new rules, but I really wish this worked against breaching. Like that's yeah. that's that I feel like if you could have your warlord and a unit, which now breaching only happens on a six. There, there's a much more obvious benefit against, for example, plasma. But alas, um, honestly, if you're looking for something that gives you an extra shooting reaction, I would say probably just go stoic defender from the the core rules, um, rather rather than this, because being able to give a unit pinning with their shooting, I think, is probably more valuable. But again, you never know. There is a decent amount of rending and murderous strike out there. Um, some of it's on five pluses. Again, it, it really depends on what your local group tends to play. If you run, if you're running into a lot of rending and murder strike or poison in your fleshbane, consider blood of barbarous. Otherwise, between that and Reaper's Visage, Reaper's Visage is really the way to go. Um, yeah. Last up, we've got Witch Hunter, and Witch Hunter is the one I dislike. Um, I, I actively. I, Unlike Blood of Barbarous, it's like, okay, Witch Hunter I actively dislike because Witch Hunter would have been amazing as a special Delgadis upgrade. Like, like more everyone, everyone who's been aware of Mortarion knows Mortarion has an absolute hatred for Psyker's witchcraft sorcery. Um, it is his big red button to piss him off. So I could totally understand a Delgadis Witch Hunter that would have this what is a warlord trait just as it's like console special, sorry, not Delgadis, console, uh, a console witch hunter with this being their console special rule, but instead it's a warlord trait and it just kind of takes up space. So here it is. Warlord gains plus one toughness and weapon skill when locked in combat with any unit that includes at least one model with the Psyker subtype. 
all friendly units composed entirely of models with the Death Guard Legion as Astartes rule, and at least one model within 12 inches of the Warlord gaining 6 plus invulnerable save against any hits inflicted by a psychic weapon, psychic power, or powers of the warp. And then you also get an additional assault phase reaction. There's just not enough psychic stuff in the game at the moment for this to be worthwhile for a Warlord trait. I don't no, know. I, yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe eventually when Demons of the Ruin Storm finally gets its PDF, maybe if for some reason the Psyker subtype is scattered liberally about. I was about to say the same thing. I'm surprised that it didn't include demons in here. It's, yeah. it's just possible that uh, maybe the demon rule will include, um, you know, they all have Psyker or something. Yeah. Um, is that a loyalist only trait? No, and that's that's the well, and that's it. I wouldn't say that's the interesting thing. Interesting thing is there is no loyalist only warlord trait, and I feel like the if witch hunter had something different, that would have been a good opportunity for one. As it is, Mortarion really hates witchcraft. It's one of his. It's one of the things that makes him a massive hypocrite as the as the heresy continues. Um, it's also why one of the reasons why. Callus Typhon splits off from the main legion is because he can't be in the presence of Mortarion and continue to develop his his goals and pacts with Chaos because Mortarion would kill him. Yeah, it's it's really odd to treat, isn't it? I mean, yeah, because if it was loyalist only, you could understand it because you'd be going up against Thousand Sons, obviously against possibly against yeah. demons as well. But as a neutral trait. And that's that's it, you know it leads to one of the greatest verbal smackdowns in the entire series when Jagged Icon just rubs Mortarian's face in this hypocrisy, um, but like and that's that's the whole thing like this screams loyalist, but in many and in many ways it does reflect that Mortarion out of all the traitor Primarchs who side with Horus, his legion is the one that changes the or the portion of the Death Guard that remain with Mortarion change the least compared to where they were at the end of the Heresy. The Iron Warriors don't change much, but they do get more bitter, and they still continue to be like, we feel like sometimes Horus doesn't appreciate us either. Whereas Mortarion is very much Horus's hatchet man, that he really believes that the Emperor is a tyrant, and tyrants must be overthrown. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's been that. That's very clear when you, especially when you look at, for example, Black Book Four, um, which goes into the hashtag best campaign. Book. Ha- hashtag best book. Yeah, but they they often comment that the Sons of Horus from the Death Guard are the two most closely aligned legions and and campaign. We see in Vengeful Spirit, for example, mm-hmm. as well with Battle of Moloch. Um, yeah, I mean, out of all of, yeah, out of all of the. Retreat to Primarchs, Mortarion is the one who's most behind the ideals of the heresy. The original ideals of the heresy. Yeah. Exactly. Like it's and and that pretty much stays true all the way up until it doesn't. Um the right up until Mortarion sells his soul, basically. But we'll get to we'll get to that in a few months. Oh yeah, that'll that's that's a whole different story. All right, so yeah, um, so one of the interesting things though, again, going with this idea that the Death Guard pick a pace and then stick with it, none of their Warlord traits give a movement reaction. It's it's assault phase, assault phase, and shooting phase, um, which is why, um, 
If you want the extra movement reaction, you got to go into the generic ones. But honestly, I don't think you need more than one for Death Guard the vast majority of the time. You, you, we'll talk about this as we get into the, actually, this is a good transition to talk about their rights of war. They have two different rights of war. And the first one is very much the, the Death Guard march up and dare you to charge them. Um, they are similar to the Salamanders. They are a legion that benefits from close range firefights. Um, unlike the Salamanders, they have ways to punish you a lot when you charge other than just flamer hits. So right of war, the reaping. This is this. I, I love it, but at the same time, there is one massive flaw with it. So first off, the positives. Veteran squads can be taken as troop choices. Heavy support squads can be taken as non-compulsory troop choices. Any model chosen um, that has the Legion as Astartes Death Guard and the character subtype can take rad grenades for 10 points. So veteran squads as troop choices, that is a um, that's a trap. Uh, you benefit more from having cheaper tactical squads that benefit with Fury of the Legion to get more bolter shots with sergeants that have rad grenades than you do from having more elite veteran units. And then the non-compulsory troop squads, heavy support squads. What's not to love? And neither of those gain line, do they? No. No, so you also trade line. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, So I think that the veteran squad thing is a trap. You And also, if you just go all in on heavy support squads, the points add up real quick. Um, so a good balance of tactical squads, um, and later on I'll talk a little bit about some other troop options that work very well, but tactical squads with a scattering of heavy support squads don't just go all in on heavy support squads. Um, but that also frees up your heavy support slots for some other interesting options that you might not otherwise take as a Death Guard player who wants those heavy support squads. So this is going to be where you're going to see more of, okay, I've got slots available to take things like tanks, to take things like Leviathans, and stuff like that. Um, The fact that all of your... Okay, Caveat, not all of your squads, we'll get to that later when we talk about Death Shroud, but most of your squads can take rad grenades. Um, This is why you become this amazing anti-charge, get in their face and just stare them down army. The rad grenades lower toughness, and the way that it works is that rad grenades kick in during um, Overwatch. So when someone charges you and you want to overwatch them, they have minus one toughness. And they affect instant death thresholds as well, which is another important factor. Indeed. So huge benefit there of you're going to want a warlord trait that lets you overwatch twice. So again, Reaper's Visage gives you that extra assault phase response. Um, The limitations. You can't run. You can't use any move reactions except Remorseless Advance. And you can't do any special form of, of deployment, so no deep striking, no flanking, no subterranean assault, none of that. So again, 
this is the one thing that I don't like about this right of war is that in a game where movement is so important, giving up even just that one reaction and giving up even the possibility of like, oh, it's the last turn and I just have to get that one unit onto that one objective that's a little bit out of my movement range. It won't matter until it really matters. Um, which again is why I think of the Death Guard as having that high skill ceiling. Because if you can maximize the benefits of the reaping while avoiding the downsides of those limitations, it's really strong. Yeah, I mean, and this is also the archetypal Death Guard right of war. It's one we most commonly see, isn't it? It it was in the previous edition. In the in in 2.0, where actually I'm at least I'm seeing a lot more people using creeping death. Um, which is their other unique right of war um, okay. in part. Um, the Creeping Death one is traitor only. So again, if you're going Reaper's Visage, it pairs nicely with that anyway. And it it doesn't have any it doesn't have any real downsides, whereas the Reaping has some very specific downsides. The only problem I'm seeing with with Creeping Death, well, let me let me give the breakdown of what it is first, and then we'll I'll continue. Okay, so. Creeping death. This is the one. This is this is right of war. War crimes. Cre- uh, death guard edition. All models in a detachment with this right of war that have the Legionis Astartes death guard automatically pass any dangerous terrain tests they are called upon to make. All models in the deployment zone of a detachment using this right of war gain the shrouded six plus special rule, and the entire deployment zone of a detachment using this right of war counts as difficult terrain and dangerous terrain. All zones of area terrain on the battlefield are counted as dangerous terrain. Grave Warden Terminator squads can be taken as non-compulsory troop choices. And the limitations being it is Traitor Allegiance only, and you have to include a Siege Breaker Legion console. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. So, so I have to take Phosphates and my thud guns. Exactly. Well, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Yes. So. The big benefit that this is why I think we're seeing Creeping Death more often now is there's no obvious downside and it's very clear that, oh, being shrouded six up in my deployment zone, ignoring difficult, ignoring dangerous terrain, and then because we're already Death Guard, we ignore any movement penalty from difficult terrain, and then all the area terrain becomes dangerous, that's really upfront in your face obvious benefits. It's, it's a trade to equivalent of Eskaton imperative, isn't it? It, well, it's kind of the inverse. The Eschaton Imperative makes the middle of the board dangerous terrain. This makes your deployment zone dangerous terrain. It would be interesting seeing those two against the table at the same time. Yes. Um, from what I've from what I've heard from anecdotal from other people who have done that matchup, it favors the Dark Angels because of the plus one to wound bonus they get when things are within dangerous terrain. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, it's still not a bad right of war, though, is it? Because no, no. In fact, it's it's very good. And this is actually one of the main problems that I'm seeing when people are using it nowadays, is they see the shrouded, they see the your deployment becomes dangerous terrain, and that's only going to affect the enemy. And this leads into this kind of weird thing where Death Guard are an army of maneuver, but they benefit from having a lot of heavy weapons. So if you give someone an army list that has a lot of heavy weapons and they're getting benefits from their deployment zone, that army of maneuver becomes a gunline army 
but it's not as good a gunline army as actual gunline armies that have gunlight army benefits. So there's yes. something of a there's something of a trap here. And that leads us to, as you said, Phosphex and Thud Guns. A lot of people don't have a lot of Phosphex because in 1.0 it was absolutely too much. It was um, ungentlemanly. Let's, let's should we go should we yes. go for that? Yes, it was ungentlemanly to use Phosphex. They've really fixed that, I feel, in this edition. Um that unless you're using Aquator Bombards, which are remarkably expensive both in points and money, have an extremely large footprint for what you get footprint on the table for what you get. Every other Phosphex is now AP3 and it's a small template. Um so you're dealing with um if you're using you, you have to you have the phosphex bombs from your siege breaker he carries around some phosphex grenades and then if you have like for example rapiers you take those you can upgrade them to have phosphex and now you've got a 12 to 24 inch range platform strength 4 ap3 fleshbane crawling death or crawling flame lingering death and that's the key thing here is that the creeping death right of war is all about board control and impacting your your opponent's ability to maneuver how they want. So you take um, one unit of rapiers and one leviathan with a phosphex bombard, and that gives you four small templates, not even necessarily to cause casualties, but to create areas of difficult terrain outside your deployment zone to channel the enemy where you want them to be and block off objectives so that, that you know, you can walk straight through that phosphex and you don't care, but it helps detract from the enemy trying to get to your units, keeping them at that close but not in assault range yet, and keeping them away from objectives. So if you really want to maximize creeping death, you can't just take an army that you have from 1.0 and just drop it in. You do actually need some sources of phosphex. And I think just either, you know, one unit of rapiers and a leviathan, I think that's really all you need. And I think that is not going to be too overbearing to most opponents. No, I agree with you. Phosphex, I mean, even in the, the very last FAQ we had for version one, when they introduced some playtest rules for Phosphex, it toned it down. Version two has very much toned Phosphex down. It, I mean, it's still unpleasant. Let's, let's get it right. It's still very yeah. unpleasant. It's still going to hurt you. But it, it's... It's more gently, if we want to go back to a phrase we were using mm -hmm. earlier, isn't it? But I, I like what you're saying, and I do agree with you. The board control with, with things like Phosphex, to a lesser degree, Grav as well, although that's less reliable unless you vehicles, yeah. um, is also useful. Anything that can channel movement and control the movement phase even more is only going to lead you to an advantage. You can set up kill channels, you can set up charge zones that we, you can get opponents into yeah i agree um and it, what it's like you were saying earlier it's obviously very simple to use but a skilled player can really capitalize on those advantages yeah um and particularly it also pairs well and this is a good segue into their special equipment it pairs well with there's a trader only Again, this is a trader-only right of war. There's a trader-only equipment upgrade that you can give to, to characters called um, Toxin Bombs, which basically mean anyone charging the unit 
have to do a dangerous terrain test. But on a on a roll of they roll a, a die for everyone in the unit. Any ones they get cause wounds, and I think it's you can. There's only, no armor save. Yeah, it's only the only thing you can do is invulnerable saves. No yeah. armor, no cover, no damage mitigation. Only invulnerable saves. So you have someone who's like, okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna, you know, the 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 lingering death phosphex marker is on the board. I'm gonna char. I have to charge through that to get to your unit. And on my way in, um, I'm I have to do the dangerous terrain test for moving through the phosphex. I'm at minus two inches to my charge because of the phosphex. I then also have to test against the toxin bombs, and you might be overwatching as well. It, it's that cascading effect, and I, this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, isn't it, JP? About it's the combination of rules now. You, with a lot of these legions, you can't just look at their rules in isolation. You have to look at this piece of war gear with this rule, or this piece of or this unit alongside this piece of war gear, and look at those really strong interactions. It's not Magic the Gathering levels of interaction, but the most skilled players or the people who really know their army list inside out who, for want of a better word, specialise in playing that Legion, are going to get a lot more play out of it and a lot more effectiveness out of it. Yeah. So How expensive are those toxin bombs? 10 points. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Well, not for the amount of damage you could potentially cause. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you only need to kill one tactical to get your points back. Correct. Yeah, they're, and, they're, they're worthwhile, to say yeah. the least. One thing of note for the old hands for, for Death Guard players from 1.0, if you haven't kind of grasped it already, the Reaping and the Creeping Death both really preserve the feel of those rights of war from 1.0, but there's enough of these mechanical differences that how people approach it is a little different. Um, particularly particularly Creeping Death, because Creeping Death used to be terrible. Now it's really good, and it gets even better if you know what you're doing. Um it's similar to a lot of Legion rights of war, haven't we? The ones that were really good in V1 have been toned down a little bit, and the ones that weren't so effective have really gone up. Yeah. I mean, I can see that with um, Log March and Black Raven. Black Raven is now amazing, whereas before it was really challenging to use. And Log March is now much more for maneuver game as opposed to the, the strengths it had in V1. Mm-hmm. So we, we, the Death Guard do seem to be following that same pattern. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, so um, the Death Guard Armory, uh, which, again, very, very similar. On one hand, they got some boosts. On another hand, they got some not-so-good not so good stuff happening. So their big special thing is Alchem Munitions. They love their chemistry. They love it so much. And what's not to love about a flamer that not only is fire, but also probably some form of metal and acid and who the hell knows what in a delightful package. So all of their flame weapons, um, hand flamers, flamers, heavy flamers, um, built-in heavy flamers, flamestorm cannons can be replaced with an alchem version, which are pretty much exactly the same, except they have the additional benefit of being fleshbane, so they're wounding um, infantry, they're wounding anything that's not a vehicle on a 2+, though cyborgs and dreadnoughts, you have to re-roll it if you successfully wound. But they also have Gets Hot. None of them are AP3. I don't care if I roll a 1, I will probably make my armor save. 
Yeah, I mean, did you say Fleshbane 2? Um, yeah, because a fl- Fleshbane is you wound on a 2+. plus. Yeah, I mean, that's that's phenomenal, isn't it, really? Yes. I mean, going against things like Automata, Dreadnoughts, I mean, you're not going to penetrate the armour on Dreadnoughts very easily, but are you going to want to charge a 10-man squad of heavy uh, tactical support flamers? Nope. And, and again, or heavy here's, support flamers? Here's, here's the thing. Considering the Death Guard special rule for Remorseless, not having that modifier on Ballista skill with heavy weapons, you're not going to want flamers and heavy flamers in those units that you just mentioned, Aaron. Where you're going to want these are your combi flamers and in your Dreadnought Fists. Yeah, because you can still shoot those every turn, can't you? Exactly. Um, and th- it, it makes them so much... I mean, flame weapons were already good against anything that wasn't a Space Marine. Now this actually makes them even worthwhile against Space Marines because you're wounding so much easier. And at the end of the day, a quantity of wounds has a quality all its own. Absolutely, yeah. Like, being able to lay down a template and hit like four to seven marines and then wound them on twos in addition to whatever firing that is going on really nice um so there is i think some math to be done um that this used to be shred it used to be reroll to wound um if this had just been poison three plus a three plus statistically is actually worse than rerolling fours to wound but if i remember correctly the math on a two plus to wound is slightly better than re-rolling force to wound. How does it get top work? Is it just a single dice roll? Yep. It will be, won't it? Yeah, it'd just be yep. a single dice roll per person shooting. So that's doable. Yeah. So if you've got a unit of five to ten cataphractite terminators who fire their their comp their alchem combi flamers, okay, roll five to ten dice, any ones, you now have a two plus save. And then you lay yeah. down a number of templates. And you're only going to lose a wound. Yep. <laughs> You're going to lose a win from that, aren't you? So, yeah. So, yeah, they're, um, they're tasty. I, I almost, again, I continue to feel slightly bad for Salamander players. They get Dragon's Fire, but at the end of the day, this is just better, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but to be fair, Salamanders get stuff from Melis from Plasma as well, don't they? So, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so the toxin bombs I've already mentioned in regards to the the rights of war, but basically character subtype you can take toxin bombs for ten points. Enemy unit declares a charge that includes one or more units with toxin bombs. Roll a d6 for each model. On a roll of a one, um, they suffer a wound. No armor save, no cover save, or damage mitigation. You can only make invul- invulnerable saves. Very nice. Yeah. Um, oh, so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't count as dangerous terrain. It's you have to roll a model. So if you were immune to dangerous terrain, as mm-hmm. things like Dreadwing are, for example, they, they still, still have, have to, to roll for this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So and it's one of those where it's like dangerous terrain, but it's and this is we see this with with Visage of the Reaper. It's like fear, but it's not fear, and that's good. Yeah, because so then you're like, still able to target units, aren't you? So. Mm-hmm. Mm. Nice. Yep. Power scythes. <sighs> this this sounds might like a be big sigh here. Yeah. This I've got, I have an unpopular opinion about power scythes. They look really cool. They used to be much better. 
Power Scythe used to be a replacement for Power Fists, and they would be slow, but you could do a Reaping Blow that would, you would get a number, it would, they were unwieldy, and they had Sweep Attack, that you could, instead of attacking with your normal attacks characteristic, you could make an attack for every modeling base contact. So you could end up with a lot of attacks. But again, unwieldy. They've changed power sides. They are no longer a power fist equivalent. They're now just power weapon equivalent. So anytime you can, you have a, anyone with a character subtype, they can exchange a power weapon for the power scythe. The power scythe is strength plus two, AP three, melee, two-handed, rending six plus, reaping blow one. So... Reaping Blow 1 just means that if you're in base-to-base contact with more than one model, you get one extra attack. Right. It's two-handed. So you could have a Power Scythe, or you could take a Power Maul and any form of pistol and get the same number of attacks that you would get from having Reaping Blow, except all the time. The only thing you lose is Rending 6+. Yeah. Considering that most units, this is not a quantity weapon, right? A lot of times we're really talking like sergeant upgrade type stuff. Um, a single sergeant with rending six plus, and he's only getting the extra attack if he's in base to base with more than one person. So if he gets challenged or ends up in a challenge in any way, he's not good, probably not benefiting from reaping blow. You're better off taking a power maul and you automatically come with a bolt pistol anyway. Yeah, and a big. Um, um, like a trench club is uh, very appropriate for the Death Guard too. So um, Yes. I love yeah. the power yes. I've, I've got software. Did you say it's unwieldy? Um, it used to be. That that oh, was so the exchange. It's not unwieldy anymore. That was okay. the exchange. It okay. used to be unwieldy, but you could get an obscene amount of attacks. Yeah. Now it's not unwieldy, but honest. Okay, so the, the ones who benefit from power sides are Terminators because Terminators don't have pistol options. Yeah. Um, so there, the two-handed part doesn't matter. The reaping blow, you'll benefit again, unless you're maybe unless you're in a challenge. So it's good with terminators, not so good with your basic infantry sergeants. There's a caveat here about when you take them in numbers, like anything that you take in numbers. Now the rending six plus is like rending six plus, and you only get three attacks. Hooray! Rending six plus, and you're making fifteen to twenty attacks. Hooray! And that, but that's it. They don't have it. They don't have an extensive armory compared to some of the other legions. That that's. Nice and straightforward. It's what, it, to be fair, it's some for best traitor armory. There's a, apart from word bearers, um, and I worry, is funny enough, not many of the other traitor legions get a large armory. Yeah, I think the where we see it the most are the the variations on Chernobyl and gladiator weapons with the Emperor's Children, with the World Eaters. And then all the weird psychic weaponry with the Thousand Suns. Yeah. Um, all right. So next up, special units. So in Liber Hereticus, the Death Guard have two special units, uh, Grave Wardens and Death Shroud. They also have a few in the uh, Legendary um, update, and they've got one from the Exemplary Battles. Um, so starting with the ones in Liber Hereticus, We've got the Grave Warden Terminator Squad. These guys are awesome. They are the meat and potatoes for your Terminator forces. Because 
going back to that that differentiation, Death Guard are about maneuver, not about gun line. You should be moving and approaching the enemy. Um, you do eventually want to grind them down at close range and then finish them up in assault. Grave Wardens really emphasize this. So they are Cataphracti Terminators, with all of that, what that entails, standard Cataphracti Terminator stats. But they come with Power Fists, and they come with Assault Grenade Launchers. The Assault Grenade Launchers only have 18-inch range. So you can start them out in a transport. Um, they can take a Proteus as a dedicated transport. Um, or you can walk them up the board, because again, eventually you do want to be in that 18-inch range. And those... They have two options for grenades. They've got crack grenades, which are your standard strength six, AP four, assault two. Cool. If you have to fire these at vehicles, use the crack grenades, but you don't want to fire them at vehicles because you have toxin grenades. Toxin grenades, they're strength one, but you don't care because they have a poison three plus. They're AP five, sure. They ignore cover, sure, doesn't matter. You're poison three plus, you're assault four. Now, that's just what I was going to ask, actually, because under V1, they had templates, didn't they? And they took forever Correct. to resolve this unit. Exactly. It was a, it was a nightmare. So this I think is a Rolstein... Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, this is a massive improvement, both in terms of playability, but also in terms of Assault 4 versus a template statistically is better. Yeah. Are they standard Terminator stat line, did you say? So they're BS Weapon Skill 5, F4. Uh, Weapon skill four, ballistic skill four. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but they're not they're not much more expensive than a normal centurion squad. A squad of five is only 250 points. So in many ways, unless you're taking your cataphracti with combi weapons that have a specific mission in mind, like combi melters or something like that, these guys are or you need to save points and you can't afford power fists. These guys are really good as just a default replacement. The only problem is in replacing normal cataphracti squads is their heavy support. Oh, that's an unusual slot going. Right. But notice, when you think of the reaping again, your heavy support squads are now troops, leaving your heavy support slots open for Grave Wardens. Yay! Ah, brilliant. Um, yeah, we'll I, I was gonna say, but my tyrants are, are heavy sport, but we don't got a we we. Uh, I don't have a workaround for that. Yep. yep. And tyrants are more expensive, tyrants. and I'm not convinced. Well, I, I think tyrants might be a bit better, but not. So, t- well, tyrants tyrants just have such a different role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that with, with tyrants you can afford to kite around the battlefield and just shoot from range and just be a menace. These guys have to get up close and in your face. An 18 inch range is going to end up being danger close especially against those close combat-oriented legions. Um, They do have some other perks that help them out, though, um, because in addition to having their assault grenade launchers, they have the Death Cloud Projector, which is a built-in template weapon, Assault 1, AP 4, Poison 3+. So if you Overwatch, and they're within 8 inches, they're within that that range that you get to, to do Wall of Death, you're getting, again, minimum size unit, 5d3 poison 3 plus auto hits plus 20 toxin grenade shots they put do out they have firing protocols yes they do yes i was just gonna ask that's, yep. that's the key thing there then isn't it 
Yep. They are very much a a bully unit against infantry at mid to close range. Um, in addition yeah, to firing... Oh, yep. I was going to say, these are units you send into your midfield objectives, aren't they? Yes. Um, they've got shrouded six plus, which which helps them survive on those objectives. Because if you do wanted to, if you did want to give them some sort of feel no pain from an apothecary, it would have to be a primus medici because they're terminators. Um, so that shrouded six pluses is, is a nice quality of life defensive help there. Any model can exchange the power fist for a chain fist if you really want to go against vehicles. For every five models in the unit, you can exchange a grenade launcher for a heavy alchem flamer. Though I don't think you should. I think having the extra toxin grenade shots are better considering the entire squad has poison three plus and the heavy alchem flamer it's strength five but that just means it's still going to be wounding most toughness four units on a three plus so it's not it's it's not worth the five points in my opinion um that's that's a bit of a trap that one isn't it yeah the chem master can can exchange the grenade launcher for a combi bolter magna combi weapon or minor combi weapon Maybe a combi melta if you really wanted the emergency, like, must kill a vehicle from range. But you've got power fists. You may as well use them. Um, you can exchange the power fist on the chem master for a power scythe for free. That's literally a downgrade because power scythes are power weapon equivalents. You're literally losing points on that. Um, and the chem master can take a grenade harness for 10 points. So they're really good bully unit against infantry they're not a solution to other terminator units so they've got that same issue that a normal cataphractize they actually have they're because they have less options for their close combat weapons like you can't have that one guy with lightning claws or that one guy with a power sword to strike at initiative so against other terminator units it's it's not an optimal matchup you want these you guys don't want them against some Terminator units. Correct. You, you, these are going against enemy tacticals or tactical support squads or blocking off assault uh, squads. Correct. And that's, again, going back to that theme from earlier on, that the Death Guard are a rock-paper-scissors army. Um, and that often means you're going to take a unit and basically put it against a unit that you know is weaker because you're going to get amazing results because they can't... because you're not going to get as much out of it trying to treat them as if they can take on an elite unit when that's really not their role. Like your HQ should be going after their elites. Your elite should be going after their troops. Your infantry with all of their heavy weapons should be going after their elites. Very rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. So in addition, they have the shrouded in death rule. And again, this goes back to them as the, we are going to stand where we want, come at us. When an enemy unit successfully charges a unit that includes one or more models with this special rule, the charge is always considered to be disordered. So that saves you a reaction. Correct. So that whole idea of I'm going to overwatch with all of my gr assault grenade launchers, my assault four toxin grenades, and all of my death cloud projectors. Oh, and because we do have a chem master who's a character, we've probably got toxin bombs too. And your dis and your charges considered to be disordered, and potentially in if you're using the reaping, you could have rag grenades in that unit as well. Yep. Though on on this is where, ironically, depending depending on your to. points, 
you 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 could the, the power fist would benefit, but most of your shooting is poison, so it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I mean the way I'm hearing this unit is actually you probably don't want them in assault. You want them to be charged, but you mm -hmm. don't want them necessarily want them in assault. Correct, and that's that's true for the honestly, unless if you've if you've done your shooting correctly and you've parred down the assault threats with shooting that's when you as death guard do want to charge but if you're still in that precarious the game could kind of go either way or they've got their they've got their assault units still really intact you want them charging you mm, i like them and let's be honest the models for them are gorgeous as well they they are um the I'm I'm hoping at some point they become like an upgrade kit from Forge World for just the normal cataphracti because they're expensive. I can I can they're also though it's relatively easy to convert cataphracti terminators into grave wardens because the only thing you need to do is model on some sort of flamer type apparatus for the death cloud projectors. And if you have like I I I in 1.0 I was doing militia. I have a ton of infantry Imperial Guard grenade launchers. So that was a real easy conversion to swap the, the combi bolters for grenade launchers, and then a little bit of green stuff work. And yeah, these got. But yes, the the models look amazing. Except my one problem is the deck cloud projectors. They're the inf you know the the old rubber suit Batman movies, and the infamous bat nipples. Yeah, they're they've got the death cloud projector nipples. Okay. Yeah, that's the the one thing. I so, never noticed that. Yeah. Well, because because that's the funny thing is their their armor is supposed to be based off um, Callus Typhon's armor. His armor has the smokestacks. Theirs has like little mini ones. And you're like, okay, like what do they do? Like bend over doing Pilates to like get the top of their armor projecting at someone? And then it's like, no, they've got these little fan projector units on their nipples. And it's just like, oh, that kind of ruins it for me. It's so like I that just, scene from um, your first Austin Power film. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking yeah. at them right now, and uh, yeah, I see it now. Yeah, yeah. and that's the pro that's the problem. And I'm sorry for all the listeners that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. Um, Thanks, for that David. Yeah, you've ruined it. Here, here, here's a fun one. The word <laughs> Ohio looks like a little tractor. What? That was for free. If you type <laughs> out the word Ohio, capital O H I O, it looks like a little tractor. Oh God, it does. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mental cleanse. Uh -oh. Um. Well, so, yeah, so, you've ruined two things for us now. <laughs> um. So the yeah, they're 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 a great unit. Um. And again, if you're playing up that infantry heavy death guard, they don't have a lot of um competition once you take the tank options out of heavy support. Uh so very they're a very nice addition there of you can really have you can have a, you can have a lot of terminators if you want to have a lot of terminators which is how do they nice. work in a pride of i'm trying to think pride of the legion that's only for elites become troops don't they elite so, become troops yeah so that and that's yeah. that's the other thing is that um well actually let me let me double check that because there's always that one little caveat with pride of the legion that makes it a little weird so let me just quickly, any unit composed entirely of models with either cataphracti, blah, 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 that is normally selected as an elite choice may be selected as troops. So these aren't normally elites. They cannot be selected as troops for Pride of the Legion. 
And considering Pride of the Legion only gets a single heavy support choice, honestly, it probably won't be Grave Wardens unless you're doing like a thousand point zone Mortalis and you just want as many Terminators as possible. Yeah, you, you probably want these as in Reaping date more than anything. Yeah, well, they they are really good in Reaping um, because you can give them the rad grenades and they just kind of work really well with that entire concept. They also work really well in Creeping Death because you want to take them... If you're looking to maximize as much as you can, you want to take them with Talus, with um, Talus Typhon, but we'll get to him later. Um, because our next special unit... Oh, I feel bad for these guys. Um, they're great, but I feel bad for them. So the Death Shroud Terminator Squad, these are... The theoretically, there's 49 of them in the entire legion because seven times seven, and Mortarion has a thing. They are all there's always at least two of them within 49 steps of Mortarion because seven times seven, and Mortarion has a thing. But they're really good. So let's get this out of the way first. They wear Tartaros armor in a legion that you would expect everyone to wear Cataphracti armor, but there's a reason for it. With Tartaros armor, they have movement seven. They actually stand a chance of keeping up with Mortarion, because even though they have the Death Shroud Retinue Squad, which is pretty much the same as every retinue rule ever, you never want to use it with Mortarion. Um, I'll talk more about that when we actually talk about Mortarion. But they do have the retinue rule. You can make them a retinue with like a console or a praetor. They work amazing with chaplains. Um, so if you have a chaplain, go for it. Um, they are elite terminators. So they've got the weapon skill five, they've got the ballistic skill five, they have three wounds, they have three attacks. They are effectively a Tartaro Centurion, except with initiative four instead of initiative five. And they're only and they're five points less than a Tartaro Centurion. That's pretty good. Yeah. You're getting a unit of um anywhere between two to ten of these guys at 70 uh 70 points per model. Um, there's no discount early on. Two of them cost 140 points. They come with an Alchem pistol. So they've got a little, the models are really cool. They've got these neat little um, wrist-mounted um, nozzles, that pistol. So you don't really benefit from Ballistic Skill 5 Plus, but that also means that it's a template. You're pumping out a lot of, possibly a lot of hits for a very small unit size. Um, because most of the time, considering how expensive these guys can get, you're probably not having a unit larger than five. If you're buying yeah, it from Forge World, it's a unit of five. That's similar to the um, Dark Angel Terminator Knights. Oh, I've forgotten yeah. the name of them. Companions? Uh, well, no, there's, the there's, the, there's the Cenobites, the Inner Circle Cenobites. Yeah. Um, and then Companion Terminators are in the... Legacy yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm thinking I'm thinking of Cenobites because they come with that with a plasma caster, don't they? Yeah. Which is a template. So I mean, it, it kind of makes sense because they can put down an awful lot of firepower in a, in a very confined space. Yes. Um, this is a unit where because they each get three attacks, the power sites. If you get them into a larger unit, um, you can benefit more from having that rending six plus. But really, they do. They are the oh, you have a blob of twenty infantry with a three plus save. Okay, if I get the charge, and I'm because you are 
you know, so many of you, I'm probably getting that reaping bonus. I'm now going in with five attacks per model. So 25 attacks, strength six, AP three. And this is why I recommend a chaplain. So you get that hatred reroll. They will shred infantry. Yeah. They, they will shred anything with a, with a three plus or higher save. Um, cause they're, they're hitting at strength six. Um, yeah, they're they're great against that. But again, they don't do as well against other Terminators, partly because if they're fighting against Cataphracti, Cataphracti have a better invulnerable save. Um, they're not even piercing the normal save nor, unless they rend. It, it's just it's not worth it's it's using Death Shroud against other Terminators is the is one of the fastest way to waste your death shroud unit yeah you you want but it's like you were saying earlier it's rock paper scissors isn't yep. it they're, they're yep. not there they're there to yep. go against clearing things from objectives or sweeping off assault troops enemy assault troops and counter charging enemy assault troops yeah exactly um the one thing that they do have going for them that does help them survive if they end up in combat with other terminators they're battle hardened one so for the purposes of instant death, you need to be strength 10 or higher to instant death kill them. And they've got three wounds a pop. Yeah. They're stubborn. Yay. They're chosen warriors, which is really important because they don't have a unit leader. They have no characters in their unit. So that well, the idea is the character in the unit is Mortarion. Exactly. Which is ironic because Mortarion doesn't want to be near them or doesn't want to be in their unit, which is why if you take them, Again, take a chaplain. Have him retinue you guard the chaplain. And then Mortarion can join and leave the unit whenever. And then the whatever character they're with has to have any of those fun upgrades like toxin bombs or rad grenades because there is no character in the unit nat natively. The unit alone cannot take rad grenades in the reaping, cannot take toxin bombs in a traitor army. But I suppose the idea is you're taking these as a retinue anyway, so that exactly. character would be equipped them. So that that is the idea. Yes, they can. Any of them can take a melt -a bomb. Any of them can take a grenade harness. Cool. But yeah, they are a rock solid unit. Um, so long as they're used appropriately, if you throw them into the enemy's assault elite, like their Terminator elite, um, they're gonna die. Um, but the, like you said, Darren, that is not their purpose. I'll give a brief coverage for the, the PDF units. Um, Mortis Poisoners, um, they're a variant on the Legion Mortalis Destroyers. Basically, you they get, they get the heavy subtype. One in five can take a heavy Alchem Flamer. Don't. It's a trap because they all come with um, Alchem Flamers anyway. They're, they're just... They're not... They want to be Dark Angel Interrupters, but they're not as good as Interrupters. Not much is. Yeah. I would, I would personally rather use those points for some other elite unit, because they, they're still an elite slot, because they're just a destroyer type, that, that it's just... Because, again, you actually lose a number of the destroyer upgrade options by taking this unit. What's hilarious is this is further proof that the PDFs were not well edited because they can take a power weapon for 10 points and exchange it for a power scythe for free or they can take a power scythe for plus 15 points ah. yeah 
Um, really, the only place in, in list design that I find where they work is if you're not using the reaping. Um, you can use the advance or withdraw uh, reaction to basically make them into like a little like, haha, you weren't expecting me speed bump that unloads five to ten toxin flamers on some or uh, alchem flamers on someone when they're going to charge. Um, but and then they themselves can provide the rad grenades to the counter charge unit. Again, specifically if you're not using the reaping and they can't take rad and other units can't take rad grenades naturally. Mm. So they 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 kind of have a use, but it's very niche. Um, very niche. Otherwise, really the only other units that they lost to the legacy document were special characters. Um Chrysos Mortarg, if you liked him, I'm sorry, he's now terrible. Like he's not worth talking about, he's that bad. Marshal Durak Rask, the the commander of the Death Guard's siege trains. Um, he's weird and poorly written. Um, he's basically a slightly different version of a siege console um, who doesn't get as much phosphex. He only comes with one instead of three, which is weird. Um, and instead of having the normal siege breaker protocols of, of destruction, target uh, protocols of destruction he's got his own weird version where he can still provide phosphex upgrades for aquators and rapiers but instead of giving a unit sunder he has to activate at the start of his turn or the first turn if he's going second and it lasts until the end of your next turn a plus one to penetration hits on the vehicle damage table but there's nothing in it about it being once per game you just have to activate it every turn so uh, it's just weird. Uh, it's just hmm. it's just it's just not very good. Um, he used to have a good warlord trait where he had a twelve-inch bubble of uh, re-rolling ones to hit against enemy units that are within three inches of an objective, right? Which is makes a lot of sense for a siege breaker, like especially the siege breaker of a legion, right? Just pound anyone on an objective into dust. And now it's that he and the unit he's with reduce damage mitigation rolls by one against their shooting, and he grants a reaction in the shooting phase. Just for the obscene yeah. amount of points he is compared to a normal Siege Breaker, take a normal Siege Breaker. It's, it's a standard, seems to be a very common, a lot of legacies units of, you're paying the points for him because you like the character, not yeah. because of what he does. The cool, the cool thing about him is that he's, he's actually in the books. He's in the Black Library books. He, he shows up a few times. He's never a point of view character, but he shows up a few times. I feel bad for Chrysos Morturg because he represents a very interesting portion of the Legion that doesn't get any face time, which is you've got the Terran veterans, you've got the Barbarans, but apparently, and the, the Black Books talk about this a bit more, there's this swath of the Legion from the um, right after the Rangdon genocides that are just from random planets that the Death Guard took such a pounding in the Rangdon uh, genocide that in order to make up their numbers, Mortarion had to authorize recruiting initiates from just wherever they could get them. And that's really unusual. That in, For that period yeah. of time of the Great Crusade, it's only really the Blood Angels and the Scars who are doing that. Yeah, like them and the World Eaters... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, but and, and especially but, uh, again, Barb. I, I I can't imagine Barbara's having a very dense population. Um, well, so even is, from the beginning, um, it, it's just it's. It, <laughs> this is actually the weird thing about Barbaris, 
And well, A, this is also weird because Mortarion hates this. He only likes recruiting from Barbarous. Um, Barbarous is very strange because the population is extremely hardy because it's such a messed up death world that they have an abnormally high success rate for gene seed implantation. Abnormally high. Like even compared to the fourth legion, which is basically like, we can put this in almost anyone and it will work. It may not work well, but it will work for at least to get a few years out of these people. So they're normally able to, and the, the again, the, the black books talk about how weird this is that a single world is supplying a legion at a rate where Mortarion wanted to have a full-size legion of 490,000 by the end of the Great Crusade. Again, seven, not multiples of seven. He's got a thing. Um, so <laughs> the, the, the way that kind of gets around this, that kind of makes a weird sort of like creepy, disturbing amount of sense, is that we have to remember that before the emperor showed up, Barbarous was the personal playground for a race of Xenos necromantic sorcerers. I'm assuming that uh, as part of the way that their ecosystem worked, the human population, in addition to be very hardy, also had a very high reproductive rate because otherwise humanity would have been wiped out early. <laughs> so, you know, if you've ever played Mass Effect, I see Barbarous and the Barbarans kind of like the Krogans. Without, without something amazingly terrifying to prey on them, their population booms. That's the way I kind of view it. That, that's the only thing that makes sense in my head. Yeah, I can see, I can see the logic behind that. I'm just trying to work out the, the, the kind of number. If he wants a full legion of 490,000. Well, that was his goal. The, he never got that, there. That's his, no, no, no. We know we never get to there. But if he's aiming for that number, working on number, I mean, you, you're pretty far superior mass than I am. But the normal aspirant turnout is 10%. Mm -hmm. The numbers of that, and let, well, let's say the Death Guard gene seed is much more stable. So let's let's say that double, well, let's say that increases to 15%. Let's be generous. Mm -hmm. That's a phenomenal amount of numbers of children inducted into the Legion. And the, the books, Black Book and Black Library, both talk about how Mortarion effectively transforms Barbarous into an incubator for the Legion, that its entire role is to provide initiates for his Legion. You know, you know what that reminds me of, eh? What we just talked about uh, a few weeks ago? Mm -hmm. Svenris. Yeah. The other Death World, um, yeah. uh, uh, which the, 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 again, there's that whole bit in Wolfsbane where what would happen to if the population of Fenris uh, learned that we could actually fix it and stop, stop it from being a Death World? So I said, well, why would we do that? Yeah. We, you know, then you'd have um, you'd have a world of weaklings. You'd have a legion of weaklings. The and, only purpose of Fenris is to feed into the route. And Mortarion even said that, like the the emperor and other generals of the Great Crusade, when Barbarous was found, were like, "Yeah, we can. We'll get the Mechanicum in here. We'll put in some terraforming devices. We'll fix the atmosphere. We'll 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 fix this place." And he's like, "No, that will make Barbarians weaklings, and I will not come like that. You will not do that to my people." And that's one of the and preview for later. One of the great tragedies of Mortarion and Barbarus is that they had no culture because they were effectively a prey population. And when they're finally freed, 
they don't have any options to develop their own culture because they're just immediately turned into this home world and development space for the Death Guard Legion. Like, that's one of the reasons why I was so curious about the naming structure, because Barbarous is the only Legion homeworld, period, where there is nothing in regards to pre-existing culture or culture post-contact um, with the Imperium. Like I said, that's a different conversation. So okay, now we're up to now we're up to the now we're up to the 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 special characters, and boy are they doozies. Let's start with my second most hated character in the Horus Heresy. Um, for anyone keeping track at home, Erebus is number one. Deal with it. Well, that's naturally <laughs> he's everyone's number one. Yeah, the reason why Callus Typhon is my number two is because he's Erebus, except just for the Death Guard. And also maybe for Luther and the Fallen, but that's poorly done, and I'm ignoring that. So, Calus oh, Typhon, I have to disagree with you on that one. Uh, I, I think Luther and the Fallen are great. I love Luther. Oh no, I I like them as a concept. I like what they were. I don't like the way how things played out early on in the Horus Heresy books, and I don't like kind of how ham-fisted the Typhon Luther dynamic has been. Yeah, the whole thing with Typhon is. Um, I, I think they were uh, they, they were put in a straitjacket. I mean, this all comes from James Swallow and Fight of the mm-hmm. Eisenstein, but it, it's because you, you know what happens. It's like prequelitis, right? You know what happens to Typhon uh, to Typhon to, to become Typhus, and so the 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 I guess the instinct is to try to explain everything. Well, so buried, and again, preview for the future. Buried Dagger does an amazing job with Typhon. And and making that that his arc cohesive. There is a um, short story in one for Primarch anthologies, which is set on pre-imperial uh, barbarous, which includes Typhon as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like which gives a he, very different view on his character. Yeah, like Ty- Typhon, I. From from a story perspective, he's treated. I like what they did with him. I just personally dislike him because, like, unlike a lot of other legions, where you can kind of be like, okay, even if we remove this one thing, things are probably going to end up the way they ended up. Typhon is single handedly responsible for the massive change that we see in the Death Guard from the Horus Heresy to the Siege of Terra. And again, this goes back to why is Witch Hunter not loyalist only? Mm. Because Mortarion hates psychers and witchcraft and all that stuff, but Callus Typhon, ironically, is a psyker and a witch. He was in the very brief, uh, brief, briefly existing Death Guard Librarius. So, I, I, yeah. Um, which is interesting by itself, because that means Mortarion knew he was a psyker, mm-hmm. and yet he still made him his first captain. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, and... Again, put a pin in this. Buried dagger. Buried dagger. Yeah, yeah, we're moving. Buried up. Yeah. All right. A few books, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. get to it uh, shortly. We're almost yeah. there. All right. So, Callus Typhon, um, first captain of the Death Guard, the left hand of Mortarion, the master of the Terminus Est. He's a unique character. He's infantry. He's heavy because he wears modified cataphracti plate. Um, he's got an alchem pistol. He's got lacrime, his scythe. Grenade harness, death cloud projector, rad grenades, um, cataphracti terminator armor, special rules, 
He's Death Guard, Master of the Legion, independent character, relentless, stubborn, bulky too, witch blood, shrouded in death, firing protocols, shrouded six plus, traitor. So he he has to be a traitor. And he's got the warlord trait comes the reaper. So he's basically, if you take a grave warden and you make him a special character because the grave wardens were modeled on him. Um, Stat-wise, compared to some of the other first captains, at first look, he is weak sauce with only weapon skill 6, strength 4, toughness 4, 4 wounds, initiative 5, 4 attacks. Leadership 10, 2 plus save. Um, and 4 plus invuln because cataphracti. He gets better. Comes the Reaper, his warlord trait. When making attacks as part of a shooting attack or during the assault phase with any weapon that has the Poisoned X special rule, Callus Typhon and any unit with the, Le the Legionis Astartes Death Guard and at least one model within six inches of Callus Typhon increase the value of the Poisoned X special rule by one, e.g. from three plus to two plus, and may re-roll failed to wound rolls. Wow, I can't speak today. Re-roll failed to wound rolls for weapons with the Fleshbane special rule. In addition, an army whose warlord has this trait may make an additional reaction in the movement phase, so long as he's not been removed. So notice, he's the so far he's got the only warlord trait that gives that movement phase reaction. So you want him probably less so in the reaping, more so in creeping death, but that's a-okay because you have him and a bunch of grave wardens that are now all doing poison two plus. And all of those fleshbane alchem thing, alchem weapons that might also be around, re-rolling to wound, he is a massive force multiplier for Grave Wardens. Yeah, and did you say that's within any unit within six inches? Yep. Yeah, because that's so that's really unusual. Because a lot of rules are only fixed to the unit an independent character is with. So for him having what in 40k is an aura effect, yeah. massive. Yeah. That's why, again, at first blush, doesn't really stand up to some of the other first captains that we see. Oh, also, he's only 200 points. He's not, he's not super expensive. Um, he's, not, he's not, at first look, a major beat stick like you're going to have with Sigismund or Savitar or Corswain. Um, but he's an amazing force multiplier for Grave Wardens. Lacrime, uh, it's a power scythe, but it's AP2, um, and it has Fleshbane. So he's hitting at strength six, and if for some reason he's attacking anything that is higher than needing a two plus to wound, doesn't matter. He's wounding on a two plus anyway, and because of his warlord trait, he's re-rolling to wound rolls. So really nice. He will he will cut. He's what you want cutting through terminators. He will. Um, he doesn't instant death things automatically, but he's got rad grenades. Toughness four becomes toughness three. Strength six, cool, instant death. He's got all the same things, death cloud projector, shrouded in death. That's all exactly the same as the Grave Wardens. His other big special rule is witch blood. So he comes with two psychic powers. Um, he can't get any others. And if he's included as an army that also has Mortarion, or if Mortarion is present in battle as part of another friendly army. So if you and your buddy are doing a... a a multiplayer game and you've got Callus Typhon and he's got more Tarion or vice versa, this rule is still in effect. Typhon cannot make use of any psychic powers or psychic weapons um, when more Tarion is present. 
that's cool. That, that's a nice little narrative touch. Yeah. And it makes sense because throughout the heresy, like 90% of the heresy, more, Callus Typhon is off doing his own thing. Well, it's more, isn't it? Even at the Siege of Terror, they're not in the same battlefield. Yeah. Um, so very, very fluffy. Um, so this is where the the this is where he can get to the the level of some of the other first beat stick first captains. Um, his witch sense psychic power. At the start of any assault phase, you can make a psychic check. If you pass it, increase the weapon skill by one. Increase attacks by d three. Um, failure powers of the warp. So if you make this, then you're at weapon skill seven. Um, then you're going to be at four plus d three attacks. So that's where you start getting to, okay, now he's almost at that level of being able to, you know, beat stick with Sigismund and Horsewain and Sevatar, um, but he, he he still wouldn't be able to take any of them in a duel. Um, it just makes him better at killing other stuff. Like, he'll wreck Praetors um, once you, if you can boost him up to, if you boost him with Witch Sense, he will mince me Praetors, um, which is always fun. Toxin Cloud, uh, his psychic weapon. It's range 24 inch. It's a large blast template, uh, five inches. Um, strength one, AP one, assault one, flesh bane, pinning. Um, you have to use a psychic, you have to make a psychic check in order to attack with it. Um, it does benefit from comes the Reaper. Um, so you'd be wounding most any infantry on two plus with a reroll. Um, it's a nice way to, to toss out more damage at range um, if when you're at longer ranges with the Grave Wardens uh, because the Alchem Pistol is only a template and the Death Cloud Projector is only a template. So this gives him a little bit more range. Yeah, it's an added bonus, isn't it? it it's yeah. a nice little... If you can use it, you might as well, but you, you're not going to build a tactic around it, are you? Exactly. So he's... For 200 points, if you even only have one unit of Grave Wardens, he's worth it. The only reason really not to take him is if you're already taking Mortarion, or you've got, you know, a fluffy Praetor that, you know, really has his own narrative and story going on. I guess this would be the time to talk about Praetors just a little bit, because you don't really have anything special going on with your Praetors. There's no, like, character changing rules that some of the other legions get. Um... Honestly, at the end of the day, unless you're taking Callus Typhon or Mortarion, you're probably better off using your HQ points and slots to take multiple uh, consoles because you're going to get more out of using them to buff your other units, either in Assault with a Chaplain or using a Delgadis to unpin units or using a Herald to give units line. Um, like having a Herald in um, Terminator armor to give either Death Shroud or Grave Wardens the line subtype is honestly a better use of points than having a Praetor because your HQs are not going to be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with HQs that specialize in challenges. Your HQs are don't have any of the stuff that can really make them chew through enemy units all by themselves. They You're just better off using those points for buffing your army. And it's also going to be lowering points as well, which means you can then get more bits in yeah no i, I yeah. agree with that i i think consoles are massively undervalued at times yeah because there's there's just 
Yeah, you're just, there's just it goes back to the whole armory thing. Like, there's nothing like the Emperor's Children. There's nothing like the the World Eaters bonuses that you can be like, here you give this to a character, and now this character just got a lot better. You don't have anything like that. You're working with the stock standard stuff from Liber Hereticus, which is actually one of the weaknesses of the Death Guard is that if you're playing someone who's playing a fast-moving, hard-hitting assault army and they really know what they're doing, that can be a lot of trouble. But okay. as we were saying at the start, it's rock, paper, scissors. It's a- yeah, yeah. All right. Y'all ready for the dessert? The the reason everyone really is listening? All right. Is it time for the main event then? It is time for the main event. Mortarion, Primarch of the 14th Legiones Astartes, the Death Guard, his unbroken blades. The Pale King, Master of the Death Guard, the Traveler, Dread Liberator of Barbarus. And he has earned those titles. Mortarion, unit composition, one Mortarion, the loneliest number. Um, He's got a movement of seven, which is actually low for a Primarch. Um, most, of, most of them have uh, faster movement, um, but that's okay. Um, weapon skill seven, average for a Primarch, ballistic skill six, strength seven, toughness seven, seven wounds, initiative five. He is one of the slowest in terms of initiative. The only other Primarch who... Um, the only other Primarchs who are initiative five are Perturabo and Vulcan. He's got six attacks, um, which is average for Primarchs. Um, leadership 10, two plus save, four plus invulnerable save. He doesn't have anything else really going on in terms of defensive special rules, um, in terms of just armor save and invuln save. So he's got stock standard two plus four plus. Um, He's got war gear, barber and plate, explaining his armor save and invulnerable save. He's got his scythe, silence. He's got his gun, the lantern. He has a he has seven phosphex bombs. That's a, a bomb for every turn of the game and then some. I love it. Um, frag grenades. He's a primarch. Okay, no duh. Uh, he's got Legionis Astartes Death Guard, Master of the Legion, bulky six. So he's a little bit bulkier than the average Primarch. Um, it will not die four plus, um, which is unusual for a Primarch. Um, he regains one wound on a four plus. Fear two, um, Adamantium will three plus. Um, that is unusual for a Primarch. Um, that actually puts him up there with Lionel Johnson in terms of shrugging off psychic powers. Um, Hatred Psychers, because he really hates Psychers. Shadow of the Reaper, Preternatural Resilience, Traitor Alignment, Warlord Trait, Sire of the Death Guard. And this is where their original, some of their original leadership stuff is now evident, um, similar to but different than Iron Warriors. So all friendly units composed entirely of models with the Legiones Astartes Death Guard rule in the same army as Mortarion, including himself, ignore all penalties to their leadership caused by the fear and shell shock special rules, and when locked in combat, suffer no penalty to their leadership characteristic due to casualties suffered during an assault. And he also gets an additional reaction in the assault phase. So there's the leadership buff. 
there's there's the we we are going to rely on our good solid Astartes leadership um, and basically have a slightly softer version of stubborn for everybody. Then that's quite unusual, isn't it? Because a lot of the Primarchs don't bring bust to the Legion now. Something with that we've discussed before with Pertraba and Horus. Yes, is that unlike V one where Primarchs tended to roll in lots of army modifications, army bonuses. Now they're not so prevalent. Yes, and the the other side of that coin for Mortarion is that he is nowhere near the duelist that most of the other Primarchs are um, even the Primarchs that aren't duelists themselves. So the actual duelist Primarchs like Lionel Johnson, Conrad Kurz, um, Corvus Corax, uh, Lehman Russ, they will wipe the floor with him. Um, Non-duelist Primarchs will probably also wipe, not wipe the floor with him, but they'll probably win simply because his stats are average but his war gear tends to be worse for killing other primarchs um so having said that let's talk about that war gear so his 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 let's be perfectly blunt the main war gear we care about for primarchs is their close combat weapon he has silence uh it counts as a power weapon it's plus one strength so he's hitting at strength eight um mostly against Toughness six or toughness seven models, um, unless he's fighting people. Well, yeah, no one's toughness eight. Um, so he's got that going for him. Um, so he's wounding most other Primarchs on a three, maybe a two for the toughness six ones. The problem is that it's melee, it's Sunder, doesn't matter, they're not tanks. It's two handed, it's reaping blow. Doesn't matter if he's in a challenge with just a, a brother Primarch, he's not getting the benefit of reaping blow. So he's fighting with only six attacks. And the main benefit is that it's got instant death, which Primarchs ignore. Whereas other Primarchs will come in swinging with their weapons, which give bonuses to strength, and they'll give shred, and they'll give rerolls, and blah, blah, you know, na name a bonus, and some Primarch has that on their weapon that is better for fighting another Primarch compared to silence right you know things like sudden strike um or duelist edge you know any of that sort of stuff so where mortarion shines as noted by having reaping blow two and instant death and ap2 is you put him among elite terminators and laugh maniacally okay don't channel channel the the grace and dignity of the pale king himself silently roll as your strength eight scythe commits instant death on multi-wound models. Having said that, there's the other flip side of it, which is it's already hitting at strength eight. It's going to double out most models anyway. Ironically, the best use of Mortarion and Silence and taking advantage of instant death is actually either against Dreadnoughts for the extra damage or against Justarian Terminators because of their whole minus one damage, minus one strength thing. Um, yeah. Which I or, find is kind of or ironic. Against, or against Death Shroud with Basil Hardened. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's the, his, the well, best... That, fits ventral, that does fit Ventral Spirit where he merges his own bodyguard. 
Oh yeah. Yep. And <laughs> also just wait till demons come out. True. Yeah. Very true. There's lots of high um, toughness demons that are just going to be uh, cut to pieces, actually, which is appropriate because Quartarian does not like them. I don't play Custodies. against Mechanicum. Yeah, Custodies. Yeah, those and um, maybe as those get more, more more prevalent again, this will come up much more and more. Like yes, against other Space Marines, he, he's kind of redundant, but he he will just murder Terminators all day. But against things like Phalax, um, yep. all of those, yes, Mortarion cleans house. But I like the fact that as we were talking, like Death Guard are in general are excellent at killing Space Marines. So. Yeah, the Legion itself can deal with the Space Marines, and uh, Mortarion can just bounce around, uh, taking care of, uh, of 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 more appropriate targets. Yes. I think it works very well. But uh, again, we've been talking about the whole the whole time. It's it. There's a lot of rock paper scissors, uh, uh, rock paper scissors in this uh, in this list. Yes, um, his other item is the Lantern. It's an eighteen inch assault one Sunder strength eight AP two. Cool. Take take some pot shots at tanks, um, or kill a Terminator or something. Um, with Sunder, though, it, it actually is worth taking pot shots at tanks with this thing. Um, especially lighter things where it's like, I don't want to fire an entire unit at that one, you know, Rhino. I'll pop it with the Lantern. Um, but again, he's also a Primarch, so he can place his shots. So you can use the Lantern to melt a Sergeant, to melt an Apothecary, what have you. Speaking of bopping around, Shadow of the Reaper. This is a very unique rule to Mortarion. It is not technically a psychic power. Um, heaven forbid, Mortarion would, would have to do... I don't know if you could handle that. Um, but so long as Mortarion is not embarked on any model, in reserves, locked in combat, or part of a unit with the Retinue or Death Shroud Retinue special rules, in the player's shooting phase, in lieu of making a shooting attack, Mortarion may be redeployed by his controlling player. This counts as an alternative form of movement and cancels the benefits of the Legiones Astartes Death Guard special rule. Not that it matters, because as a Primarch, he pretty much gets those benefits anyway. If this option is used, then Mortarion is removed from the battlefield, leaving any unit that he was part of. The controlling player must then redeploy Mortarion to any point on the battlefield that is within 10 inches of his original position, as long as there is space for his model and the chosen position is not within 3 inches of an enemy model. He may not be placed within impassable terrain or inside a vehicle or building. This is not counted as a move as such, and the intervening terrain does not affect him in any way. Mortarion may charge normally in a turn that he is redeployed in this way, but counts as making a disordered charge if doing so. So let's take this a few, let's bullet point this. Bullet point number one, he cannot be in a retinue or a death shroud retinue. This goes along with the, the joke from earlier that the Death Shroud are moving at seven inches because they're trying to keep up with Mortarion, who doesn't actually want them around. Papa does not love me. Um, so if you're taking Death Shroud as a retinue, you're doing it for someone who's not Mortarion, even though they are Mortarion's bodyguards and two of them are supposed to be within 49 feet at any time. Ignore that. Um, he can join units. He just can't be in a retinue unit, and if he uses this, he then immediately unjoins the unit. So you've got your death, you've got your death shroud retinue on some other character. Mortarion joins their unit and then leaves it as needed for Shadow of the Reaper. Um, it's not considered movement, so um, enemy players cannot use movement phase reactions because this also happens in the shooting phase. Basically, anything that relies on movement, this doesn't actually interact with. Um, 
but it's a 10-inch teleport. He can move through terrain. He can't end in it, but he can move through it. So he can pop through walls, surprise people, get around. It opens up a lot of, again, that idea of that high skill ceiling, it opens up a lot of interesting options for maneuverability and for moving your Primarch around to vulnerable positions or for getting out of trouble. Um, he can still charge, which is important because that's probably what you want to do. You probably want to get, it's like, oh, you thought you were safe. No, you aren't. You cannot escape the Reaper. Um, but you're not going to get a charge bonus. Oh, no. Doesn't matter, unlike many of the, again, those real melee blender Primarchs, he doesn't have anything like Sudden Strike or Rampage or Rage or anything like that. Um, not Rampage, but Rage. He doesn't have any benefits other than getting plus one attack to actual, to charging. So he's going to make probably eight attacks instead of nine. Oh, well. Um, so it's very, very interesting and opens up a lot of options. This is one of the reasons why I think Mortarion is costed at 425 points. He gives a very nice leadership buff to the army. He opens up a lot of interesting maneuver possibility, even though he's not the most hardcore blender of a Primarch, even though he's not the most duelery of a Primarch. Um, like he's he's sitting he's sitting there at 425 with Portorabo. He's sitting there at 425 compared to uh, 435 for for uh, Rogel Dorn, um, but when you compare him to like 460 for for uh, Lionel Johnson, or um, you know 450 for Lehman Russ, you can understand why he's not costed that same amount. Well, I guess the talk of the real question though is 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 can my dad beat your dad? Uh, yes, the answer to that is almost always yes. Um, and again, it, it goes back to that. Even those Primarchs who don't have the special rules that make them better in close combat or make them better duelists tend to have better weapons. So Mortarion is hitting at strength 8, AP 2. That's that's the bonus. That's what he's got. Whereas yeah. if we're dealing with, for example, I don't know, do you want, do you want to start with Perturabo or do you want to start with Conrad Kurz as your dad? Uh, let's do Perturabo because I've actually used him. I've never used, I've never actually used uh, Conrad Curse. Um, uh, uh, although I have one, I really need to, really need to get that painted. Um, so for Perturabo, um, so, it depends on if he has Forge Breaker or not. Correct. Um, if he, if he has Forge Breaker, he's costing, he's coming out of 460. So he's, he's getting a lot yeah. pricier with Forge Breaker as opposed to Forge Yes. And then he's hitting at strength 12. Yeah. So he's Actually, wounding Mortarion and, and it, too. And it's brutal too. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. the old, that's the difference. Like um, otherwise, I think they're just gonna well, they're gonna well, without Forge Breaker. I think Mortarian wins. Mm, there's there's one thing about that though. Okay. So Mortarion can wound more often. Perturabo has a three plus invulnerable save. That's true. Um, plus Mortarian has the five plus who will not die, so he's more likely. Yes, so he, so he gets the wounds back. So it'd be it'd be relatively even, and I'd say come down to pretty much luck of the dice. Um, yeah, uh, I I would agree with that. Without uh, Forge yeah. Breaker, with it's, Forge Breaker, uh, Perturabo has has a big advantage. But yeah, you know, yeah, uh, um, uh, again, but why would we be fighting? So exactly. it doesn't matter. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> if we're looking at Conrad Kurz. Right? Again, here's someone, he's got hit and run, which is amazing. Yep. Um, 
he's 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 got the two plus four up invulnerable save, um, <laughs> and not to mention, you know, he gets twelve inches to movement when like. But we're, if we're just already in close combat, he's got the same defenses of a four up armor of two up armor, four up invulnerable. So they're both going to rely on their invulnerable save. Um, as a Primarch, he's going to be regenerating wounds, but not as quickly as Mortarion. Um, but again, like Mercy and Forgiveness, he's got Shred. He's got Murderous... Well, Murderous Strike 4 Plus doesn't matter, but he's got Shred. And he's hitting at... Um, um, he's hitting... He's hitting. He's needing fives to wound, but he's got at least eight attacks. And... He gets to reroll threes. And he's hitting on threes. Whereas Mortarion is now hitting on fives, wounding on threes, and doesn't get to reroll to wound. Um so I'd say Kurz has the advantage. Kurz will come out bloody, but he'll win. Um the 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 they kind of balance each other out in terms of needing to hit versus needing to wound, but but Shred gives Kurz that little extra edge. I also love the fact that if you really wanted to play a death match between Conrad Kurz and Mortarion, mm-hmm. they could they could be close combat on the first yeah. turn. Oh, and that's Conrad Kurz can 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 get it can move 20 inches in his yep. turn. He won't be able to charge, but Mortarion can move 10 and then charge. Yes. Um there is though um in that first turn, um per- Mortarion would benefit from hatred psychers because Kurz is a psyker. But having said that, if Kurz is being a psyker, he can get an additional plus one attack and feel no pain four plus. And Mortarion doesn't do enough strength mm. to cancel out the feel no pain. But again, like uh, we, we've talked about this before, some Primarchs are not made for killing oh, Primarchs. Some exactly. are Lehman Rust, for example. Yes, and and that's um, exactly. And I would like, say I, Angron. I put Angron in there too. Yep, I, I would. I, that's why I default to saying in these questions, Mortarion is not beating your is not beating other Primarchs because he's not meant to. That's not his yeah. role. That in 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 the lore and. On the tabletop, that is not his role. Yep. Um, that that he he is the reaper of men. Um, he and to to paraphrase his own thought process, he's who you send when you have humans who aren't acting human. Yeah, I like um, that. Yeah, like I'm I'm not entirely unconvinced that one of the reasons why like Rebute Guleman and um has such a rosy view of humanity isn't because you had people like Kurz and you had specifically Mortarion um, prioritizing looking for cultures that were technically human, but would not be considered like human. Yeah. I I get, I get what you're going. I got you. Yeah. Like that, that's why he has that, that, uh, that, um, I forget the phrase for it. What is it? Um, Darren, like, like gray eyed Athena. Epithet? Yes. When someone's got that like nickname? Yeah. Yeah, like that's why he's the dread liberator. Because he's he's all about liberating enslaved and um re- um repressed populations of humans from people who don't deserve to survive. He's he's dealing with the edgier type of humans. Yeah. 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 Um, how does he? Uh, how, how does he fare against Hor- not Horus Ascended? I, uh, um, obviously, because no one's going to go toe to toe with Horus Ascended until they release the Emperor. Not regular Horus. World Breaker is just so good. 
That's so good. Well, it, it's the combination of things. It's Worldbreaker and the, the Talon being used together. Because yeah. don't and, forget, Horus yeah. can split his attacks. Yeah. The, the Talon's the, got Deflagrate, so it's causing additional so damage. He's He'd be wounding on four, Strength 7 versus Toughness 7 with the Talon, but he's got Shred and, and Deflagrate. So that gives him an edge there. Then Strength 10 for Worldbreaker, so he's wounding on twos. It's Mastercrafted. It's Brutal 2. So that's also real good. He's got the three plus invulnerable save. Can't um, be hit on more than a four. Yeah, ma- and not that it matters because he's weapon skill eight. So Mortarion needs fives to hit him. Yeah, um, so. yeah, yeah. Hor- Horus has the advantage. The one, the one weird thing, and I, I glossed over this because originally when I read, read through Mortarion's special rules, similar to the the Son of Barbarous Warlord trait, this didn't this didn't strike me as very good. But recently, um, I was talking with a friend, and they brought up an interaction that neither of us could really hammer down on exactly what would happen. Um, but basically, there's so he's he's got preternatural resilience, which is basically which is the son of Barbarous thing, right? Poison, rending, fleshbane. They only affect Mortarion on a six. The question came up is that if you have a Primarch who has a weapon with one of those effects, which takes priority in terms of determining damage? Um, like, can, like, let's say you're playing Lionel Johnson and you're using your sword with Fleshbane. The sword has Fleshbane. Does that mean that Lionel Johnson only wounds on a six if he wants to benefit from the strength, from, from the AP of the sword, or does he basically just have to punch Mortarion with his fists? And then, if that is the option, can he even technically do that? Because he's got a melee weapon listed, which technically means he doesn't have a default melee weapon, because you only get a default melee weapon if your if your unit entry does not include a different melee weapon. Is it still written in the rules? Because it wasn't V1. That if your strength was higher than the opponent's toughness, you got to re-roll. So I think, I think that's the case with poison. Um, let me double check very quickly. Because that's the other thing, is that honestly, at the end of the day, I'm also because I, I, I would agree with you because fleshbane is fleshbane. If so, in, in that example you just gave, the lion is reduced to a six. Yeah, and and so like there's a whole, so yeah, poison specifically calls out unless a lower result would be required. In addition, so basically, if you were using a poison weapon against Perturabo, and let's say it was like poison three plus, and you would need a five to wound him normally, instead of needing the six because of poison, you could just resolve on a five. Yeah. Um, if the strength of the wielder is higher than the toughness of the victim, the wielder must re-roll failed to wound rolls in, com- in close combat. Um, so that's for poison. Unless otherwise stated, poison weapons are treated as having a strength of one, which again becomes interesting for close combat weapons. Because most of the time we think about them as, as being any sort of strength thing is applied to the units, to the wielder's strength. But this just says they're treated as having a strength of one. So interesting for poison, but let's check out Fleshbane, because the Fleshbane is different, even though it is very, very, very similar. 
if a model has this special rule or is attacking with a melee weapon, they always wound on a two plus in close combat. If a model makes a shooting attack with this special rule, they always wound on a two plus. No effect against vehicles or buildings. So, so yeah, you, so you, yeah, so you would be reduced. Okay, there you go. So yes, preternatural resilience, actually not terrible. Um, again, um, if you're dealing with someone who's got one of those nice Primark special weapons that has poisoned or rending or fleshbane on a val or on a value that actually matters and not just like a six anyway. So not bad, but like we like we've said, and like we see in the law, he doesn't go against other Primarchs. Indeed. And the one time he does, it doesn't go so well for him. Well, well the, the two times he does against the same Primark, it doesn't go particularly well. Yeah, but he's going against, again, he's going against a Primark that, like, Jack and I con, that is yeah. one of those that is certainly effective at, at fighting other Primarchs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's it. <laughs> That's the Death Guard. So yeah, yeah, that that is the Death Guard on the tabletop with some sprinkles of lore and stuff like that herein to kind of explain some of why they do what they do and how why they have some of the rules they have and what I think works and doesn't work and what's worked for me and what I found has not been as effective. Um, but uh, yeah, they are very much a they are very much a very typical what I would call like an archetypical legion army that doesn't really lean in particularly towards you know they, they don't lean away from that idea of a lot of marines on the field with bolters like if you look at a cover from like and you know um the black library books um you know especially like those first three galaxy and flames horse horse rising um all of that stuff um we tend to see that idea of here's a lot of space marines with bolters. That's the Death Guard. Um, your core is that that core of space marines with bolters. They are backed up by space marines with big bigger guns. Um, those are back, and so a lot of it, and they they benefit really well from those very various, very like you know, he, um, iconic units like Terminators. Um, so yeah, if if you like playing Space Marines to play Space Marines, they're a really good Legion to go for. If you want, though, a unit that's like, oh, yes, I like Space Marines, but I like the idea of them ripping apart stuff in close combat as their modus operandi, don't, don't go Death Guard. Death Guard. Death Guard fit the image of Space Marines in that you will gr you will advance you will pound what any threat to, to you in melee you will pound it to dust in the shooting phase and then you will actually take advantage of the fact that you are a weapon skill four strength four combatant against your opponent um you will yeah um more so if you're fighting solar auxilia but even against other marines that plus one attack from charging can make a difference but yeah basically or just walk up shoot them dare them to charge you Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. Yep. Well, again, thank you for having me. I, I I could keep rambling and talking about them for a long time. <laughs> and we appreciate it because that's what that's what we do. That's what this show is all about. Yes. Um, and I, I do look forward to talking Barry Dagger to, to explore kind of more about Mortarion and, and Typhon and the lore of the Death Guard and all that stuff. Um, because there's some there's some stuff written in the description of you know, the barber and plate silence that talks about some of those things. 
Um, and Mortarion is a very interesting Primarch in, in that regard. So looking forward to the future. Excellent. And we'll be right back for Tales of Heresy. Through the senses of the warlord Nuncio Dolores, Terran Hartek of the Legio Volpa tracked the incoming Imperial hunters. There were 12 dropships and two dozen more single-coffin craft, starting as a close-packed cloud of ships, splitting widely into two task forces. Beams of destructive light and sparkling ribbons of tracer fire followed them as they came sinking down. As they veered apart, their engines set out 100-meter-long flames of fire and gas. Two-thirds of them were heading for the moon's surface, but the rest were coming towards the habitation and processing rings. His position. The hunters were coming in strength, he thought. Excitement quickened his pulse. One of the dropships took dozens of hits. Fire trailed behind it and it began to fall out of formation with its sister craft. Other weapons switched targets as the defense batteries of new mechanical that held orbitals near the contested moon saw its plight and sought to bring it down. All of a sudden, the dropship was ensnared in a web of destruction. Spots of hot metal glowed on its hull, spread and gave, allowing the beams that created them to punch through and out of the other side in sprays of debris. The ship's engines guttered out, and it pitched to the side, trailing fire before coming apart several hundred kilometers over the surface of Iridium. Broken titans spilled out, so huge they distorted the scale of the scene, like mariners pitched from a fishing boat. Hartek's mouth twisted behind the large bever jutting up from his chest. Such a shame he could not fight them all and prove his legio's superiority, but he didn't need tactical doctrine to tell him gunning down the enemy before they got to the field of battle was a sound plan. He was not alone in his attentiveness to the Imperial Hunters. The Vox squalled in his ears, cutting into his union with Nuncio Dolores like a knife wound. Legio Furians, 4th and 12th Mandibles offering support, Princess Majora's Hartek. Support declined, he said. He used his human voice. His jaw felt ridiculously small and distant from him. Momentarily shaken out of holy unity with his god engine by the tiger eyes communicating, he saw he was two beings, not one. His human self felt like a cancer in the pure metal of his warlord. It sickened him to be reminded of his frailty. The hunters are ours, he paused. Furion's Maniple 4. I demand usage of direct data pulse machine telepathy link from this point forward. He considered a small lie to save their pride, but honor dictated truth. The Vox is the tool of lesser beings. All hail the machine. All hail the god of war. He cut off any reply. His mouth shut tight. From now on, he would communicate only via the mechanisms of the machine, as was right. Nothing should distract him from the manipul. Moderati Oratarius, Stever Vox Connection, he commanded. Inter and ex legio. The Oratarius obeyed silently. He was not expected to reply, and no comment would have been welcome. The disconnection clicked in Hartek and Nuncio Dolores' joined souls. Blessed data washed through his mind, mercifully free of the crippling failability of human speech. Nuncio Dolores' senses crowded out Hartek's own, and yet he remained dimly aware of the cellar around him and the people he shared the space with. Steersman, Navigator, Sensorius, Oratarius, Maximus. He knew them only by their station. He never learned their names. That was not the Legio Volpa way. He was not even sure of their sexes. Nuncio Dolores was a warlord class god engine, and commanding it required all of Terran Hartek's concentration. Names got in the way. His moderati were helmed bodies, components in an organism of which Hartek was the governing mind. He paid them no more attention than he did his fingernails. They retained their capacity for independent thought, but it was a distant, fuzzy thing, while the crew was linked by manifold. Hartek felt their beings beneath his, working in concert with the machines they watched over. 
The mind impulse unit was a sublime link to the divine. Hartek's soul blended with the avatar of their deity, his mind taken by the red, wrathful roar of Nuncio Dolores' fiery soul. It thrashed beneath him, yearning to be free of his command, although ironically, it could do nothing without Hartek bridging the realms of crude matter and emotive force. Hartek forced to obey his will, reveling in his power as it fought fruitlessly back. To be immersed in a machine like Nuncio Dolores was to bathe in pure rage. The Moderati had their data blocks and neural gates, and so felt none of what he did, what Nuncio Dolores truly was. Where they were the cowering men-at-arms sheltered behind their shields, he was the knightly lord striding forth to best a dragon by force of will alone. Will it had to be, for what sword could subdue so huge and mighty a force of mechanisms as a god engine? Nuncio Dolores was a literal titan, 35 meters of technological mastery given form, a demonstration to teach all that humanity's time had come, and that he carried mighty instruments of instruction. Alright, welcome back to Tales of Heresy. Today's Tale of Heresy is the first part of a multi-part series, probably three. I think we settled in on, on, on splitting books in three uh, years ago. Uh, so this is going to be the first part of our series on uh, Titan Death by... Guy Halley. <laughs> it is we, Guy we've, gone okay. straight, we've gone straight from Wolfsbane by Guy Halley to Titan Death by Guy Halley. Yeah, that's why I, I didn't... Yeah, okay. Um, so And they're very different books, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they're, they're very, very different books. Um, very different. And they're, yeah, I, I, and... I'll get, we'll get into it anyways. Uh, but before we we jump into uh, our, our analysis of, of this, uh, do you have an efficient synopsis that we can throw out there? Engine kill. That's going to be uh, the synopsis for all three parts, I think. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's not called. It's not called <laughs> Titan Death for no reason. Let's face it. That's good. One. Okay. Or or if we want a more serious one, so this first part, opposites attract. Oh, that's so much better. That's great. I like that. Um, okay, so how, how do we? I think the best thing we uh, uh, the best way to approach this. Um, the first part of the book, the first third third or so of the book, is mainly exposition. There's a lot of exposition. One big battle, which is great, and we'll talk about it. But there's a lot of exposition in here, and I think it would be worth uh, taking a moment to try to explain like what's going on. Where is this in the heresy? Because uh, we're no longer jumping yeah. around. We're we're finishing the series in order uh, now. Yeah, the last few months. And I think it's also I think it's also worth picking out the real life background when this book dropped as well. Because well, there were expectations because there were expectations around this novel. Because originally, this novel was due to drop. The rumors were saying, and this is, comes up from things like Heresy Weekenders when they when they used to run, that this book was meant to be released when Adeptus Titanicus the game was meant to be released. Now, that was when originally Adeptus Titanicus was supposedly going to be resin titans, and anyone who's um, bought or built a dialogue will be very glad they moved away from that decision quite rapidly. But when we first heard about Titanicus way back in the mists of time, this book of Titan Death was meant to fall alongside it. And for those of you who have played the game of this, which is Titanicus, when you read back through this book, and I don't know if you picked up on this, JP, you can see where the game interacts with this, can't you? You can see that kind of friction between the game and the novel. And you can almost see the rules playing out yeah. in novelized form. Because there's a few times that I'm reading and go, ah, they failed a command check. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, this it, it, it's one of the stories, and it's not as as obvious as, uh, for example, the exemplary battles, which sometimes read like a, a an episode of GI Joe when they have to kind of plug the new uh, GI Joe summit chopper uh, or, or whatever new vehicle that's supposed to come out, or like the Transformers movie that was really just about like <laughs> so um, the next plugging so yeah. the next season. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll sell like the, the, the new the new uh, range of toys, right? Well, everybody's got an Optimus Prime, so let's kill them off and and force everybody to get our Optimus Prime. Um, so you, you, you get that kind of toy commercial, uh, not toy commercial, like, um, yeah, those cartoons, those eighties cartoons were toy commercials. Uh, I don't think you're allowed doing that anymore. Um, but you get kind of that feel in, 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 in some of the exemplary battles, um, when, and it's not even really, it's just about introducing a unit because they're not really selling anything from there, but you do get that feel in some of the black library, uh, material, um, in this particular case, you get it a lot. But here's the thing. It's not distracting. Um, and and frankly, it's kind of fun because, again, it, it feels like you're you're reading about someone's game that they wrote out a narrative around. And and it's done in such a way as it's rather than being kind of distracting, it winds up just being uh, more interesting. It adds an element to it. I, I really actually enjoyed it more than I do when game, uh, more than I usually do when Black Library does stuff like this. That yeah, absolutely. And I think the other kind of factor is the Titan Death supplement, all the exemplar battles, are all, all the narrative missions in the Titan Death supplement are from this novel. So you can re- you can replay this novel through the game as well, which Brilliant. is re- which is fantastic. So there's a lot of interaction going on between the game of Deptostite Hanukkah and this book as well. But it doesn't feel false because we had this novel before we had Adeptus Titanicus comes out. It almost feels like the game has reacted to the book, not the other way around. So I think there was very, very clear discussions happening between the specialist games team and Guy Halley when they were writing this. But Guy Halley is very much made the point of I'm writing a novel. I'm not writing a novel of the game. Yep. So you exactly. can see those you, connections. That's the difference. You don't get the impression that, Games Workshop sales uh, sales department contacted Guy Haley and asked him to, or told him to um, to plug this new model kit that's coming out, and that it's kind of forced into the narrative, which sometimes happens. Thankfully, not very often. But th- this doesn't feel like that at all. It really does no. feel like, if anything, the game kind of informed the the book in the way that it's like, okay, how do Titans operate? Yeah. And 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 because Titanicus is such. It's more of a. It feels more like a simulation than a lot of of the games that 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 come out. Right, you have to like check your reactor and and um, you know uh, there, there there's formations and uh, it, it, because of that, I think that just using that as a basis for how this works, how this kind of warfare works, makes makes the story better as opposed to distracting from it. Absolutely. I would agree with you about that. So let's move away from game fun. Let's talk about... Oh, there's one other element, though, um, uh, about about what you just talked about. Um, we on. need to... Um, when I read Slaves of Darkness, I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> like, what happened right. to Horus? And, yeah. and there's a reason for that, too. Right? So Slaves of Darkness starts with Horus having been wounded at Beta Gar- Garmin. But, Beta Gar- but Slaves of Darkness comes out... Um, the book came out before Titan Death. And and there's this weird timeline there, 
Like Slaves of Darkness clearly should have have come out yes. after Titan Death. So what happened? Pass. I, I don't know what happened with that one because it did all catch us a little bit unaware, didn't it? There's, there's a lot of timeline shenanigans going on, which is oh, very I thought you to- I, I thought you're the one who told me what happened. I, isn't it that because um, uh, Titanicus was delayed? Oh, yeah. You had to push. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So Titanicus was pushed back because they got the all clear to change from resin titans to plastic titans, most because of the success of Blood Bowl and Necromunda. So because of that, they were given a bigger plastic budget. So all the main titans for Warlord, Warhound, and Reaver were all given the go-heads to be made convert well, made into plastic kits as opposed to resin kits, which massively delayed the game by quite some time because it's not as easy as resetting things. They had to work out all the sprues, different components, etc. Mm. etc. Et so that's the reason Titan Death was delayed, which is why we got slaves to darkness to begin with. However, chronologically, Titan Death does fit in after Wolfsbane because Wolfsbane explains where Horus gets the injury from. We see the fallout from that in Titan Death, which we'll talk about in part three. Yeah, and then Slaves to Darkness naturally came after that and frankly was a perfect uh, penultimate uh, book to lead into Yeah, you see, I still, argue, I still argue Slaves to Darkness should have been the final book of the series because they make for Jump to yeah. Terror. That's know, an interesting point. You might be right. Buried, Buried Dagger is the final one, which we will be coming on to frighteningly soon. Yeah, but it's going to be wild. Let's, let's let's talk about the narrative background about this, because what this book also does is explains why there are not so many Titans in 40K as there are in 30K. This book is not called Titan Death because <laughs> it's a cool sounding title. Because one of the things we need to recognise, and, and some listeners may not be aware of this, is the title of the Collegiate Titanica is very different in 30k than it is as the Adeptus Titanicus in 40k. It's the opposite to the Legionus Astarte. So whereas in the Great Crusade, the Heresy, there are only 18 legions of, of Astartes in the 30k Great Crusade. There's, well, we're not going to say hundreds, but there's a huge number of Titan legions compared to what there are after the heresy. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's, and what's what's really interesting about this, and they do talk about it uh, in the book, is that this is the only time that's ever happened. It's not like one of the, this is the only time where the Titans have actually fought each other um, to this extent. This is the only on uh, this level, engine yeah, war. They, yeah, they have had engine wars elsewhere. So, for example, uh, the Sea of Iron, they have quite a major. Um, well, I mean, generally in, in the in the heresy, um, because before, that oh, there's yeah, been no, this I've, kind of warfare. Yes, because they mentioned that before the heresy, they never encountered uh, a Titan. Has always been the most powerful thing on the battlefield. There's never been an equal to a, a Warhound Titan. Now we've seen in the past, for example, the Gardenal had things that could challenge a Titan, but there's nothing that's you know, really been as powerful as 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 a Titan. So, frankly, uh, Titan crews leading up into the heresy had never actually faced a true peer competitor. Um, and, and it's one of those things that you don't really know what's going to happen. A, a bit similar to to the Astartes. It's like, we don't know what's going to happen in, in, in Legion War. We don't know what's going to happen in Engine War. What's that going to look like? Um, and and afterwards, again, in, in, in the 41st millennium, on 
both the the the, the trader side and on on the imperial side, there's just not that many titans. So you don't again. This is the only time that you'll ever see this scale of warfare. Yeah, and there is a reason why they are deploying all of the titans to Beta Garmin as well. Because let's talk about Beta Garmin because that is the, the narrative setting of this as well, isn't it? And we've we've mentioned Beta Garmin quite a lot, and Beta Garmin has been a key part of the heresy conflict since Prospero, because. Let's kind of put it in some context. Well, let's talk about Beta Garmin first, and then we'll talk about how it fits into the larger heresy timeline, shall we? So, JP, do you want to talk us through the Garmin cluster? Yep. Um, it's an interesting. It, it, it's an interesting. It's an interesting area of space and a very important one. Um, this is when Old Night broke out. When the Age of Strife broke out, uh, warp travel was eliminated. Um, but the, the 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 Garmin cluster was. Um, because all the planets were kind of close together and there's we're talking about a like a, a dozens of inhabited worlds uh in the garmin cluster which is a, a whole sector right it's not just beta garmin beta garmin is one it's kind of the, the capital subsector there's a whole sector the, yeah. the garmin cluster and everything was close enough together there's no huge bre societal breakdown because you could still travel to other worlds within the cluster within a few years which in spacefaring terms is not a long time so there was no societal breakdown. It was a fairly, it was an advanced society, um, and 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 so it weathered the Age Strife quite well. Uh, when the Age Strife ended and the Imperials conquered the solar system and 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 branched out, Beta Garmin was close enough that it was one of the first places that was encountered by the Great Crusade, and not a yeah. drop of blood was spilled. Um, the, no, uh, and I was going to say this is probably one of the most important things, isn't it? It's a completely peaceful compliance. Yes. Exactly. They, they welcomed the Imperials with open arms. They loved the idea of the Crusade. Um, and the Crusade was incredibly beneficial, incredibly profitable, perhaps we should say, for um, the people of the Garmin cl uh, cluster. And and why is that? Well, the, the core reason is warp travel. Yep. Because Beta Garmin is the confluence of, of several major warp conduits. Um, so if you imagine the, the uh, galactic map, as we're very used to it, we know from Isvan that Horus conquers his dark compliance into the northern part of the Imperium after word gets out and he's not able to do his sudden striker terror that he, he was originally intending. If you want to travel from the dark compliance to the soul system, you have to travel through all the easiest route is through the Garmin cluster. So it's, it's your crossroads in the galaxy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And of course, it has a major manufacturing base, uh, tons yeah. of shipyards. It's it's, it's incredibly um, strategically. It's it's one of the most important um, areas in 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 the galaxy in the Imperium. And once again, it has never faced. It has never seen war, unlike no. a lot of the galaxy. And it's quite heavily fortified as well, isn't it? Let's yeah, face as, it because as, obviously the, the the Imperium do fortify yeah. their most important locations. So. You know, there's a lot of military functions there. So let's talk about yeah. the Garmin cluster in terms of the heresy timeline, because it originates with Russ and Prospero. So Russ actually stops at Prospero with, uh, sorry, Russ actually stops at the Garmin cluster on his way with the fleet that is the censure fleet for Prospero, and he empties their war vaults of all the dirty Dark Age of Technology stuff. So he literally. The Sixth Legion turn up en masse with the Custodes and the Sisters of Silence 
and using the edict he's been given by the emperor, slightly modified by the war master, he just empties their war vault so he can take all of the the nastier weapons that are de- that they have access to Prospero. And we have to assume he keeps hold of them after that because we don't hear from returning via Beta Garmin and handing stuff off. And also, because of the way the war progresses, it's not it's not safe to keep that kind of technology accessible. One of the other things we need to realise where the Garmin cluster fits in is it's a point of fighting throughout the heresies, not just as Horus is making his drive to terror in the last few years of the war. It is a point of fighting from the very start of the heresy through to its conclusion. For the reason we gave earlier, because it's a key warp conduit. If you if you control the Garmin cluster, you control the route to terror. So Dawn recognises that he has to hold that for as long as possible to act as a buffer for Horus to come through. Horus recognises that he has to capture that area in order to get a safer transit to Terra. What is another significant factor behind the warfare in the Garmin cluster as well is it's very Astartes lights. They don't want to commit Astartes. And there were a key reason for this, and this was actually explained a few years ago, one of the Heresy Weekend uh, that I attended, is they are trying to keep the Astartes in reserve for the sole campaign or the main campaign. They don't consider, although the, the Garmin, the Beta Garmin campaign is significant, it's not significant throughout the heresy to commit Astartes. There are small pockets, for example, the Alpha Legion are deployed there, shockingly, to disrupt communications and you know all those dirty special forces tricks that the Alpha Legion specialise in. But there's never large numbers of Astartes. Even when Horus is doing his final drive to terror, it's not until this the final moments, which are covered in this novel, that the loyalists commit any Astartes into the fighting, or the traitors commit any Astartes into the fighting. Yeah. Um, and and the, the, at the core of all of this is that uh, t- uh, time is Horus's enemy. Um. Uh, time time is not his friend here. The problem is he's got the ultramarine sniffing at his heels. Um, mm-hmm. especially, and, and so the whole and, idea and is... The lines, yeah, and, and the, the lines, lines destroying, destroying his supply shipping. lines. Yeah. <laughs> the, the line is going off and destroying uh, the, the supply... Well, you know, the, 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 um, all, home all their home worlds. Trade the home worlds. Yeah, trade yeah. home worlds, but that's important because that's part of Horus's power, like supply bases. Where is all that stuff coming from? A lot of it's coming from Olympia. Um, and, and so time is not on his side. So in, in this kind of, I really think that this, it's a very interesting explanation for um, trying to deal with kind of a conceptual problem in this kind of warfare. Whereas, you know, space is 360 degrees. It's, it's, there's no, it's not like one of those things that you have to, you know, you have to, to, to capture, uh, um, it's not like a terrestrial war where you're capturing territory and it's kind of like linear, right? If you want to, um, if if you want to, uh, to, 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 to close off the Volga, you have to take Stalingrad. Well, here you can go in any direction. So the warp roots things kind of, uh, kind of is, is an elegant solution to try to, to, to wrap your brain around what, what's going on and why this is important. Why can't horse bypass it? 
Horus could bypass it again, space 360 degrees. Because of those warp roots, it's if you try to bypass it, it's less safe. And more importantly, it'll take a lot longer. So yeah. blasting through it is really the only way that 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 this will work for the war uh, that that the war master can actually win this war with before uh Gulliman catches him. So it's an elegant solution to why you create this strategic sector. Whereas it, it's also it's also another good narrative reason to explain why Horus is in such a rush as well. Yeah. Because you know most of most of the Black Library authors and most of us as a hobby community looking at this say if Horus had infinite time he would have won what what yep. loses him is the time pressure that that's a major factor. now it's not the only factor behind it but one of his major factors is marine storm is brought down he has the 13th legion in its entirety snap at it at his heels like you mentioned time is time is against him to defeat the emperor because he's and he's this essentially again, uh, he's largely outnumbered in the global scheme of things, and he's the attacker. Yeah, absolutely. But what he does is he he removes a net large proportion of the loyalist forces, doesn't he? Through the yep. yeah, exactly. That, that's the well. That's the importance of those early sneak attacks on on Kalf, um, uh, uh, Thramas. Uh, 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 well, it's Pan, obviously. It's uh, those early yeah. sneak attacks, yeah, to try to destroy. It's, it's Pearl Harbor moment. To try to destroy as much of the enemy as possible and try to win quickly. And and again, um, time is not on his side. If he can't win a fairly quick victory, I say fairly quick because he doesn't drive immediately on Terra after Istvan and Kalf. Uh, he secures the north, uh, the Northern Imperium because you know driving on Terra is useless. You have no supply, so he has to create uh, yeah. the Dark Compliance um, um, Empire in, in the Galactic North um, to, to serve as a, as a supply base uh, um, to supply his armies. But this is a seven-year campaign across the galaxy. <laughs> and and I mean that's that's immense. So part yeah. one of the easiest ways to imagine the Garmin campaign or the, the beta Garmin fighting, it's like the trench warfare of World War One on the Western Front. Both sides are in a stalemate, but it's preventing both sides from securing that area. And to be honest, both Dawn and Horus are happy for that to continue until the final phase. Exactly. So what's uh, what's the Imperial plan here? You already mentioned a part of it is that they're not committing uh, the, the the bulk of the, the legions. The, the legions are staying in the soul system. The main purpose behind Dawn is to slow down and bleed Horus as much as possible. That That's his primary objective. He knows, and in fact, at the beginning of the novel, there's a really... It, it's almost like a 101 of what Dawn is planning, isn't it? There's, there's a sequence between Dawn and Malkador, and he's discussing what his entire plan is. Now, what's really interesting, something I, that did kind of, I, I question really, is there's there's no clear loyalist commander in the Garden Cluster. Dawn actually comments that the traitor forces are more unified because of their fear of Horus. And so they're acting more of one mind, whereas the Imperial forces are split down into more sector commands for want of a better way and there's a lot of competition between them about who has seniority and we'll see later on when legia solaria arrives how that does cause issues and that was slightly surprising but overall dawn seems to be letting that go because his primary objective is just to bleed horus as much as possible slow him down and give the ultramarines a chance to get to the soul system and reinforce terror yeah precisely so and and horus is 
objective is, is probably a little bit simpler. He needs to blast through. He needs to secure Beta Garmin, and he will commit the bulk of his forces. Yeah. Now, from uh, Heresy Weekenders, we also know there's a reason why they deploy Titans on such a large scale to Beta Garmin as well. Both, And this is from both from a loyalist and the traitor perspective, is because you don't want an engine war on Terra. The weapons they are going to unleash are horrific. They are the most destructive ground-based weaponry the Imperium has to offer. And you don't want that weaponry kicking off on Terra because functionally both sides want to have Terra at the end of the fighting. So they dispatched the majority of the engines. Now, that's not to say there isn't engine fighting on Terra. We know Sigurd's Terra um, novel Mortis, for example, is all about the, the Mortis and, uh, engine attacks on the main, uh, main wall, one of the main walls of the Mercury wall. But you don't want multiple legios fighting on terror because you'll just destroy it completely so instead deploy them to the last line of defense in the get in the garmin cluster and there they can attack each other and then you're also drawing in enemy reserve engines from there as well if you're deploying more titans than the enemy you have that advantage in, in battle you're more likely to succeed so it's that kind of once again um, arms race of who can deploy the most legios to that area as quickly as possible. And this is one area where Horus does have an advantage um, because he does have uh, more Titan legios than the Emperor does. Or certainly he has seems to have more engines than yeah, at the very least. I, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. So in fact, if you if you look through the Titanicus rule books and all the in all the kind of stories, with possibly the exception of um Ordax, most of the traitor legios do tend to be battle line legios, focusing on those reavers and those warlords. The loyalist legios tend to be a little bit more flexible and have a wider range of le uh, in, of engines. Yeah, that's fair. Um perhaps this is a good segue to talk about um the the legios that form i guess are oh, protagonists oh i'd say this is one there's one more thing which actually isn't mentioned in this book but it did come out from the heresy weekend i actually went back through some of my notes before we started recording there's another event which is mentioned in the in the garmin campaign it's not just known as the titan death it's also an event known as the sea of fire have you have i told you about this before yes that's the uh about the gothic version that that's the fleet battle and you've got such large concentrations of fleet action in the garden cluster that it actually creates this permanent rippling fire within the garden cluster known as a sea of fire <laughs> and you could actually see it from several systems as well as well navigators and astropaths can detect it within the walk it has such a large impact and we knew as soon as that was mentioned at heresy weekend it's like well that's the most likely future Battlefleet heresy setting then, isn't it? That's most likely when they're going to set it. And let's keep our fingers crossed. Although my wallet will hate me when that game is released. Yeah, that's going to be brutal. Yeah, but... It'll, it'll be rescaled and uh, from, from Gothic, which is still very playable today. Um, oh, it'll be rescaled and people initially will be angry, but then the models will almost certainly be incredible and everybody will just people, kind of suck it up. People will be angry until they see the first Gloriana. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> 
Some of the 3D printed ones are very, very, very cool. Some of the 3D printed, so yeah, but you know, specialist games design, yeah. Gloriana, the Conquer, until people see the Conquer. Yeah. Yeah, that's giving With me the special. Stars. Anyway, Anyways, let's 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 go back. Let's, 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 let's discuss our it. yeah. Let's discuss our protagonists. Um, yeah. One of the things I I I, I like to it, it's so refreshing to have a book without without Astartes in it. Sometimes, well, you know what I mean, yeah. Come on, let's. We have to register a, a certain bias here that you and I are both fans of the army, <laughs> yeah, the Imperial Army, or the or, or the loyal or the fighters for freedom. As we should refer to them, <laughs> and you and I are also massive fans of AT the game. So yeah. this book has already won us over before we've started reading it, hasn't it? Really? Yeah, but at the same time, I think that it is nice to see some humanity. Uh, we just did uh, the, uh, the 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 Ferris Manus uh, Primark novel in the last episode, and we were talking about how we enjoy the human characters in it, both on the Gardenal side and on the Imperial side. Um, and it is refreshing to see because. Astartes are not they're post-human. They're barely human. You can't um, get in the heads. We yeah, can't understand. It's them. not they're as much as they're they're interesting characters, they they do lack a little bit of, of humanity um by design. I mean, this is not um this is definitely not a, a criticism of of of, uh, of any author, but it, it it is refreshing to have characters that are a little bit more human, even though they're piloting god machines and technically they they aren't all that. They're not that different than the machines that they pilot. Nonetheless, they they are they eat food, and that's um, something that they they do bring out in this novel actually. And that's one thing one of the main characters, the main character from Solari, does point out, isn't it? That although people perceive the, the princeps and the moderati as more human, they are possibly more devoted to the machine god than any other element for Mechanicus because they commune directly with the engine spirit of the literal titans that exemplify the machine god. They are they are as close to the machine god as it's possible to get. And at a certain point, uh, and this is, I, I, I thought, an interesting detail, that um, they, they will lose themselves um, into, into the machine god. Um, eventually, there, there, there will, there will no longer be a distinction between their own consciousness, like a, a, um, a princeps, uh, their own consciousness and the consciousness, or, or of 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 the machine. Eventually, they lose themselves in it. There, there is no yeah, more difference. Some of the descriptions of what the princeps are like when they're not plugged into the engines are horrific. It's an addict coming down. It's an addict going yeah. going cold turkey, isn't it? They literally describe them as having itching under the skin, hot and cold flushes. They can't keep themselves still. They suffer psychological effects by not being attached, physical effects. It is an addict going cold turkey. There is no other way to describe it. They feel the constant urge to link themselves to their engine, to commune with the engine spirit, which isn't always obedient, as we know from our games. That command check, you're in trouble. But... They also, as you say, recognize that if they, the more they commune with the engine spirit, the more they're going to lose themselves. And eventually, and this is a key theme in this novel, certainly with Legio Volpa, eventually they will lose their, themselves completely, won't they? And the engine takes over. So let's talk about our our, 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 our protagonists. I, I do feel that yeah. 
there's a lot of humanity in this book. Um, and 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 although you do get that from some of the Astar- more Astartes heavy books, I, I feel that uh, this was kind of refreshing in a way um, to have characters that are, even though as we mentioned, they're probably closer to the machine god than 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 some magi who have replaced most of their body with uh, cybernetics. Um, there is still that humanity to them, um, yeah. which uh, yeah. uh, which is really lent uh, um, leaned into in 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 this book. And and it's nice for a heresy black library novel that we've fundamentally only got two storylines to follow, and they yeah. interweave a lot. Absolutely. So th- there's not complex. Out of a lot of the heresy novels, this one's slightly unusual in that there's a lot of combat going on in this one, which sounds odd for a heresy novel, but this is very much a, a battle novel as opposed to a character development novel, isn't it? Well, because I think they don't need to develop. Uh, they don't need to develop well, I think the characters. Yeah, the, the characters. And I think also the characters are extremely well developed from the start. Yeah. We understand the characters because they're so. Well, they're opposites, but they complement and highlight the differences between the two sides as well, don't they? So let's talk about them then. So we have Legio Solaria, the Imperial Hunters, which are one of the oldest Titan Legions in the lore of the game. They were originally introduced in the 88 version of Adeptus Titanicus, the 1988 version of Titanicus. And we have the Deathstalkers, Legio Volpa, who are also one of the older Titan Legions in the game. So. JP, do you want to take us through the which which Legio do you want to take? Um, which which character? Well, we can do you start with we can start with Solaria. So that's the loyalist yeah. uh, uh, Legio. Um, they are unique uh, in that they are all women. This is yeah. an all female um, Legio, um, and it's it's mainly their main doctrine is to uh, to 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 often ambush. Uh, Custard on ambushes. They don't. They try to avoid losses. They will withdraw if necessary and counterattack. Um, it's kind of a hit and run, uh, in many ways, a hit and run kind of uh, legio uh, as far as the yeah. doctrine is concerned. Um, the- we, I was going to say. In fact, at one point they pick, they point out, don't they, to the legio Volpa character that they are in the top three legios that yep. acquire objectives with minimal engine loss. I do wonder what the other two are. Mortis. You think it's Mortis? It's because the overwhelming firepower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mortis. Um, I wouldn't mind. Oh, it, it's um, definitely not Ordax. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would imagine not. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, a storm. A storm. Yeah, the, two I, the, the two. The two. I would guess. But anyway, did you pick up on the fact there is a lot of? Ancient Greek Diana cults, um, Artemis cult, and Amazonian features of these. Oh, not th- now that you mention it, I hadn't really picked up on that. But that's more your wheelhouse than mine. Yeah, the, the, there's a so the fact that before they adopted the imperial truth, they follow a hunter goddess. Um, in fact, one of them in their bunk room doesn't don't they? They have this feet. They have this um, drawing of her which was obviously banned on the imperial truth scratched into the bottom of the bottom of the top bunk so you can only see it when you're laying down but the way they talk about they really focus on hunting that on their original home world before they're taken by the mechanicum that 
all, a lot of women devote themselves into this cult, this into the temple. And it, I just kind of picked up a lot of Diana, Artemis, Af- Amazonian kind of features. The names are not. The, the names are clearly very sci-fi based. But that whole focusing on the female, they, they're gene bred as well. They're, they're gene that grown, aren't they, a lot of them? Although they don't exclude having relationships with, with men because that is a key feature in this novel as well. And with each other. But they are, and with each other, which is another key feature of those classical deities. But any male children are either adopted into the Mechanicum's text priests or tech priests or made into servitors. Any female children are then evolved or developed into princeps and moderati. So th- there's a very strong with that classical background going on with them. But it's not massively over the top i like how they touch on it it's really clear for those who do recognize that that kind of classical featuring for want of a better word but they do make it very very 30k imperial based yeah um i think that it's a fascinating legio um the story for how explaining why um the legio came to be um uh, um, uh all women um is 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 an interesting one um in, in that there was and at the beginning kind of how it, it has a, a little scene at the beginning which is confusing at the time but you kind of start it makes sense later um where you have um the, the mechanicum are have just made contact with this old night world whose knights have fallen into disrepair um they no longer the have steampunk the steampunk you know, steam, yes yes <laughs> They literally use steam engines. They're they're falling apart. They don't have the alcohol you know, it, fuel. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Mechanicum show up, and the Mechanicum do what the Mechanicum do. Uh, there's something that they want. They're willing to exchange technology and knowledge uh, to to get it. Uh, so games are are set up. Um, um, the, the knights are are to chase um, some cog item, uh, and and whoever can get it to the Mechanicum quicker, whichever nice uh, knight household gets there quicker, uh, will will kind of win the Mechanicum's games. And and as the knights are kind of like bashing into each other, trying to get this item to the finish line, this woman jumps on her horse. Uh, well, it's because it. her brother is taken out, isn't it? Yes, Her, her right, brother yeah. is, is carrying the cog. He gets harpooned from behind, gets taken down, and without thinking, she just rushes in and picks up the cog, doesn't she? Yep, and then she she rides her horse. Because we should probably point out that unlike a lot of thirty k law, forty k law about night households, on this particular world, only the men are allowed to ride the knights. Yes, yes, that's that's an important it, detail. It, it's a ma- it's very clearly a matriarchal society, isn't it? A patriarchal Patriarch, society. Yeah. Sorry, um, and they get the, they get their comeuppance. Um, so she gets to the mechanic first, and. Uh, she figures that uh, the the Mechanicum will just uh, annul the games or something like that, or you know. But instead, the Mechanicum are, are no. She won. She won fair and square, and and we're going to take uh, her with us um, to Tigris to the Forge World of Tigris. Um, well, her and, father is the king, isn't it? Yeah, her father's the king, and her father uh, feels humiliated that his daughter did this, and he he figures, okay, I'm I'm 
I'm going to rid myself of a problem of this, this daughter of mine and, and all of her, all the, the useless women in this society, we're going to, going to get rid of them, give them to the Mechanicum, and I'm going to keep all my powerful knights to myself. Yeah, because what the knight, what Mechanicum actually offered was, we will upgrade all your knight suits, and yep. we'll give a priority to whichever knight house brings the cog to us first, but in return, we want a tithe of your young, don't they? Of your best young, yeah. Of your best young. So right. the king gets, yeah, absolutely. And the way the daughter caused a problem by bringing the cog home first is it would look like by her bringing the cog home for her father that they are gaining the precedent of their, their knights will be better than everyone else's. And also breaking by breaking the rules of a woman taking part in this male-only contest. So the king thinks he gets round it by saying, Okay, the tithe will be all the women from that temple at that point, isn't it? There's about 150 yep. of them we, we find out later. And in return, his house does then gain all the territory. But he, it looks like he's punishing his daughter and the other women who are similar to her by sending them off with a Mechanicum. Yeah, but what, turns out, what did the Mechanicum want them for in the first place, turns out? Titan Cruise. Titan Cruise. <laughs> so, and later on, it turns out, doesn't it, that she comes back with her Titan Legio to reveal what has become of them. And it also then transpires that the knights, the knights from that knight world, then become bound to Legio Solaria in return. Yep. It's, yeah. It's a very classic foundation myth, isn't it? Yeah. It is almost classical in its feeling, in its featuring. No, I, I enjoy it. And again, it it's I think a very elegant and and an interesting way of of explaining um, why the Legio is is the way that it is. Um, yeah. So and all future Titan crews are descended from that original 150, yep. aren't they? Yeah, because uh, as you mentioned, they're 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 largely that uh, that grown. Largely, yeah. it 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 is mentioned that not everyone is is vat grown. Some are no. grown the normal way. Yeah, which um, actually they they're a little bit uncomfortable with, aren't they? Because in one of the parts, they there's a discussion between um, from from the original character who took the cog to her daughter and then to her granddaughter. There's a conversation between the three of them, and the the middle character who's the main protagonist we follow in this novel um is really uncomfortable because how close they are in years to her actual natural daughter and she mm. said that relationship doesn't feel natural and she actually comments how do normal humans deal with this so it, it it's classically 40k 30k universe Twisting the expectations, what we normally what we normally find. All right. So, how about our their 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 enemies? What I really enjoy about this, and one of the, the the I think one of the most important things of this book, and why it works so well, is that you clearly establish a relationship between uh, the two enemies, who wind up being like the, the I guess the emotional core of the story. Who is who, who are they fighting? Who is Solaria fighting at? A bit of Garmin. They are fighting the Death Stalkers. 
commonly known as Legio Volpum. So, or, or the High Gothic is Volpum, but the cognomen for them is the Death Stalkers. Now, for those of you not fully inversed in your law, Volper will eventually become the Cornate Legio. I wouldn't but say eventually this, become. Well, no, but at this point in the heresy, at the Beta Garment, even though we're very late yeah. in the heresy, this is the 13th year of a 14 year campaign, they're not fully Cornate yet. Now, we, we do get a really good description of one of the characters later on when he comes back from a battle, doesn't he? And, he, and he's taken off his combat suit, for want of a better word, I forget the, the name they refer to it. And on the inside of his collar, they've had scratched all the cornate runes. And you can see how his personality is slowly becoming more cornate. Yeah. So, for example, Villegio used to have kill banners and they used to take... Um, parts from the enemy titan to stitch onto their kill banners what they do now is they take skulls and they engrave the name of the enemy engines onto the skulls and the skulls are placed into the head of their titan so and the, the important rack. thing is ideally it's the skull of the princess of the titan that was yes. killed Ideally, or a member of their crew. Ideally, or a member of their, a member crew. Of their crew, isn't it? But they were specifically but told. Do. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they were specifically told uh, by um, I don't remember the name of the uh, uh, of of um, the Hartek, Terrence Hartek. Hartek, I, 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 I'm assuming some Davenite priest. Um, uh, he, he told them that any skull will do. Um, it, uh, no, it's is, a it's a dark apostle. It's a work. It's dark apostle okay. from the novel. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, he, they, they told that any it doesn't matter um, where the skull comes from. All it matters is that it's that it's there. So, ooh, that sounds yeah. familiar. And they've been sold this as he's a war god mm -hmm. as well. The, the, the way they refer to it as as a war god, they don't refer yeah. to it as um, anything other than those terms. They don't even refer to it as corn. We, we have a name corn mentioned once in the first part of the novel. But it's very clear from those of us who know the law that, yeah, that's corn. Every feature there is corn. And so the, the what, thing is, I, I love that he keeps talking about the, the god of war, because who's the god of war? What's corn? Mars. Oh, yeah, of course. No, yeah. I, I don't think that's actually a, like, um, a relevant or like an important, um, but, you know, I, I think it, it, it fits well, well still, with what we're talking it about. It keeps that classical trope going yeah. through, doesn't it, that we have from Legia Solaria. So what are Volpa's combat doctrines then? How would we describe Volpa's combat doctrine? Um, their goal is annihilation. Yeah. Uh, they are excessively aggressive um they do they are unwavering uh they they will take the losses that are necessary to achieve their objective of destroying everything yeah. um for for them um there's there's an idea that the imperium is not going to last forever they don't care about you know a, 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 the, the the new galaxy recreating the galaxy no all, all that matters to them is glory honor destroying the enemy they truly know what is best in life, is what yes. I will say. Yeah, it's total annihilation of the enemy, isn't it? They do favour close-range engagements. So, for example, the, the, the title character, Hartek, um, he favours a Aralok power fist or power claw on his titan with a volcano. 
cannon um, and then turbo lasers. And the Legio as a whole favours battle line titans. They, they favour Reavers and Warlords. And whereas Legio Solaria, they only have um, five Warlords, which are in their first maniple, their Myrmidon maniple, as they refer to it. And then they have a smattering of Reavers and then a large concentration of Warhounds. So already we're seeing the differences between the two Legios, aren't we? So we're seeing Solaria as a very fluid, fast-moving, hunter-based Legio. We're seeing Volper as very much your shield wall annihilation at all costs Legio. Yeah, so again, it's it, it, we were talking about two very, very different um legios uh different characters but what uh, and, and i want to bring it back to how we know that information uh, yeah. because i think that one of the strengths of this book is that it creates very interesting personalities around this um and and comes back to what you said at the beginning is that opposites tracked um in in a in a more peaceful time these two legios are probably uh fight incredibly effectively together um uh, well we do we do see a great crusade battle don't we when they're, yeah, they're both involved in a compliance action and the first thing we see between them is we get a bit of a as they refer to it the horse trading between the legios about who has pre- preeminence in that campaign yeah and, and they do talk about that tension about the fact that all the legios are as distinct and as tetchy over their honor and precedence as the astartes are if not more so. But I want to talk about just the, the how we know this information. Because we get what can only be called an exposition dump in, in, in a yes. quite long chapter. There's ways to do an exposition dump. The easiest way is just to just to write it out, like just write it down. Like if this was a um a campaign book, uh, like if this was one of the Black Larry, uh, um sorry, one of the um you know, the black books, right? Just, you know, just explain what it is and yeah. let's move on. We love that. Um, and there's lazier ways to do an exposition dump. The classic sci-fi trope of explaining something to someone that already knows it, right? As you know, this, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, that's just classic, like 1950s pump sci-fi, uh, pulp sci-fi. Uh, it's, that's the laziest way to do it. But there's another way that, that like in, in, um, uh, in movies and and in and, and novels that you see an exposition dump, and that's kind of the 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 the, the sword fight discussion, or perhaps the uh, the courtship discussion, which is what we have here. And again, it's yeah. something that we don't see a lot in these books, and was particularly refreshing. I agree. We don't see the relationship side of this universe very often, do we? And it, it's not relationship as in friendship relationship or sexual relationship we don't see many relationships being developed between characters no. do we and no, what we have two... here is a gone yeah we have two people that are uh, that just meet and are immediately attracted to each other and again that's not something Absolutely. we see very often no um, it, it, what 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 little um like sex uh, that's in these series uh, this series and there's very very little is usually um uh, on the the slaneshi kind of remembrances yeah, yeah remembrances. remembrances we see yeah we see remembrances that's true um, there's there's not a lot, uh, and and usually it's uh, it's, it's not seen as like something positive. <laughs> yeah, you don't you know what I mean. Yeah. It's not seen as something positive. Um, so, anyways, um, you have two characters that meet. So you have um, Esha Ani Mohana, uh, who's the uh, princeps of what, what what's her Titan? Well, 
at the stage when they meet, she's only a princeps of a warhound. Yes. Although I say only the princeps of a warhound, we know they're the best class of engine. <laughs> By the time the story is taking place, yeah. she's a princeps of a reaver in the second manipul. So yeah. she's considered almost second or third in line of command. And um, then we have Tarrant Hartek of uh, Volpa, who by then is definitely a princeps, right? Oh, yeah. yeah he's and definitely, he, yeah. Keeps the, he keeps the same titan throughout. He has a warlord. That's right. Uh, Nuncio, yes. De, Nuncio Dolores, yeah. uh, which is the, a classic war, warlord makeup, isn't it? Volcano Cannon, Arlock Power Claw, which anyone who played the game, you know you don't let that thing get close to you. What did make me laugh, before we talk about the exposition, is how he talks about the Volcano Cannon, the Bellicose Volcano Cannon, as a pinpoint titan kill weapon or a pinpoint weapon <laughs> that is designed to finish off the enemy. It's like, no, anyone who says Titan Titanicus knows, after you drop the shield, you fire that weapon first to create the hole, and then you go in with your target your high rate of fire targetable weapons. It's also not so also doesn't he does what does he have on, on his carapace? It's not an apocalypse. Turbo lasers. Not, yes, turbo lasers. Turbo lasers. That's not that's yeah. not great. No. Bless him. Oh, you want either apocalypse missile launchers or gallon blasters? Oh, I, I disagree. If you have a volcano cannon, number one, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put a volcano cannon on the same Titan as a power claw, because a volcano cannon you want that Titan to be at a certain distance because you could fire across the board. Yeah, you either want the macro gallon blaster or the sun fury. Yeah, I, th that that's where I mine. Um, but I don't know. I think uh, I I still um um. Anyways, let's not get into it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other discussion. But yeah. Discussing whether or not the book has effective has a, ha, 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 have have armed their titans correctly. Hopefully, they're all magnetized. That's what I'm saying. Well, I don't know if it's in this. Does does Artek ever mention that his titans magnetized? Yeah, her warhound is a friend breaker plasma because it has a Vulcan and a plasma. So she she has she has the friend break friend maker pattern warhound. But she definitely has. Uh, the, 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 the apocalypse launcher, the special apocalypse launcher that we have. When, when she gets into a reeve later on, yes, she does. Yeah, okay. Anyway, right. anyway, let's, no, 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 no. Yeah, let's go back to it. Uh, um, but anyways, uh, so yeah, the, so they meet. Uh, uh, you want to explain for a second, like, what is the context of this um, of this this meeting where uh, both Legio, because this is during the Great Crusade, both Legios are supposed to fight together and they have kind of a ceremony. Yeah, so basically the entire point purpose of this is twofold. One, it keeps the princeps away from the negotiations about which Titan Legio has a precedence. That's conducted by the main tech priest of each Legio, and they keep that conducted behind closed doors. What this gathering does, it allows the princeps of each Legio to meet each other, to talk to each other, to start to build up relationships, or at least working relationships between the two Legios so they can operate more effectively on the battlefield so it's it's basically it's that icebreaker scenario you know those, those first days mm. at work those, those kind of meetings you have at work it's just like well we're all going to have an icebreaker exercise now and here's the kind of activities you do it's that kind of principle isn't it but in this case between our two character two main characters it evolves in something else don't they he's yeah. clearly Go on, carry on. Well, carry yeah, on. they're both clearly attracted to each other, and he immediately uh, he acts that he behaves like his leech. Again, this is exposition. Um, it's an ex. Uh, it, this is to create exposition, but it's done in an elegant way. Um, 
others might disagree with me, but I thought it was actually rather, if anything, refreshing from the way that these are usually done in these books. So he immediately goes to talk to her because that's, you know, his legion, that's his legio. Um, you know, you, you go right to the, uh, to the target. So he immediately goes yeah. to talk to her. He's, and up, they, he's, he's up front. He's direct. He's blunt. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're chatting. And, and, um, and again, the, the personalities of, uh, the legio are, are are developing through the characters, and I think again, it's I think it's it's done quite elegantly. And of course, ev- eventually, um, uh, he mentions, "You want to come see my warlord titan?" Now, if I bring a girl home, that... <laughs> and I say, "Do you want to come see my warlord titan?" Probably not getting a second date. Probably not. <laughs> but in this particular case, it's, it's it's rather more impressive. To be fair, though, he doesn't just offer, "Do you want to see my warlord?" He says, "Do you want to come and see all the the legio engines? <laughs> Do you want to see all my depths? Do you all my collection?" <laughs> oh yeah, that's how I got my wife to marry me. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> all the what I do like what he's having this conversation is that he notes that as they're talking, the two sides are, are mingling, but all the Solaria princeps are very easily maneuvering around. Volper princess yep. and he notes that if they operate their titans as well as they're easily able to move around the room that the two legios should work or should coordinate very well together so he brings her to to you know the, their their base um uh, in a in a mountain and uh and this is where you get most of the exposition dump about uh, how the two legions are different the legios are, are different um and you get the story about why uh, it's all uh, woman uh, legio and and it's there's one particular interesting line um about how uh what is it that uh heretic just realize it sounds like heretic heretic appropriately i guess uh but heretic uh, uh, talks about how in in thousands of years if someone because remember this is carved in the side of a mountain and there's like hundreds of maybe not hundreds but dozens of of, of warlord titans and everything like that and they're they're, they're arranged to scale because of course they are, um, and and he's talking about like, what if an alien civilization finds us one day and they'll wonder like, what kind of powers exist in the past? It's like, what do you mean in in the future? This the Imperium's forever. It's just like, oh, I'm Wait, isn't, isn't that a quote from Byron? Isn't isn't that a it could, he attributes quote. it to a remembrancer? Is <laughs> it, yeah. it could be? I have not but read I, my Byron. I, have, I admit. I I I thought that came. It, it's it's. I thought it was either Byron or there's that other famous one, isn't it? It's like, look upon my works. Was it look upon my works and tremble? Or I, I have the impression it came from a piece of classical poetry, but I'm not. Honestly. Miles would know. Miles, yeah. where are you? You uh, know this. Knowing the Black Library authors, uh, th- that is the most likely thing. Yeah. They're all, they, they, uh, they, they are all very well read in English literature. Um, yeah, so they do uh, it, it. So you have all this exposition, and it's. I think it's again. I think it's done very elegantly. Um, and and you learn a lot from the Legios. Uh, uh so I I really really enjoyed uh, this chapter. It was it was a rather long chapter, but I thought it was incredibly effective. But then also the following chapter then explains why the relationship between the two Legios breaks down as well. Yes, you want to you want to explain that? Yeah, because I think that's that's really important. What, what do they call? Really important... What do they call Heretech? Oh. Uh, back in the present, right? That was a flashback to in the past, obviously. Um, but what, what, in in the present at the Battle of Beta Garmin, what is uh, Tarrant uh, Hartek known as? Yeah, he's known as the Butcher of Bifex. 
That's right, because that's the world they're bringing in compliance, isn't it? That's why they brought yeah. the two lead Joes together. So let's pick up from there. Let's pick up about why the relationship between the two lead Joes breaks down, because it looks like it's been fairly successful, isn't it? We can infer that they've been working very closely together in this compliance action. The story picks up where our main Solaria character, I keep forgetting her name, is stampeding with three other warhounds of her manipul to try to stop Legio Volpera. Legio Volpera and advancing on basically a main city army. And they keep saying, we need to stop them, we need to stop them. We don't quite know why they're trying to stop them. It then transpires that this compliance action has now got to the negotiation point, that originally the planet had resisted. That obviously resistance has not gone particularly well. And the leaders of this planet, what's, what's the name of the planet again? Bifex. Bifex. And they've come to a negotiation table. Now, as far as Volper is concerned, the fighting is continuing on. There's been no ceasefire call. There's been no call to the end of the fighting. And they are going out to punish this city to show the strength of the Imperium. And Legio Solaria disagree with that. They disagree with wasting lives, don't they? One of their key tenets of war is to keep casualties to a minimum. Now, luckily, because they're in Warhounds, they're able to get in front, aren't they? They, they can head off the Vulpa Maniple, which is a couple of Warlords and three Reavers. It's the same Maniple we see later at the Battle of um, oh, Theta Garmin. And there's a big discussion between the two of them. Now, at this point in time, our main Solaria princep is pregnant. And although it's never said directly, we have the impression that it's the child from both Legios, isn't it? It's the, it's the child of both the main characters. The chosen one. The chosen one. No, I don't think it's that stage. No, <laughs> I'm just no, joking. <laughs> no. So, but because of that, that, that puts this extra friction in. And once again, you have one of these exposition conversations about Legio Volpa want to pan, punish the world, punish the city. Legio Solaria wanted to minimize casualties. And Solaria is called off. Now, they do stand up, they don't they? They do spool up weapons. They do run weapons hot at one point. And all the Legio Volpa Titans target her Warhound, which we know from the game, a single Warhound in front of two Warlords and three Reavers is not going to last particularly long. So Solaria is called to, called to back down. They, they're told, Legio Solaria, that actually Volpa is correct or at least entitled to do what they are doing under the, the tenets of war and negotiations between the two legios volpa is fine to carry out this action solaria don't have to agree with it but volpa is for want of a better word has the rules of engagement to carry this out so solaria do they literally describe them slinking away like whipped hounds don't they volpa go into this city and they don't even initially use weapons, do they? They just smash the Titans through buildings or use their power claws and knock in buildings down. We don't get the rest of the events from that because, once again, this is told in flashback. She's, she's looking at a picked screen recording from her Warhound, isn't she, from her old Titan. And she closes it before we find out what happens. Now, we can infer that Volpa just basically leveled that city with just five titans because that's what titans were designed to do pretty much but because of that one incident from then on volpa and solaria 
refuse to work alongside each other from that point on. And Solaria hates Volpe because of that. Yeah, and this is before the heresy. Yeah, and that's one of the things they do stress about as well, isn't it? That is when Horus unleashed the heresy and it split the Imperium down, it does point out the fact there was a lot of strained relationships, competition, enmity, threats between legios that almost decided which side they were going to go on to start with. And we see that through the Titanicus books, don't we? We do see that a lot of loyalty betrayed to legios joined Horus, not because they necessarily agree with Horus, but because a legio that they had a disagreement with goes to the other side. Oh yeah, the in many in many ways the battle lines were drawn a long time ago, yeah. and it, it leads me to the thought. Remember how it's been discussed in the past that if there wasn't a horse heresy, there would have been a war between the Mechanicum and Terra. And I do wonder what happens to the to the to the Legios in that case. Do all the Legios fall in line with Mars? I I don't think they would. If we're going to go into supposition on this, I yeah. reckon. Oh yeah, the Legios would look at. Who sided with Mars directly, and then the ones who sided with Mars directly would then probably jump onto the other side. If they, if they, so in this case, was Solaria would very very clearly jump on with Mars because they have very close links to the Mechanicum. Volpe would use that excuse to go against Solaria. Yeah, that's interesting. Makes sense. Hey, the Imperium sanctioned that. <laughs> this was not. You can't blame Horus for that one for Bifex. No, but they also. In some ways, the Imperium encourages these kind of relationships, just like the Emperor encourages those that competition, that competition yeah. between the Primarchs as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, because competition is the quickest way to drive people onto success. I mean, come on, let's be fair. We both use it. We, it's used in education as well. Everyone wants to get to the top grade. Oh, you you haven't got quite as good as last time. That's you true. know that yeah. that need to drive that need of success is huge. So it's it's fostered and developed, and then they wonder why it blows up in their face. <laughs> anyway, so that's all for history, isn't it? That leads yeah, us up to the Beta Garden campaign. Let's get back to the present. I thought yeah. this was going to be a short one because we just had to talk about a little of the expedition of the first third of the book. Yeah. Turns out there's a lot of it. We we should know by now when you and I get onto Titans. Yeah. <laughs> oh fuck! It's so refreshing. I, God, I, I love it. Really is like a. It's almost a naval story. Right, it's almost like battleships going to war. This kind of stuff. It's just yes. so much fun. Well, funny enough, uh, I was we were chatting in our um, gaming group a couple of weeks ago, and we were saying I'd love to see a proper Imperial Navy novel, just on the Navy, because we've we've got the Navy included in a lot of novels, but they're never the main focus of the novel. And I would yep. love to see an Imperial Navy novel. Oh, I'm sure there is one somewhere. It's got to be one somewhere. But I hit us up. Hit us up in the comments in the, on the Facebook. Yeah. Tell us a good Imperial Navy story. Anyway, Beta Garmin. Beta, okay. So, well, no, not Beta Garmin. No, because they're actually deployed to Theta Garmin. Yeah. Is it Theta Garmin? Yes, Theta Garmin. So uh, Theta, Theta Garmin. Garmin is one, as, as we mentioned, it's one specific subsector of the Garmin cluster, but it tends to be used as, it's the capital and it tends to be used as the name for the whole area. But it really is a lot of different worlds and Beta Garmin is one particular one, um, the capital. So actually... They're supposed to be on their way to Beta Be- Be- Garmin. Oh, uh, um, um, a Solaria, I mean. Solaria is supposed to be on their way to Beta Garmin, but they get orders from Rogel Dorn to change course and head to Theta Garmin. And there's a little bit of 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 conflict 
at the beginning about this. It's like, what do you mean? Uh, uh, um, what do you mean we, we've been diverted? The Imperials have no authority to divert us. Um, only Fabricator General Kane has the authority to divert us. Yeah. And then they're told what well, actually things have changed back home. Because this is after the, the novella Burden of Loyalty, when the... Binary secession. Fight a binary succession. succession, isn't it? Yeah. Is it succession or um, secession? When... Succession. Succession, yeah. Where it's been made clear that the Terran Mechanicum is no longer the Mechanicum. They are now the Adeptus Mechanicus. Yeah, they have been integrated under... into the Imperium. Yes, absolutely. And because of that, Dawn has the authority to go, go there. Oh, by the way, I just looked it up, and you're totally right. Uh, that sh- uh, the binary succession is a it's a it's a short story. It was originally an audio drama, and it's in in Burden of Loyalty, which is an anthology. So we were both. Oh, there right. we go. So we were both. We were right. both right. Yeah, <laughs> from a diff- from a certain point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the 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 Mechanicum is no more. Actually, there is still a Mechanicum. It's the Mechanicum uh, of Calber Hall, uh, and Horus has promised mechanicum. them. Yeah, they, they 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 so they technically they are the loyalist Mechanicum because uh, Horus has um, that gets really confusing here. Horus has guaranteed their independence. Who knows if yep. he would keep that promise? Probably, um, or maybe probably. And he's allowed them to play with all the toys. Yeah, he's, he can. They can play with all the toys. They're not giving. Uh, they there's no um, no limits to what they can do. It's all they really want in the first place. Um, and now there's an Adeptus Mechanicus, which is a part of the Imperium as opposed to being an allied power. Because Mars was an ally to the Imperium. Now it's no longer. Anyways, yeah. we all know this story. But yeah, they just learned about this. Like, so a Primarch can order us around? That doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. And then they told the sweetener, oh, by the way, Volper are in this sector. And they're like, all right. Oh, yeah, on. let's go. <laughs> We're going. <laughs> We're going in. Now, why is this sector so important? It's one of these things I love about 40k units, the crazy, the craziness. So they've got a gas giant, fantastic, but it's not the gas giant, which is the main draw. It's one of the orbital moons. And around that orbital moon is a shipyard dock, which is literally tethered to the moon itself. There's an orbital plate, isn't there, all the way around it. Uh, it's literally attached to Ramoon because they've mined Ramoon so deeply that it's in danger of collapsing. Yeah, it's practice. So put tether- yeah. So they put the tethers in place to hold Ramoon together so they can continue mining it. Yeah, it's so I, I just love the scale of this universe sometimes. Um so yeah, they um uh, so it's an important uh, strategically it's very important. It's um it's presently held by the force of the Warmaster. Um yeah. Which outnumbers them. So what Quite does significantly Vol- as well? Yeah. So what does Solari decide to do? So they decide rather than fight for the entire sector, they decide to focus on one key area of the orbital plate because their idea is they can cause a stalemate. So they capture one particular area of this orbital plate. They know they've got enough engine strength and they can hold and protect that area and also evacuate key personnel as well, key mechanical personnel. And reinforcements are on the way. So the idea is you take that area, you hold it, uh, you force the enemy into the kind of war that Solaria likes to fight, likes to hit and run and counterattacks and things like that, bleed them, and then eventually yeah. wait for, for reinforcements. Yeah. And they do give us some numbers of engines here as well, don't they? which I really like. I like it when we get statistics because they talk about the fact that 
Solario is an understrength Legio, and they say that we've got about 88 engines. I mean, that gives you an, an idea. They also talk about um, Volpe has got over 100 engines there, and there's also something like in a region of 20 um, Furian engines yeah. there as well. No so time, I, I, I can't imagine any time the 31st millennium that you see even like Solaria's understrength Legio in, of any kind of strength like that in, 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 in 40k. Yeah. There might be but some examples. There might be some examples, but I, 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 oh, uh, I can't think of any for Tom. I mean, even when you look at the siege of Vraxburg, it's like there's a maniple. Yeah, exactly. And Vrax was a big campaign. So yeah, so maybe, maybe in see... some of the new lore, like some of the like like Abaddon's thirteenth uh, Black Crusade kind of thing, maybe. But that would be like pretty much. Um, I can't imagine what percentage of the Imperial's entire strength of the Collegia Titanica uh, that would be in the 41st millennium. But here it's no. one understrength Legio. No. And we also get a great description of Solarius' fleet, don't we? Because they, they talk about the fact that a Legio is most vulnerable when it's in transit. So they give you an idea about how much they protect these assets in transition. And it it's like a description for World War II Pacific War carrier fleet, isn't it? So you have mm -hmm. two large transport vessels, and then you have a few ancillary ones. The two main ones carry, seem to carry uh, multiple maniples. You've also got some smaller dropships that carry a single maniple. You then got hordes of cruisers and frigates, and you also have an Arc Mechanicum there as well. And the Arc so Mechanicum can outproduce anything but a Forge World. The ship yeah. itself can can produce everything that uh, the the Legio needs. Yeah, and and they do talk about the fact that this is the kind of fleet that can conquer systems by itself. Yeah. And they do complain a little about about their losses and how they they had to replace um, good Mechanicum ships with crappy Imperial ones. Yeah, and they've also joined up some maniples as well, haven't they? They've they've reinforced yeah. some of their maniples with so when you got understrength maniples, they've combined them together. So you, you are getting an idea that this is already starting to be a Legio because it's seen 13 years of fighting, which is not as strong as it used to be, but it's still a terrifying force of war. Mm. So they assault the, the moon. Uh, they get close enough that the, uh, well, the, you know, the Horus' forces uh, start firing at them. Oh, there is one uh, detail that we forgot about um, that they do wonder what the, what, what is the command situation here yes like who is yeah. in charge and and there's or, no one no one's in fucking charge here or, it, or no it, it's not because no one in charge they've got multiple people in yeah. charge and because of a pride of legia they're like well we're not going to listen to any of you until one of you yeah, proves they, you're strong enough for us to listen to yeah exactly they ask is, is there a primarch here there's no primarch well i guess we're doing our own thing then yeah like and none of you also command us it also talks about negotiations taking place. So as Solari is launching this attack, loyalist fleet elements are engaging with traitor fleet elements to prevent them from getting in, involved. But neither the traitors or the other loyalist fleet elements wanted to stray too far away from their holdings. So th there's a lot of self-protection, isn't there, of military assets going on. So, anyways, they make their assault. Now, the, the war masters shoot at them. They they're saving their ammunition until they get closer because they're not going to do any damage at that range. And yeah, then yeah, all let's, these let's kind of let's kind of focus for a moment though. You talk about that. What do they use as part of their point defense system 
on Vasily. Yeah, okay, I wanted to get to that too. Okay, we agree on so I know what you're gonna talk about because I, I, I was gonna talk about the same thing. So as they're getting closer, attack craft are starting to come at them. And then you have one one of the ship that's conveying knights. Um tell uh, uh, they, they they kind of they put well, all the not, knights in, in a drop it's ship. The main it's the main Titan conveyors. So on the main Titan conveyors, they convert they're conveying knights in some drop ships and the Legio in others. So they're all on one ship. Yeah, but the, what they do is they, they load them into a dropship and they, oh, they're going to drop on the moon. No, they, they actually go to the ships, um, to, to, the, uh, to, to the primary conveyor. And, and so the knights, so th- these primary conveyors are so, they have battlements, <laughs> to be clear. Yes. They have battlements. Yeah. And I guess it's not like, you know, there's no, sh- uh, they, they, they don't need it to be uh, close to, um, they don't need, there doesn't need to be an atmosphere there, right? So it's just like open. So they have battlements. Yeah. And the knights go onto the battlements and but they shoot. do put grav plates down. They do put yeah. grav plates down so the knights don't float away. <laughs> the battle, yes. so the, the, you have literally knights on the battlements shooting at, at the besieging force. Yeah, but the reason they're also there, and this was this was fantastic, is if they are boarded, the knights are there to attack yeah. any boarding troops. <laughs> it's just a it's so amazing. like a normal imperial ship would have like armsmen, like regular yeah. dudes with like last guns. <laughs> These archivers yeah. are defended by knights, 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 and phalaxy. Yeah. Because they later on we have a scene now, don't we, where some of the enemy boarders do get into the Titan Manipal Bay. And they're making a bid for the Titans for Titan point defense weapons are open up with the last cannons and the heavy bolters. And then a horde of phalax come in and just lay waste to the borders. Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's so great. And that's not the only thing that they're shooting at them, right? So they have no. um, uh, so some of the because um, they have attack craft or or more specific like boarding craft. Some of them are disgorging um, Skitari, like uh, specialist Skitari as kind of a a. Was it the Forlorn Hope? Uh, the the first people over the the castle yeah. wall. Yeah, yeah, and it's also they mentioned Secutari as well, yeah. don't they? Which is a nice nod to the Black Book. And then uh, the second wave is Cybernetica and and Myrmidons and things like that. Um, and not 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 Myr- Myrmidons. No, it would be uh, Thal- yeah Thalax and, and Thalax. Yeah, yeah, Castle X and th- things like that. So that's one way. But there's also some of the ships that actually are disgorging uh, like um, um, little automata that are trying to find nodes to stick in scrap code because yeah it's and they describe it like a body that's coming um under attack by like a virus and that the antibodies come uh come in and and are and and that like both uh the attacking uh scrap code and and the those antibodies the uh the they're they're evolving like constantly and trying to like one up to, to keep the ship from the class yeah. and they also have what can only be described as um like those little buzz droids uh, from episode three, uh, you know those little yeah. um, um, at the at the beginning of the Battle of Coruscant where uh, they shoot like a cluster of little guys that just start like cutting into uh, Anakin's uh, fighter. Yeah, yeah, they, they they have a bunch of those that are just going around and finding like um, uh, uh, panels to cut into and just trying to like uh, cut. Uh, um, uh, it's horrific, really, isn't it? Before. It's so cool, and, and and they they do point out, don't they, that people can say that Stasis versus the Stasis warfare. Is horrible, but they say that from a mechanicum versus mechanicum, it's every level from a microscopic up to the engines of war. Exactly, it, 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 exactly the whole 
the whole ship is fighting off the attack. And 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 again, the virus metaphor is very strong here. It's uh, it's absolutely it's absolute insanity. And again, it's one of the best sequences I've read in Black Library. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's so cool. Um, so they're 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 doing this battle, and and again, um, the knights are trying to avoid using their weapons inside because they're on the battle. List. They're, they're actually sh- they're, they're shooting their battle cannons at fighters. Yeah, thermal cannons. So yeah. yeah. So eventually they decide, ah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I'm pretty sure that the uh, the uh, the inner plating can probably take a battle cannon shot. So they start shooting at uh, yeah. at uh, attacking. Oh, it's the, uh, the spider tanks. Yes, they have spider tanks. The spider tanks. So they they were boarding because when they were first described, I thought, well, that sounds like a dread claw. And then they talk about this ship that kind of latches on with claws, and then they like drop tracks or something, and it starts moving off free track with on tracks, so it turns into a tank. And it's just like that's amazing. If we ever get models for stuff like that, it will be phenomenal. Oh yeah. And again, this is one of those. What's great about a novel? this kind of stuff i mean can you imagine like how hard this would be to actually put into a movie it's definitely doable but in a novel you can just you, you, you can write anything you any crazy complain. thing and 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 your brain kind of fills in the blanks uh with whatever insanity yeah. that that you have i i mean it's it's it, it's a great scene um as far as the void yeah. battle is it doesn't last all that long because the uh, solaria does manage to get its fleet into position for a drop well it does a full combat drop don't yeah they? so they, of, they of, a, the of 80, 89 what is it 89 titans yeah 89 Back. titans one drop ship of which is taken out in orbit isn't it and they yep. describe like, the body but of the only one falling out only but only one, one. Only one. One of them does take a heavy hit, doesn't it? Because it talks about the, the plating is ripped away, and they can actually see out through the ship. Yeah. So, so you know they aren't taking damage. Yeah, but they but do again, deploy their titans. It's the, this whole fleet. Its only purpose. This this is one of the. It's a gigantic fleet, and its only singular purpose is to safely convey its titans. That is how yeah. important these things are. It's not something yeah. you can and just replace in a day. You have no. to protect it. You have to husband it. And, it, and what, one of the things as well is I really liked how we talked about how long it takes to wake up the Titans. Yeah. That these, these are not click-and-go weapons. You have to spend weeks preparing these ready for combat. And the Titans but You themselves, know how you speed it up, though? You know how you speed that up? Yeah, you tell it, Vulpa's there. Yeah, you tell Vulpa's <laughs> there, there, and suddenly <laughs> the reactors start burning a little bit hotter. Yeah. Yeah, but that was a good description. I love that description of how she's communing with the machine spirit and how it's just like a, it's just like a grumpy dog, isn't it? It's like, it just, it's described like a, a, a hound. It's literally described as a hound. It's just like, no, I don't want to play. I don't want to come out. You've left me alone for too long. I don't want to do this. She just goes, oh, okay, fair enough. But Vulpa's around. It's just like, what? Hang on. No, right. Bring it on. Let's go. So, yeah. When we talk about machine spirit, we, we're, it's not a metaphor. No, it, it, it's an actual machine spirit. I mean, if you go back to the old law, the original 88, 88 rules from, you know, from 1988, they used to describe the fact that they were animal spirits sacrificed with, in the construction of the, of the Titan. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's how it was originally done. So they would do the more belligerent, angry animals. It wasn't a specific type. So things like warhounds would be like more of a hunting animal for example like a wolf or something like that now the law has progressed that it, they take on that they use kind of the, the the brain patterns of those kind of animals 
to imprint or were modeled on those kind of animals. Interesting. I didn't know that. But yeah, but they do kind of stress quite a lot for both sides, for both Volpra and Solaria, that the princeps is constantly fighting with the machine spirit to keep it under control. Because otherwise, machine spirit will go off and do its own thing. And those of you who have played Adeptus Titanicus will know at that critical moment, you will fail that command check. Yeah. Your engine will wake up and will do something you don't want. Not always. You have 50 50 chance of it being something okay. As long as it doesn't shut down, that's the worst one. <laughs> like, yeah. ah! Or you went to sleep, really? Or walk it, yeah, or walk in front of the enemy guns. Yeah. It's like, I want to get close to the enemy. No, no, we don't want to do that. Stop, stop. But, okay, so let's get into the battle. They drop, and, and there, there's a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful uh, scene when they, they talk about uh, that, that, you know, Titans are at their most vulnerable where when the conveyors, you know, the coffin ships start opening up and it just it's feels like, like it takes forever. Yeah, like any landing troops, isn't yeah. it? I mean, D-Day, look, look at the D-Day landings or the Sicily landings, anything like that. It's your most vulnerable yeah. when you're getting off. And the that ramp just takes forever to come down. But yeah. eventually they do get down and they immediately deploy. And I like how they, yeah. they mention that they deploy. Okay, we're deploying into Axiom uh, um, formation. Solaria, Solaria and Venator pattern. So yeah. you've got one reaver and four warhounds so they open up they start deploying and 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 so and, and solaria does what it usually does it starts setting up an ambush yeah because they know their enemy well, yeah well they kind of go into a hunting pattern it's like a, a, a crescent isn't it it's yep. a crescent pattern so let's slip over to volpa because we also have a perception from a volpa main heretic yeah. stage. he see yeah from he sees all the solaria ships coming down doesn't he and he's setting up his mana pool to kind of move in and, and take them on. And then he receives communication from another Vulcan mana pool who have set up their own ambush. And I love his reaction is, oh, okay, we need to move to this position now to cover their retreat. Yeah. And they're like, but they're really not retreating. Them that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to cover your retreat. What are you talking about? So you, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're ambushing like, the ambushers. This will yeah, not end well. Because he will. knows them. Heretic <laughs> knows them. Yes, absolutely. And that's such a good little scene. It's like how he changes his mindset. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll protect you in a moment. <laughs> he knows what's coming. And for those of you who have played Titanicus, this upcoming battle is a perfect Titanicus battle, isn't it? Yeah. You could see it playing out like this on the battle top. So you have one, so the, you have the maniple of, of, uh, of, of Warhounds that is like going through a city. Um, and they're describing like star scrapers, right? Not skyscrapers, star scrapers. They're very big. Um, yeah. And 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 walking through it, and suddenly, just out of nowhere, crashing through a building, comes a, a Reaver Titan with a a, a well, chain fist and just cuts and right through it, right in the middle. Takes it takes off in the middle. Yeah. I mean, there's this electromagnetic field, isn't there? So they can't use all specs in that area. With that, and that's where Volpra set up this ambush. But like you say, the 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 opening of the ambush is cutting a warhound in half with a reaver and let's face it if you've used a reaver chain fist in combat to a warhound it will do this yes this is accurate <laughs> this, this, this is what will happen so that that's an engine kill in the first moment but at that point because volpra has unleashed their ambush that's when solaria really gets into play isn't it so the reavers lock down and just start hurting fire into the volpra titans and two of the warhound packs go in and basically harry them. The other two are sent further out, aren't they? And they will come back later. 
Now, did you pick up about the Solarian missiles? Because this is, remember these loyalists, these have one of the most horrific sounding missiles yes. I've ever heard of. Is that explained in Titanicus, what these are? No, they don't I don't remember reading Titanicus. this. No, they don't have this piece okay. of war gear in Titanicus. You want me to explain it? So, God, you can explain it. Go ahead. It's, it's, it's too funny. Oh, it's brilliant. So these are seeker missiles. So these Treat are yourself. fired from the apocalypse launches. You'd expect that. Each missile has a human brain within, within it, so it can guide itself more accurately to the target. Yep, this is, this is a true missile, smart missile. Yes, each missile costs a life to use. Yeah, and just for this and, one, for its one moment of glory. Yeah. And these are the loyalists. These are the loyalists. <laughs> these are meant to be the good guys. This is no, they're, they're not. Good guys. Loyalist does not this, mean good guy. No, no. Th- those and are this, not. This those... is another example. Yeah. Because, yeah, this is pretty horrific. So, yeah, they, they literally kill someone, put their brain into a missile, and fire them at, at their enemies. Yeah. So yeah, so you do Pop get a universe of, shades yeah, of gray. Yeah, it's uh, it was such a good moment because at that moment you're like, <laughs> sorry, did I just read that right? Each brain, each missile has a brain. Okay, fine, okay. But you do then get the, the back and forth, don't you? So you get Volper who are extremely stubborn and they're just putting fire down. Um, you get the Warhounds darting in and shooting up the back of the Volper Titans. Um, the Volper do start to kind of enclose their line a little bit, don't they, to try and shield their backs a little bit. And then you get a classic engine kill. So come on, JP. What is the classic engine kill in Deptus Titanicus? Okay, so uh, you have the uh, the Warlord, just takes you know incredible amounts of damage. It just starts teetering. And when it starts teetering, it's just like, oh, boy. <laughs> all the power to locomotors go backwards yeah um because it and starts few it starts fuming and and uh, they, they talk about how there's something beautiful about it about like this god machine wreathed in fire um and then you have uh the escape pod goes off right because remember the head of a solar titan can be used as an escape pod um and they mentioned it to, just to get the pro, uh the uh, the Moderati and the uh, and and the Princess more most importantly uh, out of it, and they mention, but not anybody else. And again, you can imagine that scene with Mister Burns and his escape pod. It's like <laughs> yes. Mister Burns, there's two seats. I like to put my legs up. Um, so then uh, uh, th- that goes off, and then like it's, it's like an eerie quiet in this city, and then there's a nuclear explosion, and then it goes up in place. A but new sun is created it? on this planet. What was the weapon that finished it? Uh, it was uh, was it the volcano? It was the Vulcan. It was the Vulcan Megabolter. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about it's that. The classic Vulcan Megabolter yep. in the back. You get all those sixes to hit, so you get the extra hits. You get the plus three modifier. And you just keep targeting the same location. Absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 the game in the novel. Absolutely. And what happens when this one, the first one explodes? And this is also the game. Oh, you get another one. Another What's one goes up. Of course it does. You never, you never just get one. But at this point, Volper are retreating, aren't they? So that they are now going to fall back. The second Volper, where Hertek is as well, now comes into play. But what I liked is the as the first the ambush involved Manipul is falling back. They get ambushed again by the next wave of Warhounds, don't they? Yeah. But with the arrival of Hertek's Manipul, they suddenly decide, no, the odds are against us. We can't take on that many battle line titans with 
the number of scout items we have. The, num the numbers don't balance, basically. So they allow Volpa to withdraw. And that is classic naval battles, isn't it? It's like, we, well, we could fight this battle and we could probably take them out, but we'll take too many casualties in return. So both sides just disengage. Glory to Solaria, they definitely won that first engagement. So that was two warlord kills for one warhound. A, a handful of war. They, they lose about three warhounds, but... I think they, lose, uh, they only lose one. The, no, no, they don't. Uh, the other they, ones are they, damaged, but they're not. They're they're not destroyed. I, I remember. I'm pretty sure they they mentioned how they only lost one warhound. You you have one cut in half by chain fist. Yeah. You get another one which has its legs taken out. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. There's one does run off trailing this plasma blast gun because it takes that weapon hit, which is always the most annoying thing in Titanicus. Yeah. But clearly they are playing the campaign version because it runs off rather than getting destroyed. So, but yeah, so. De but definitely, like, Solar Solario won that one. Solari and Heretech is not happy. He's not a happy bunny. He's not a happy bunny at all. And yeah. I, I really like the discussion on amongst his moderati that at the end of the battle, that they're happy. He just stalks off really angrily because they mentioned that his punishments have recently becoming worse. When they don't do well. And that's the other thing about Volpa. The Princeps doesn't learn the Moderati's names. No. But the explanation, uh, again, this looks like uh, uh, like an evil bit, but the explanation is actually really interesting in that, you know, uh, if you, if uh, I'm not learning anybody's names because uh, we're all one unit and I command the unit. And, and but yeah. everybody's promoted from a Moderati. Absolutely. So if you if you're good enough, you will be promoted, and then we will learn your name. That is kind yeah. of the honor, the great honor of 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 of, of being promoted um, from from moderati yeah. to uh, princeps in Volpa. It's like we we learn your name. You did so well that we're going to bring you into this fraternity. But before that, no, yeah. we're all one unit, and I command the unit. So why would I learn? Whereas your name? with Solaria, their mind link within the titan is much better because they do know each other by name don't they they do they are more of a collection of yep. colleagues as opposed to um a hierarchical command system as it were although slurry do still have that command system but they're much more closely bonded together aren't they so it's once again it's an another juxtaposition between the two legios i really like this first part oh yeah it's brilliant um, enjoy the yeah. battle. Um, the, uh, uh, the the exposition I thought was very strong. You have strong characters that you care about. No mustache twirling villains. Nuanced characters. Um, uh, and 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 this feels like it has weight to it. That it has. Um, I don't know there's there's like an emotional core to this that's created quickly. Um, yeah. And and it's something that uh, some some of the novels don't. Um. Uh, don't create as effectively. No, and I think alongside that, they're very relatable characters very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's always dangerous in a Black Library novel when you get to like characters. Yes, that is true. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like like it's like starting to enjoy characters in Game of Thrones or House of a Dragon or Battle or Babylon Five. You, you don't get too attached to them. All right, just just don't. <laughs> but very effective. Um, do you want to end it here, or do you want to talk about the last uh, little bit before um, before part two officially starts? 
Yeah, so the, the, there's a little end bit for both Legios, isn't there? Which is kind of setting up the next stage of a campaign. So in terms of Legio Solaria, we learn from their main... Well, they refer to her as the Great Mother, don't they? She's the original founder. Oh, of yes. We forgot to mention and, that. The Yeah. Uh, so the person we were talking about earlier, that that woman that um, that 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 won that competition, got the cog, and became the first um, uh, of 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 these daughters that got sent over to become Legio Solaria, and eventually became the most pers- uh, the most important person in the society. Well, she's very old now, and she's kind of in one of those vats, uh, and 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 commands the lead uh, warlord titan of Legio yeah. Solaria. And she's, and she's permanently stuck in the head, isn't she? Yeah. She's permanently stuck in the head. And yeah, they, she is given, what, 10 months to live, isn't she? Something along the mm-hmm. line. It's, it's very short. So one of the final sequences with her is that she calls her natural daughter to herself, which is our, our main Solaria character, and also her granddaughter, which is the daughter of our Volper character and our Solaria character. And she says, oh, I basically wanted to see you all together this is going to be potentially the last time we're all going to be t- together we're changing positions and slaria is being um withdrawn from theta garmin in return for legia astroman i think it is uh, because astroman have the heavier titans so they can take the fight to volpa and um the legia furion instead slaria is being deployed to beta garmin to take on the more fighting there because that fighting is going to more suit the Imperial Hunters Hit and Raid style of fighting. But they're also going to split the battle group, which is why the three of them may not be together any longer. She also announces at the end of that stage that because she's dying, she's going to pass the mantle of leadership onto her natural daughter because she is the last natural daughter. But not just because of that, she's the only princeps left which has the experience and the skill to lead the Legio. Yeah, that would be Asher, princeps, right? Yeah. All Asher. the other pre all the other previous princeps who could have done the role have died. So it's basically <laughs> a case of you'll do the job until someone better comes along. <laughs> you hear so, me? Yeah. So that's that's the last of the Legio Solaria. Legio Volpa takes a slightly different angle. Oh, and also going back to Legio Solaria, her um Titan Bay has basically been turned into a shrine, hasn't it? There's all these candles and votive offerings, and there's equations scratched into the walls to commemorate her and everything. So you do get the feeling that the Imperial Cult's not really fully embedded. Legion Volker, on the other hand, we meet Hertek again. He's going through massive withdrawal. He's yeah, from really both, struggling. Yeah, from both being within uh, his Titan, but also he's taking a lot of combat stims. Uh, which is not yes. helping the situation. Yeah. But yeah, he has he has a nice he has a nice wardroom. Again, there's a, there's a humanity uh, in in these characters that you don't see like that you don't see a lot. Um, when we were talking about Astartes, the that there's a spread of food out. Like, how often do you see people eat in this universe? And and yeah. when you see it, you know you, you notice it because it's how rare you see anybody actually needing food. Yeah. Um, and he's got. He's broken all the, the um, lights in his room apart from one, and he's put his banner over it because it creates the same kind of red glow as he has in his yeah. Titan. So and he's that, describing all the effects of of kind of uh, falling uh, or rising addict withdrawal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and also cool. to 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 uh, 
you know, corn is starting, you know, he's getting headaches and um, he's, he's just, you know, he, all he can think about is violence and he's starting to think, Oh, I can't wait to kill like his, yeah. his and uh, he's... A court, a courtier uh, or his assistant. He just, Oh man, I just want to kill yeah. him so bad. And he uh, can't understand himself. Does he? He, yeah. he knows he's angry all the time, but he doesn't know what he's angry. And he's trying to calm himself down. He's repeating, um, you know, like uh, he's trying to meditate and trying to like calm. Yeah. But all you can think about is going back into combat. Yeah. So he's met by a member of Dark Mechanicum who is one of Sotranol's acolytes. And Sotranol, for those of us who don't know, we think back to Wolfsbane, she's the main emissary of the Dark Mechanicum. So whereas um, Kerbal Hell is in charge of the Dark Mechanicum, Sotranol is basically Horus or the emissary to Horus and also one of the main Dark Mechanicum acolyte that goes out to spread the word for Dark Mechanicum. One of her acolytes goes to see Hairtech and explains to him, we can make you better. We can improve you. We can make your titan stronger. All we need to do is stick a Neverborn in there and it'll be fine. Yeah, what could go wrong? You, you, it'll be fine. Yeah. And they do talk about one on Kalth because we have had a corrupted titan before in a short story about sitting in this um, siege of Kath, but that one goes horribly wrong. Uh, it go, kind of runs amok. Oh, was that in Mark of Kalth, the, the anthology? Uh, yes. Yes, it is, yeah. And Hetek says, well, you know, if it's gone wrong, why are you going to do it? And the Dark Mechanicum Acolyte says, well, the reason it went wrong is because word bearers did it. They don't understand how a Titan operates. We do. We're going to make this better. And interesting enough, Hesek throws him out, says he's, he says he's not interested. But we've now got this kind of little thread coming in that, oh, we've got possible corrupted titans on the horizon as well. And that ends. So that's where part one ends. So he's basically setting up for the next stage of the Garden Cluster campaign. Yep. So uh, great, great introduction to this book. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very much enjoying it. Um, and uh, anything else that we need to talk about in this bit? I think the only thing I would say on this is my main takeaway from reading part one is I really want to play some more to- Adeptus Titan. Yeah, I know. Doesn't it make, just make you want to play that? I, again, I think that was part of uh, Guy Haley's mission. Yeah. And if it yeah, was, but, mission accomplished. Yeah, but have, having played Adeptus Titanic is quite a bit, it's just I really yeah. want to play more of it. Now. I've really forgotten well, how good this game was. Well, yeah, 30K comes out and it's the new it's the new thing and everybody just wants to play 30K all the time. Um, but uh, we got to remind people that Titanic is also 30K. Best game. Best it's game also it's the best fucking game yeah. that they have. Best game GW produced. It's so good. Anyways, let's... <laughs> anyway, but that's it, isn't it? Yep. All right. So that was part one of Titan Death. Uh, in the next episode, we will continue this discussion. And um, I think we're also going to probably talk about some Titanicus uh, during the Stratagium. Um, but for now, we'll be right back for 2 Copy Challenge. To me, copy challenge. Now, um, this is normally where I, I shine, isn't it? And tell you about what... Oh, I, you I shine throughout the whole episode, but this is your strongest <sighs> segment, I think. Yeah, but I'm still injured. I'm still recovering from my accident a few weeks ago, so I'm, I'm still hobby-like. Hopefully by the next episode, I will be able to do some hobby. That's what I'm really hoping. So we thought what we'd do in this section, rather than just talking about hobby that we've been up to the last two weeks, we thought we'd talk about Adepticon 
build up. Now, obviously, I can't go. Some of us have to work for a living. And instead, JP is going to talk about his massive plans for hobby build up <laughs> on the run up to Adepticon. Well, yeah, well, well, I, I did it again. Um, every year I put myself into a situation where uh, Adepticon's coming up and it's like, oh, it's, like, it, it's crunch time. Uh, it's like when you, it, it's like cramming for a test. But uh, it, so, yeah, I decided months ago I was bringing my Iron Warriors, but uh, I decided recently that I was going to, um, I want to go back to my original army. Um, and, and it's been almost, what, a year and a half now I haven't used my militia uh, with yeah. my Iron Warriors. Um, I was going to say, in your defense, though, you're still waiting for your main army yeah. arm list, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's that's not an excuse. You just need to be creative. It's, just, it's a reasonable excuse to be It's not having an army list. <laughs> well, it's because the army is terrible. Uh, that's the problem. Because uh, for years, ever since book f- uh, book five came out, they had the rules for the militia. And ever since that time, I filled out all my troop choices with militia because that's, I, I really like that army. That, that's, I really like the idea. I've always liked the idea of the iron warriors sort of supplementing their numbers with, with heavy use of, of militia. Uh, you say supplementing. Most of us realize it's just minefield clearance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you have recently found a loophole, haven't you? Yeah, I found a loophole. That, and it's obvious. You found a loophole. <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not like I'm, uh, I, I, obviously, I'm, I'm uh, so I, I, I went over the, um, uh, the solar ox list and I think it'll work fine. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I, I, the, the, the solar ox seem to be, they now have an option called penal, uh, cohort, which allows you to essentially downgrade the weapons on your solar ox and, uh, well, you say downgrade. I think it's more of a side grade because you think the, the standard. Yeah, I think so. The standard solar rocks, las rifles, a heavy weapon, and with their close order of formation. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. They can move up to half pace and still shoot a heavy weapon. So, but that makes the solar rocks, las rifle section, very, very slow moving. By side grading it to, and there's some nice options here, isn't there? There's las carbines, there's las rifles, there's mm. auto guns in there. It gives you a bit more, and they've also removed the close order ability yep. from your last rifle section. So it gives you a bit more maneuverability. But it side converts into a very oh, 18th century Napoleonic style shoulder to shoulder volley fire section to a much more skirmish formation, doesn't it? Much more of a modern warfare formation. Yeah, um, and one that fits really well with militia. Because uh, yes, and if you look at the auxiliary stat line, obviously um, it, it'll be very similar. Probably the militia will have one less leadership. I think outside of that, it should be pretty much a human stat line. Um, uh, if you change into the last carbine, so they don't have uh, using that, they don't have close order drill, which is really one of the hard hallmarks of of the uh, soul auxilia. Already starts to look a lot le- more like the militia. The yeah. uh, now the penal cohort also gives some bonuses, like uh, um, I believe uh, furious charge which actually fits with what I was doing before because I was uh, running my militia's Alchem Jackers, figuring that the Dark Mechanicum, well, I won't go into the storyline. I think most people by now know, know kind of like the background for, for for my army, seeing as I we did like an eight-episode uh, campaign with them. But they come from and a Dark Mechanicum, fiefdom. If you don't, and, yeah. go back and listen to those. Yes, please do. And, and hopefully now with the pandemic having, I don't want to say... Let's say subsided, not ended, but uh, we should be able to uh, hopefully start working on another season of that. It's been five years, and I didn't really expect it to be that long. Um, but anyways, so 
uh, the, 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 I, so I used to run them as Alkenjackers, figuring that the Dark Mechanicum had sort of created um, a, a version of combat drugs to keep uh, human uh, auxilia to make them more effective. So that works with the Furious Charge. And generally speaking, I, I think with the Penal Cohort, it, 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 it'll look close enough to Militia that um, I don't think anybody would have a major problem with me using. I've already cleared it with uh, the event organizers. And the only major problem with using Solar Ox, I think, as Militia for now, until the new rules come out, um, I think is the Carapace Armor. But what I'm just going to tell my opponent is it's like, no, they have five plus. You know, no, yeah. I don't think anybody's going to complain about me downgrading uh, the, the, the the units. And so I'll be running um, um, a bunch of 20 man cohorts mm. of of Solar Auxilia. Again, this uh, the, the proper unit size for the Militia Codex with a bare bones. Uh, what is it? Legate Commander? Uh, Marshal Commander. Yeah, Legate, Legate Marshal. Legate Marshal. Thank you. Yeah, because he, he <laughs> together we got it. The, yeah, he unlocks a provenance. Well, not, it's not a provenance, mm. is it? But the, yeah. the, the cohort rule. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to be uh, bringing my uh, militia back out. So I'm pretty happy about that because I'll have some line troops, which should make a uh, big difference uh, in the effectiveness of the army. And also, I can actually run the army that I love. Uh, yeah, a, so... a tough a toughness three five plus save line troops is going to make a massive difference. But here's the problem. <laughs> uh, the, the The problem is I haven't run them in a while, and uh, Certainly not in a a formal event with high painting standards. And I realized that these are old metal militia, right? These are old metal Valhalla models from the 90s. Uh, they chip very easily, no matter what you do. You can you can look at them and they chip. Yeah, exactly. So I, I got to fix them up. I, I got to fix them up, make them all like... Uh, but I, I would wager that half of the 80 uh, militia that I'm planning to bring to Adapticon are, 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 are chipped. Some of them minor chips, some of them pretty heavy. So I'm going to be fixing that in the next week. And outside of that, the big Adepticon prep is going to be fixing all the models that uh, got uh, banged up when I went to Scandis. Nothing got so damaged that it can't just be easily like reglued. But so uh, I've got so I've started working all the, all that stuff. And uh, since I'm leaving for Adepticon a week early because uh, I'm presenting a paper um, in Detroit the week before uh, Adepticon, um, I've I've got one less week to finish this stuff. But that's my Adepticon prep. Hopefully, I can get everything uh, sorted out in time. I think it should be fine. But I'm 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 excited. Um, also, I wish I would have done this stuff a month ago. But yeah, I doubt but I am the only person out there. I was going to say you, you're not going to be the only person out there now listening to this, sweating profusely over trying mm. to get stuff done. At least it won't be like yeah. that one year where I had to paint a, a chunk of my army while I was at Adepticon. <laughs> yeah, there there is that. That was worse. That, that was worse. Are you going to try and get your Praetor sword back at this Adeptical? That's well? the plan. That's the plan. Yeah, I, right now, yes, Memento Mori, my uh, Praetor's uh, Paragon Blade, was uh, was robbed from me after a, after I lost a duel last Adepticon. Uh, since then, I've made him a mass-crafted um, a Graviton Maul, um, which is not as good as a uh, Thunderhammer, unfortunately but just so cool. So that's what he's armed with right now. So the plan is to challenge Miles to another duel and hopefully win back my blade. Yeah. It's called sure Hardcore Heresy. Sure. Yeah, sure. You... And then next episode when we're talking, you're going to give us a, a rundown of the event sign. You run down how Adepticon yep. went and everything. Not that I'm going to be jealous about you guys i'm not fully <laughs> expecting a whole host of messages coming through overnight and i'll wake up to this drunken tirade on my facebook messenger but 
you, you broke your arm at the wrong time of year. If you had broken your arm just a few weeks later, you could have. Gone. You know what? You're you're not the only person who's mentioned that. Just, <laughs> could you have not waited another three weeks and then you could have gone out? It's just like yeah, yeah, all right. Because that was that was top of my agenda when I did something to my arm. Absolutely. I mean, you're just not thinking ahead. That's the problem. No, no, clearly, clearly, pre-planning is a bad flaw of my idea. Anyway. Yeah, what do you pl- uh, when uh, when your uh, arm is uh, sufficiently healed, uh, what do you plan on doing? What, what's the first thing you're going to jump on? Um, well, it's, I'm still going to have to go through various things. So I'm not going to probably jump onto painting straight away. So I'm going to work through some board and, um, board and train, so board and actions train. So I bought that uh, train box set. So that's nice and chunky for me to work through. And then I also picked up some Rough Riders. I think where Rough Riders are going to jump to the front of the queue for building because they're Rough Riders, and I've been waiting years for Rough Riders. Yeah, well, hasn't. I look so, forward to seeing what you do. They, yeah, they, they, they do look really I had a quick look at the kit the other day when they arrived, and it looks really good. And keep on reading End of the Death. Keep reading that. Before we before we end uh, the show, brand new uh, Stuka song just dropped called The Flight of the Eisenstein. Uh, for everybody that uh, listened to our uh, metal special from last summer, uh, one of the standouts was Stuka, which was not metal, but just so, so delightful and catchy. Yeah. This new song that just dropped is called The Flight of the Eisenstein, and I'm going to end the show with that. Yeah, in the next episode, we will be uh, yeah. continuing on with the second part of Titan Death. And uh, what are we doing in the Stratagium? Well, we've kind of got the AT bug now, haven't we? Yeah, I think we're going to have to talk we're, about some Titanicus. We, we've got ourselves excited about Titanicus. So I think, I think we did discuss about looking at the campaign system. So, because we haven't had a proper look at the ATT campaign system as a formal discussion. So I think that's one of the things we're going to explore next episode. Excellent. But before all that, uh, we're going to try to do a recap of Adepticon. So I've talked about what I plan to do, and uh, hopefully we'll talk about what actually happened next time. Tell us about your glorious victories. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be many. (laughs) Just one would do, really. (laughs) It would be great. I lost all my games of Scandis. That's the last time I did an event. But um, now you played the event, and you can remember you got augury scanners on things this time. That is true. I'll try to remember the augury scanners. Yeah, and, it, and if all else fails, just throw militia, bubble wrap everything in militia. That's what we're there for. So that was episode 133 of the H Darks podcast. As usual, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.